Machete Audio presents If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution Written by Vincent Evans Read by Timothy Andres Pabon Introduction On June 13, 2013, the military police attacked us. We were standing on a street named Consolação in the center of South America's largest city. The mass of people had come to a stop and was looking up a hill at heavily armored troops, deciding what to do next, when the cops decided for us. Without warning, they began shooting directly at the crowd. Tear gas, shock bombs, maybe rubber bullets. It was hard to know in the moment. The point of this kind of repression is to force you to immediately seek shelter and stop thinking about anything but your own safety. The crowd stops being a crowd and is reduced to a set of individuals. You close your eyes and look down at the ground, sneaking peeks at your surroundings, seeking escape. We scattered through the night into whatever crevice we could find. It was dark as winter was arriving, and about as cold as it ever gets in Sao Paulo. There are skyscrapers everywhere in the city, and I found a bit of refuge in the entrance of a residential building. It took me a few moments to regain my senses and realize where I was, after I had confirmed I could still breathe with some regularity. I had been to a lot of protests in my life, around the world and in Brazil, and this was new. Usually the crackdown comes through waves of escalating back-and-forth provocation and reaction between the cops and the demonstrators. There are several opportunities to leave if you don't want to stick around for the rough stuff. And you can often even understand why the police take the action they do. Not this time. This felt like an intentional assault carried out by the state. I was not on the streets as a protester. I was working as a journalist, both as an international correspondent and one of a few people from the United States with some role in the Brazilian media. It feels a little silly to say that the police attacked us when the reporters were probably not the intended target of the offensive, and we were not the brave protagonists actually trying to take risks and make history that night. But the fact that journalists also suffered is, I believe, crucial for understanding how these events shaped history. The police assault starts to become comprehensible if we analyze everything that led up to that night. But even more fascinating, even more puzzling, is what came next. How is it possible that the protests of June 2013 led to the country that existed by the end of the decade? This question is far from settled. When you pose it to the Brazilians who lived through all of this, you may be answered with careful, though usually varied and contradictory, analysis, or met with a flash of rage or a look of dejection, followed by an empty stare into the distance. For now, we can briefly summarize the events that followed. The crackdown on June 13th led to an explosion of sympathy for demonstrations that had been organized by a small group of leftists and anarchists demanding cheaper public transportation. Millions of people took to the streets, shaking the Brazilian political system to its core. New demonstrators brought new demands, better schools and healthcare, less corruption and police violence, into the mass movement, which could be read as fundamentally progressive. Indeed, the leaders of the Workers' Party, which had been in power since 2003, interpreted the uprising in exactly this way. At the beginning of 2013, it was possible to claim that Brazil's Partido dos Trabalhadores, PT, or Workers' Party, had carried out the most significant social democratic project in the history of the global south. Outside the rich countries of the first world, a left-leaning government had managed to combine economic growth within the capitalist world system with social policies that meaningfully alleviated poverty, garnering widespread support within a liberal democracy. It appeared to Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva and his successor, Dilma Rousseff, that the people on the streets in June 2013 were simply asking for more. But just a few years later, the country would be ruled by the most radically right-wing elected leader in the world, a man who openly called for a return to dictatorship and mass violence. Public services would fall apart as poverty mounted and officials bragged about the state murder of Brazilian citizens. In short, the Brazilian people got the exact opposite of what they appeared to ask for in June 2013. In the past decade, from 2010 to 2020, this kind of story was far from unique. Around the world, humanity witnessed the explosion of mass protests that heralded profound changes. They were experienced as euphoric victory for their participants and met with adulation and optimism in the international press. But years later, after most of the foreign reporters were gone, we see that the uprisings preceded, if not necessarily caused, outcomes that were very different from the goals of the movements. Nowhere did things turn out as planned. In far too many cases, things got much worse, according to the standards articulated by the streets themselves. Indeed, it might even be possible to tell the story of that decade as the story of mass protests and their unexpected consequences. At the risk of appearing overambitious, this book will attempt to do just that. What happens if we try to write the story of the world from 2010 to 2020, guided by one puzzling question? How is it possible that so many mass protests apparently led to the opposite of what they asked for? Beginning in Tunisia in 2010, protests rapidly escalated into something much larger and qualitatively different than what either participants or officials had initially expected. With one government overthrown, other movements erupted, either toppling leaders or leading to profound changes across the region, in a process the foreign press dubbed the Arab Spring. By 2013, the Brazilian people and media already had a ready-made set of concepts that could be used to interpret their incipient protest movement. Some outlets ended up calling the June demonstrations the Brazilian Spring. On the night of June 13th, the crowd erupted into a chant as we were tear-gassed. Love is over. Turkey is here. They were referring to protests and repression going on at the same time in Istanbul, 
I put this on Twitter, and in one of my first experiences with the ups and downs of social media, it went viral. Over the next few weeks, I received photos and messages from people in Gezi Park, the site of the Turkish protest, holding signs saying things like, The whole world is São Paulo, and Turkey and Brazil are one. By 2020, after street battles from Chile to Hong Kong, the world had experienced more mass protests in the previous decade than at any other point in human history, exceeding the famous global cycle of contention in the 1960s. But was that right? Was the whole world really São Paulo? Was it actually correct to affirm that everywhere is Tahrir, as an Egyptian slogan had claimed earlier in the decade? I believe that in many places, certainly in Brazil, things would have gone differently if these connections had not been made. Did it make any sense at all to declare there was a spring in Brazil, or even in the Arab world itself? Mass demonstrations in certain places had inspired uprisings elsewhere, both emotionally and in the tactics that were adopted. But local context differed wildly. By taking a truly global approach, we can begin to see which factors were common across many different locations, and which were crucially different. In order to understand what happened during that decade, and to learn from it, we need to pay attention to both. Whether we recognize it or not, whether it appears clearly to the naked eye, we now live in a global system. Even back in 1789, the year of the revolution that would set the terms for so many political movements that came afterward, the rapid changes within France triggered reactions from the rest of the international community. And now, we are far more interdependent. Regardless of the format of this book that you are consuming, digital or physical or audio, it is the product of human labor and physical resources extracted all around the world, just like your clothing and almost everything else we own. There is no coherent way to discuss ambitious political movements without reference to this system. Even before we look closely at this mass protest decade, it is possible to recognize that a certain set of approaches were morally and tactically privileged from 2010 to 2020. To varying degrees, you often heard that these were leaderless, horizontally organized, spontaneous, digitally coordinated mass protests in city streets or public squares. They took forms that were said to prefigure the society they were meant to help bring about. For concepts that may appear unfamiliar, such as horizontalism and prefiguration, and for those that may not, I will attempt to explain how they emerged historically, and how those processes shaped what they mean today. Political struggle does not happen automatically. When human beings experience injustice, a surge of will and energy is required to make the jump to doing something about it, and it is another set of leaps entirely from making that choice to standing up, going outside, and taking a particular set of actions. The steps taken are the result, I believe, of drawing upon a range of things that have been seen or done before in one's own country, or increasingly somewhere else in the world, witnessed perhaps on the internet. And then after a set of actions is taken, it is a very different and quite treacherous journey entirely to correcting the injustice or to improving society. That last part has been tricky to get right since 2010. It was my hope that by carefully analyzing that chain of human decisions and consequences, and by looking at the events of the decade in chronological order, some lessons might emerge. After working on this project for four years, I believe they have. I am not a historian, and I have certainly never carried out a successful revolution. I'm just a journalist, and so I have no lessons to impart on my own. To the extent that I have any skills at all, I am able to recklessly throw myself around the world, tracking down the people that actually know things. I can sit down with them and ask them what they think. For this book, I carried out over 200 interviews in 12 countries, speaking with the people who created the street movements, many of the politicians who had to deal with them, and a lot of the people whose lives were affected. Our conversations varied widely, but I attempted to orient them all around a few apparently naive, almost intentionally stupid questions. What led to the protest explosion? What were its goals? Were they achieved? If they weren't achieved, why not? And then, instead of asking people what they did wrong or wish they would have done differently, I tried to approach follow-up questions in another way. I would often say something like, what would you tell a teenager in Tanzania or Mexico or Kyrgyzstan who may live through a political explosion or might attempt to change life in her country? What lessons would you draw from your own experiences and impart to them? There is a reason for that framing, other than the desire to avoid re-traumatizing or offending people who have made tragic sacrifices in the attempt to build a better world. Looking at the years 2010 to 2020, it's clear that there was a huge amount of desire for changes to the structures that comprise our global system, and that this energy may very well be unleashed again soon. Like so many works of history, this one looks both forward and backward. Given this orientation, people were far more willing to speak about the recent past. And there's an especially good reason for privileging interviews here, for looking closely at these events and understanding how participants felt as they unfolded. Some historians prefer to look at the long durée, explaining social transformations through long-term changes in structures taking place below the surface, rather than individual choices. But revolutionary situations, especially of the type experienced since 2010, compress time and speed up the flow of history. They are moments where the strangest improvisations can suddenly change the course of events, wrote Georgi M. Terlugan, a sociologist of Armenian, Russian, and Ukrainian descent. A century ago, Russian revolutionary Vladimir Lenin apparently said that there are decades when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades happen. But in cities in the 21st century, things move even more quickly than that, notes U.S. political scientist Mark Beisinger, meaning there is little time to process what is happening and reflect on the next course of action. Decisions are made instantly, often based on something already learned in the past, and these decisions really matter. Within these moments of thickened history, 
The short term can play the role of the long term. I was able to do research myself in English, Spanish, Portuguese, and Indonesian, and I relied on the help of partner researchers, journalists, and scholars to carry out interviews and investigations in Arabic, Russian, Ukrainian, Turkish, and Chinese as well. Over the same four years that I carried out interviews, I did my best to ingest the literature produced by scholars and participants. I combined these elements to create a narrative history, focusing on the period between January 1st, 2010, and January 1st, 2020. Of course, decades are constructs, a convenience invented by humanity and imposed upon a far more complex reality. But that is true of language itself, and this particular trick is especially convenient for me because it limits the scope of the investigation, and that time period lines up quite nicely with a concrete set of events. The story begins in Sidi Bouzid, Tunisia, in 2010, and ends at the beginning of 2020 as world history entered a new phase, or at least adopted a different rhythm, due to the arrival of a virus. But I needed to limit myself even further if the project were to remain ambitious, rather than fatally hubristic. We will only look closely at specific phenomena, protests that became so large they shook the foundations of a nation's political system, forcing it to be replaced or undergo rapid changes. Not all of them were failures, and even the failures contained small victories. For reasons that will become clear, all the cases chosen for serious analysis are outside the rich countries of the traditional first world, since the legacies of 1789 and 1917 have served as reference points for so much revolutionary practice. It is important to trace the ways that intellectual history on the left has shaped contemporary protest, even if the desires expressed in recent episodes have fallen all over the political spectrum. In this book, I try to judge protest movements by their own goals, and inevitably, the story will be shaped by what I know best. I pay careful attention to the role of the international media and give special focus to events that I lived through. Whether I like it or not, it is true that I, along with many close friends, have been deeply transformed by the changes in Brazil, and I will have to appear briefly at times within the narrative for it to be honest. Like many of my friends in the country, I've spent countless hours over the last decade trying to understand what happened to me in 2013 and what happened everywhere afterward. Unraveling this mystery about so many mass protests have led to the exact opposite of what they asked for. It's been a personal quest of mine too, and I must explain my relation to it. From 2010 to 2016, I was working as a correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, and I also ran a blog for Folha de São Paulo, Brazil's most important newspaper. After I left, I covered Southeast Asia for the Washington Post, bringing me in contact with two other episodes that are relevant for this study. But the other characters in the story are far more important and much more captivating. Once we get to the end of the decade, we will return directly to the conversations I had with these actors, reflecting on the past and grasping at the future. Part 1. 1. Learning to protest. In the second half of the 20th century, it came to be widely believed that the natural way to respond to social injustice was to take to the streets and protest. The more people, the better. This historical development can only be understood in the context of the emergence of mass media. In several of the world's most advanced capitalist countries, movements seeking political change found themselves overwhelmed by the power of radio, television, and newspaper coverage. Even when explicitly seeking to avoid mass demonstrations as their preferred tactic, they were swept up by the attention granted to them. Media coverage multiplied the effects of their actions in ways the activists had never imagined. Moreover, it transformed the very structure of the movements themselves. The inventions of writing, and then printing, and then the photograph, and finally the development of the ability to reproduce sound and moving images, were all technological leaps that profoundly transformed human society. Indeed, it is likely that the idea of a nation itself was related to the ascendance of the printing press. It is strange to remember this now, but for the vast majority of human history, we could only see what was directly in front of our faces, and the only language we could experience had to be produced by living vocal cords within a few meters of our ears. And this is strictly speaking how our bodies developed to experience life. It made little sense to demonstrate to the entire country with a protest march. If only a tiny percentage of the population was going to see it, then rulers could simply choose to ignore it. Of course, people always had ways to react against ruling elites. These interventions were sometimes violent, or imposed direct costs on the targets. People got killed, property got destroyed, grain was seized by the population, and so on. The academic terminology for the wide set of practices people used in these moments, from the ancient world to the 21st century, is contention, or contentious politics. The U.S. sociologist Charles Tilley noticed that across history, when people protested, they tended to reproduce practices that already existed around them. They drew upon an existing repertoire of contention. That metaphor is fittingly theatrical and musical. There are a set of instruments and routines that a community has, a selection of performances everybody knows, and they use them in an improvised way. In moments of rebellion, people turn to what is familiar, even if something unfamiliar might work much better. In 16th century France, Tilly shows, through an analysis of early national media, that people would have never thought of demonstrating or organizing a rally or strike in the way we do today. They did, however, know how to run a tax collector out of town, force down the price of bread, or put on a charivari, the performance of a group building offensive songs outside the home of a local offender, demanding retribution before they will shut up. Over time, innovation occurs, and new routines of contention emerge as cultures change, but this process is relatively autonomous from the underlying causes of the revolts. In the 1950s and 1960s, a new repertoire of contention was forged through chaotic interactions with the firms that were charged with reporting the news and making profits. In 1951, British pacifists inspired by the Indian revolutionary launched Operation Gandhi. 
They sought the removal of the U.S. military from their country, the end of nuclear weapons, and the withdrawal of the U.K. from NATO. Like black civil rights organizations in the USA, they were a highly disciplined, tightly organized group, committed to nonviolence, and willing to suffer personal consequences. They underwent extensive training and made concerted attempts to present themselves as upstanding citizens, rather than kooky vegetarian eccentrics. In the years just after World War II, pacifists often had that reputation. And like Gandhi himself, they learned that actions unreported by the media would often amount to nothing. In the beginning, they considered two different approaches. The first was to launch a bold umbrella campaign in central London, with the umbrella symbolizing the futility and absurdity of trying to protect oneself from a nuclear explosion. And they would parade with umbrellas in Grosvenor Square, suspend them from balloons over the capital, and carry them as they followed prominent figures from the U.S. around the city. This was seen as too provocative. Instead, they chose to go out to military bases and atomic energy plants far from the city. Their activism took the form of a direct moral appeal to the people they hoped to convert. But out in the middle of nowhere, workers in the military-industrial complex simply ignored them. Local farmers mocked them, and the media didn't send anyone to cover them. The pacifists found this embarrassing and ineffective. They realized they really needed to get people's attention. This may seem obvious to us now, but at the time, they were learning by doing. One thing the pacifists figured out quickly was that they had to explain the meaning of their activities to passersby. They addressed this by making pamphlets. Mass actions had never been on their agenda, both because they knew their causes were unpopular and because absolute discipline was considered essential. But over the next few years, British dissidents, especially a group called the Committee of 100 led by philosopher Bertrand Russell, learned that assembling very large numbers in cities was the best way to make a splash. Shivering in a field somewhere was not. But the shift to mass protests created a troubling problem. How could you maintain strict discipline as numbers swelled? In 1960 in the United States of America, a group of young men founded Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, a left-wing association inspired by the heroic achievements of the black civil rights movement in their country. The largely white students admired campaigns carried out by rock-solid organizations such as CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, and they were horrified by the domestic social conditions that made them necessary. By this time, the United States, a Western European settler colony that rapidly expanded in size after its founding in 1789, had become by far the most powerful nation in the world, and it had never granted full citizenship to its non-white population. Even the limited successes of the black civil rights movement must be understood in the context of the geopolitical situation abroad and the putative commitment to democracy and equality at home. The Soviet Union accused the U.S. of being a fundamentally racist society, and elites in Washington were increasingly embarrassed about proving them correct. Like the U.K., the United States had some of the highest levels of media saturation in history. In a very different context, when people demonstrated in 1960 against another apartheid system in South Africa, a U.S. Cold War ally, authorities simply gunned them down, killing or wounding 250 people in the township of Sharpeville. Students for a Democratic Society had its institutional roots in an old, anti-communist organization, but the members rejected anti-communism as a guiding philosophy or policy. They fiercely opposed U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War, especially the interventions that took the side of colonialism in the Third World. SDS supported civil rights and advocated for a more socialist economy, and it also took aim at an emerging process that affected students more directly. Advanced industrial society in both the capitalist West and the socialist bloc had undergone a profound bureaucratization that pushed individuals far away from the spaces where real decisions were made and away from each other. In their influential 1962 Port Huron statement, SDS members proposed participatory democracy, which would mean that individuals engage directly in decision-making, and a system in which politics has the function of bringing people out of isolation and into community. Objectively speaking, these were some of the richest and most comfortable individuals that had ever lived on planet Earth. They spent their time learning so they could take important jobs in the most powerful nation in the world. But this generation of students often felt like they were little more than cogs in an educational machine that was increasingly integrated into the capitalist military-industrial complex. They were indeed important to the economy, which needed scientists and technicians, and their numbers were inflated by a demographic boom, meaning the balance of power shifted decisively to the young in the 1960s. SDS was not focused on large demonstrations and had rarely thought about interacting with the media. It was a small group aiming to directly organize students without a mass communication strategy. Its members were hesitant to create rigid structures or leadership positions with clear duties, which was a radical deviation from the way older organizations like unions and political parties had always operated. In the first half of the 1960s, SDS grew slowly through face-to-face -face outreach and personal connections as it experimented with new forms of political organization. But in 1965, an unexpected surge of attention engulfed the organization. That fall, even though SDS had declined to lead a set of protests against the Vietnam War, the media chose to focus on the organization. SDS already had a bit of a reputation as an anti-war outfit, so perhaps reporters, always pressed for time, had seen the name somewhere and could use it to tell the story. Writing later, SDS President Todd Gitlin recalled that this pushed a bewildered and incoherent SDS to the center of attention. SDS was suddenly outfitted with a reputation for activity that drastically outdistanced its political reality. The young leftists had always been skeptical of the corporate press as a matter of course, but they very quickly learned that mainstream journalism, embedded within a certain ideological framework and driven by the logic of capital accumulation, could rapidly reframe reality in deeply misleading ways. At the same time, some of them grasped the enormous power available here. 
if they could only counterattack in the press with an elegant set of judo techniques to finesse their own message into mass media channels. For example, one 1965 SDS statement pointed out that we have seen anti-war leaflets photostatted on the front page of newspapers with circulations in the millions. We could have been at the mimeograph for 10 years and not reached as many craftable young men as the press has reached for us in five days. All of this presented two problems. First, who was supposed to do this? SDS didn't have a press office, and its loose, quasi-leaderless structure made it difficult to decide who was supposed to speak for the organization. Rips emerged as the media identified arbitrary spokesmen and celebrities. And secondly, paradoxically, the popularity bestowed on the group created an even bigger issue. SDS was flooded with new members, allowing it to grow at a rate of 300% in a single year. But these new arrivals did not want to join SDS. They wanted to join the organization they had read about in the newspaper, which didn't actually exist. They showed up with longer hair, less ideological commitments, and a strange set of assumptions about the organization. But because of the loose and participatory nature of SDS, there was no formal process for integrating and educating new members. They had paid intentionally little attention to organizational questions. In some cases, the new recruits, who were never actually recruited, simply set up their own new chapter somewhere without ever speaking with the old guard. Gitlin came to the conclusion that both leaderlessness and unexpected, rapid growth spelled the end of the movement. By 1967, some protesters were complaining about structure freaks, those who wanted to have any organization whatsoever. Gitlin eventually came to some conclusions about the way mass media worked and what constituted a story for the modern press. To qualify, the phenomenon at hand would have to be new. It was called the news, after all, and it would have to arrive with intensity and surprise the audience. The media would inevitably choose from a huge assortment of existing facts and illuminate just one of many truths. Furthermore, any story had to be readily comprehensible to the general public. It had to fit into pre-existing categories and correspond to the range of things that people already knew about and considered possible. In other words, it must be comparable to something that has already happened. It must be old at the same time. As the decade wore on, some members of this generation got caught in a perverse feedback loop. The individuals that quite liked media attention sought more of it, consciously or unconsciously adopting tactics that would provoke more coverage. But none of that changed the simple fact that the U.S. government wanted to continue the war in Vietnam and could afford to treat the demonstrators like a noisy minority with frequent help from the press. As mass protest emerged as the predominant instrument of the anti-war movement, the original SDS leadership decided to retreat from the scene and go back to their roots. They had never wanted to privilege street demonstration, nor become a single-issue anti-war shop. They committed themselves to a new initiative called the Economic Research and Action Project, ERAP, and moved into the inner city to organize African-American communities in the United States. Inverting the Old Left The New Left, as SDS and associated groups often like to call themselves, was formed as a reaction to the legacy of the Bolshevik Revolution. This, after all, had been the guiding star for the Old Left, most specifically the Communist Party, which had been influential in the United States in the 1930s and 1940s. But by the end of the 1950s, the old left did not really exist in the United States. It had been smashed by McCarthyism. Everyone who was insufficiently anti-communist was removed from public life in a top-down process, led by the head of the FBI. The same man, J. Edgar Hoover, had also sought to crush black political organizations in the country. The new left in the U.S. was more like a generation of ideological orphans raised on television in one of the most individualist societies on the planet than a reaction against any existing traditions. This certainly shaped the specific contours of their intellectual development, as did the context of the Cold War. They were quick to assert that the dreams of the old left had been perverted by the leaders of the Soviet Union. In many ways, the new organizational approach of this 1960s student left can be seen as a simple inversion of Leninism, the dominant revolutionary practice worldwide since 1917. Writing as an underground dissident opposing the Russian Empire, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov had formulated a set of guidelines for organizing a revolutionary party. What we call Leninism also has robust ideological content. For example, he supported the seizure of the state and the replacement of bourgeois dictatorship with a dictatorship of the proletariat, which would be more democratic than what came before it, since the working class is much bigger than the capitalist ruling class. This was understood to be an imperfect form, a transitional stage on the way to full communism. The most fundamental difference between classical anarchism and this tradition is that anarchists reject this intermediate phase. But as an organizational philosophy, Leninism can be adopted by groups of diverse ideological stripes. Lenin argued for a small vanguard of professional revolutionaries, strictly disciplined and hierarchically organized. Democratic centralism meant that decisions were made democratically. But once the party had made one, everyone would adopt that line and work toward it collectively. If you didn't like it, that was fine. You didn't have to be in the party. There were a couple of reasons for this approach. First, the Russian social democrats were in a life or death struggle with the Tsar and his secret police. This requires a very particular set of skills that must be accumulated through experience and passed on to other trained and committed revolutionaries. And secondly, Lenin was engaged in a desperate struggle against spontaneity, the competing revolutionary current that insisted workers would rise up and create socialism on their own. But for Lenin, socialism is not something that resides in the heart of every human being, only waiting to be discovered. It is the implementation of centuries of scientific advancement and theoretical elaboration. He argued that any purely spontaneous uprising, taking the path of least resistance, would simply adopt the ideology that is dominant in its society at the time. They will grasp at whatever is already in the air. Because the ruling class had a lot more means at its disposal to propagate its ideology, the revolutionary movement would need to be guided by a coherent ideology of its own. Leninism insisted on subordinating means to ends, and individual to party. 
The goal was winning state power and then starting the difficult transition to communism. By the 1960s, SDS believed that the official Marxist-Leninist system of the Soviet Union had congealed into an undemocratic, centralized bureaucracy. The revolutionary means had become its ends. In the USSR, the hierarchical vanguard party was now the state. SDS's approach, perhaps the thing that was truly new about the new left, dictated that they should adopt organizational forms now that they would like to see in the world they wanted to create. The name given to this was prefigurative politics. What you are doing now will prefigure or show a glimpse of the world you want to live in tomorrow. Even ardent defenders of SDS recognized that this created a fundamental tension between organizational forms and the goals of political change. This meant experimenting with anti-hierarchical structures, and it opened them up to criticism that they didn't really care about their demands. Eloquent supporters of this approach admitted that this was somewhat true, that means were important, as well as the ends, but they said they refused to corrupt their movement, which was also about building community for instrumental purposes. Looking back after the new left failed in achieving most of its stated goals, sociologist Winnie Brynus wrote, It is my conviction that the attempt to seek the salvation of the soul in politics, to forge a new definition of politics in which violence, authority, and hierarchy did not reign supreme, is the most unique and powerful legacy of the new left. Like almost everything in Western civilization, prefiguration has roots in the Christian intellectual tradition. Over 1,500 years ago, theologians like Tertullian and St. Augustine looked at elements in the Old Testament that prefigured the arrival of Jesus in the New Testament. For example, Cain, who killed his brother Abel, the shepherd, prefigured the men who would kill Jesus, the shepherd of men, and so on. Over the centuries, the concept evolved from a backward-looking literary practice and was reconfigured into forward-looking practice, something that could be done now to anticipate the end times. In 17th century England, the radical diggers movement, which occupied land and organized strikes, justified its direct action strategy with reference to biblical prophecy. Like the idea of socialism, the logic of prefiguration was the consequence of certain historical developments and intellectual institutions. Back in an imagined state of nature, if you wanted to build yourself a house, it didn't make sense to act while you were cutting down the trees as if you already lived in one. If marauders attacked your village, you should probably not respond by acting the way you hope to live when they are gone. The New Left was not the first to rediscover prefiguration in the modern era. In the 19th century, anarchists active in the First International, Karl Marx was also a member, had asked, How could one expect an egalitarian and free society to emerge out of an authoritarian organization? It is impossible. Rhinus credited both anarchism and the Gandhian radical pacifists as real forerunners of the New Left. This ideological approach dovetailed with, or helped catalyze, a libertarian trend that was in the air in the North Atlantic in the 1960s. Many in the generation born after World War II did not want to be told what to do. As the decade wore on, new sets of practices made the structures developed by black civil rights groups appear relatively authoritarian. It was not just within SDS that some of the original architects of contemporary contention found themselves attacked from below. Even Bertrand Russell, the founder of the Committee of 100, found himself besieged by a group of three young Londoners who baffled him by refusing to leave his flat, forcing the mathematician to call the police to remove them. In his autobiography, he notes that this earned the kids quite a bit of media attention, which may have been all they wanted. Under the Paving Stones Outside of North America, the old left was very much alive. Marxist-Leninist parties comfortably governed most of the Eurasian continent. In the Third World, the official communist organizational model offered the hope of catching up with the world's advanced First World nations and provided an excellent way to carry out the anti-colonial struggle against rapacious European powers. Even some countries that had suppressed local communist parties, such as Egypt under Donald Nasser, received support from the USSR and attempted to implement some parts of the Soviet model. Nasser had become a Third World hero after successfully clawing the Suez Canal back from the colonizers in 1956. By the 1960s, most of North Africa and the Middle East were living under some form of Arab socialism, with Nasser, in charge of by far the most populous country in the Arab world, inspiring widespread pride and hope in the region. He was never a communist, but in the 1960s, Nasser relaxed the repression of the left and then created a Leninist group called the Vanguard Organization to defend his revolution. Meanwhile, Latin America was safely under the indirect control of the radically anti-communist United States government, with the CIA carrying out a military coup in Guatemala in 1954 and Washington offering tacit support for another a decade later in Brazil, rather than tolerate moderate liberal reformists in the hemisphere. But an unlikely 1959 revolution in Cuba had electrified leftists worldwide. In Western Europe, official communist parties aligned with Moscow played major roles in national politics and intellectual life, coming close enough to forming governments after World War II that the CIA chose to intervene behind the scenes. It was on that continent, especially in Germany and France, that 1968 would take on special meaning for the new left outside the United States. But that was a year of uprisings that reverberated across a wide range of national systems. In the history of revolutions, a couple of truisms had already emerged. One is that they are only successful when security forces defect or are defeated in violent conflict. Even if Mao Zedong was being a bit provocative when he said that power grows out of the barrel of a gun, experts agree that he is not so far off. You can't run a country if the biggest army around wants to stop you. Another is that revolutionary opportunities often arise when there are divisions in the ruling class, that is, when elites are fighting amongst themselves. And one more truism is that revolutions are contagious. At least, uprisings tend to cluster around certain moments in time. News of one success spreads to another country, where people try their luck too, 
or revolts happen in response to a major international event, like the end of a war or a financial crisis. The springtime of nations in 1848 was only one of the most famous revolutionary waves. The ends of both world wars cost two more. In France in the 1960s, the radical left-wing students were not orphans like their North American counterparts. They had grown up in dialogue with the powerful Parti Communiste Francais, PCF. The young new left there were often Leninists themselves, but in a different type. They were more likely to support third world revolutionaries, whom they often viewed as the true subjects of world history, the heroic protagonists, pushing human progress forward. Che Guevara and Ho Chi Minh's presence hung over their gatherings on placards or in chants, while the established party, the pro-Soviet PCF, was more focused on the French working class organized in its unions. In West Germany, the Communist Party was illegal, but the other half of the country was run by officials loyal to Moscow. Rudy Deutschke, one of the most prominent student leaders in the West, knew that system well, as he had grown up there. In 1967, the movement radicalized after its raucous demonstration in West Berlin against Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the man installed as leader of Iran after a 1953 CIA-led coup was put down violently, and one student was killed. Duchka emerged as a prominent voice railing against capitalist government bureaucracy, drawing inspiration from protests in the United States, most famously erupting in Berkeley, California, and aligning his own struggle with revolutionary leaders in the Third World. In April 1968, a neo-Nazi, inspired by the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. one week earlier in Tennessee, tried to kill Duchka, sparking a new wave of protests and sit-ins, often targeting symbols of U.S. power. Anti-American protests spread throughout France. European students mounted their own critique of the bureaucratization the U.S. had pressured their countries to adopt, which slotted them into predetermined social functions. The media gave the French youth special attention, perhaps because they looked so similar to what already happened in Berkeley and Berlin. Students at Nanterre, demonstrating since March, agitated over relatively quotidian concerns, or rather nocturnal ones. One demand was the freedom to sleep in one another's dormitory rooms, but it was the May invasion and police brutality at the Leeds Sorbonne University that really set things off. State violence had already spread to the Metropole during an Arab-led demonstration earlier in the decade, when police massacred 200 opponents of France's policy in Algeria. The incursion into the Sorbonne, however, was a violation of middle-class values that shocked French society far more than the murder of large numbers of Arabs on the street. The May explosion that followed combined some classic French revolutionary practices, barricades, throwing rocks at cops, strikes, with innovative routines and prefigurative practices. A hardcore engaged in a cycle of intentional escalation provocation in which committed militants would fight cops or fascists and invite spectacular repression, immediately followed by a large and legal demonstration. The occupation was one of the most important new forms of contention that spread in the 1960s, used in Paris as it was in California. Students took over campus facilities and elected leaders to an ad hoc Sorbonne occupation committee. The PCF and unions joined the revolt, while new forms of life appeared to flower behind the barricades and in occupied spaces. Participants felt their assigned functions in capitalist society, students, workers, farmers, fall away, as human beings interacted directly as human beings. They lived in community and experimented with direct democracy. When describing these days, French youths resorted to poetic language, often reserved for romantic love or ecstatic spiritual or psychedelic experiences. Observers perceived echoes of older practices in the Western tradition, pointing to the late medieval carnival, in which hierarchies were temporarily overturned in moments of euphoric liberation. Artists and bohemians, including members of a previously and intentionally obscure avant-garde group called the Situationist International, sprang into action and found their own revolutionary functions, covering the city in posters or libertarian slogans. It is prohibited to prohibit, said one. Be realistic, demand the impossible, said another, while a famous slogan proclaimed that chaos could spontaneously generate utopia. Sous les pavés, la plage, under the paving stones, the beach. Many of the French students praised Mao's cultural revolution, which was ongoing, whether they really understood the faraway events or not. Closer to home in Czechoslovakia, the Prague Spring also erupted in 1968. In both socialist countries, the dominant Marxist-Leninist parties were rocked by youth uprisings that challenged their bureaucratic structures. Even in the communist world, 1968 was a year of revolt against administered life and the conservatism of the old left. Mao Zedong had instigated the chaos on purpose to destabilize the party he had helped build. The leader of the People's Republic of China sought to ride the upsurge of energy with charismatic leadership and the elevation of a little red book of powerful but indeterminate aphorisms without complete success. When things got too hot, Mao was able to rely on the military and reestablish control while maintaining his position as an enormous Greece in the Communist Party of China, CPC, for the rest of his life. Things went rather differently for Alexander Dubček, the communist leader of Czechoslovakia, who sought a liberal destalinization of the national system of the Warsaw Pact country. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev had begun the destalinization process in 1956, much to the chagrin of Mao himself. Leonid Brezhnev, the unimaginative and pliable leader imposed by the Soviet bureaucracy in 1964, chose to respond with force. He sent in the troops, and rather than addressing the inflexibility of the party model across the entire Soviet space, he doubled down. Thus began a long period of relative stability for the USSR, and of absolute comfort for the high-ranking nomenclatura, party members with official titles. Egypt had its own in 1968, further driving home the extent to which that year unleashed a global wave of revolutionary contention. But circumstances there were very different. Students and workers in one of the cradles of human civilization were not responding to the horrors of U.S. militarism in Vietnam or to communist inflexibility. 
They were reacting to the shock of the loss to Israel in the Six-Day War and the consequent crisis of legitimacy for the Nasser government. Since the 1950s, the United States of America had cultivated both Saudi Arabia and Israel as regional counterweights to the strength of Arab socialism and nationalism. At their most ambitious, those projects sought to bring all the peoples of the Arab world together into a single force, which would, like almost all of the Third World Movement, oppose imperialism and seek to reshape the global capitalist order. Saudi Arabia, a reactionary monarchy founded in 1932 in the oil-rich Arabian Peninsula, stood in stark contrast to the secular republics in the region, and proud Nasserists naturally saw the Zionist project as an affront to Arab independence, the last gasp of a Western colonial phantom that had no place in a truly free region. Losing a war to the tiny Israel, whether it had the backing of the United States or not, was a profound blow. The Nasser government had combined domestic repression with full employment and soaring geopolitical ambitions. With the latter suddenly deflated, the system ran out of there too. Egyptians were calling that time report walking around dumbfounded, unsure of what they could believe anymore. After that war, both students and workers took aim at the other parts of the bargain. Twice in 1968, Egyptians confronted the military police apparatus in the streets. But the 1968 constellation of uprisings did not topple governments, not even after Paris was brought to a standstill for weeks. The PCF used the leverage generated by the unrest to demand a significant wage increase for French workers, reflecting both the desires of the Union rank and file and the limited ambitions of Moscow, which had no interest in revoking Washington by making a bid for revolution in Western Europe. When the old left succeeded in getting the workers more money, this quickly took the steam out of the utopian student movement. Supporters of Charles de Gaulle were able to put on demonstrations of their own on May 30th. By June 30th, moderate forces won an election comfortably, though de Gaulle ultimately resigned a year later. French-Austrian philosopher Andre Gortz asked, in a 1968 New Left Review essay, why the French people would award the revolutionaries with votes after they proved unable to assert their power to govern when they had the chance. He had noticed that you could only surprise the ruling class with a spontaneous explosion once. Effective prefiguration, as he saw it, showed the masses that your concrete movement was worth buying into and what it was capable of achieving. That did not happen. By November 1969, when leftists tried to organize a demonstration against Vietnam, the government simply forbade them. Dissidents reported a feeling of asphyxia. Over the years that followed, many of the revolutionaries watched in horror as the events were redefined and reinterpreted until they were unrecognizable. No one had planned May 1968, and no one could credibly claim to speak for the uprising. Some of the class of 1968 had graduated to establishment positions in bourgeois Parisian society, and these voices tended to see May as a dream that had eventually come true rather than a failed revolution. So when French television stations asked Soissons Without, literally 60 years, to explain what had happened, they called upon these respectable or eloquent figures who, whether this was intentional or not, reflected the dominant values in France in the 1970s and 1980s. The actual spark for the revolt had been the Vietnam War, and its initial targets were clear, capitalism, U.S. imperialism, and Charles de Gaulle. But a narrative took shape that claimed the events were actually about individualism and self-expression, not collective action. They were about the liberation of desire, not humanity. Though almost no one had elected to identify as a student or youth back in 1968, as workers or Jews or militants or Maoists, yes, the story was now that the uprising was actually about affirming these identities. Some saw watching the television rather than appearing on it, fell into a deep depression. How would I know without my own evidence, one revolutionary asked, that these years actually existed? Throughout the First World, especially the United States, the organizational approach developed by the New Left became more and more popular in progressive circles, most notably in those focusing on gender and minority identities. These experiments had their vocal detractors. In an iconoclastic 1972 essay, feminist activist and theorist Joe Freeman denounced the tyranny of structurelessness. That is, she claimed that when a movement insists it has no leaders, they emerge anyway, except there are no fair and transparent mechanisms to select or remove those leaders. Often a small clique of friends or the original members of a group end up exercising de facto power with no accountability. Raymond blames putative structurelessness for holding back the women's liberation movement in the 1970s and making it impossible to achieve real wins. Later in the decade, the battle over the old left played out again, this time in the rapidly expanding field of consumer culture. This took place in a tiny corner of rock and roll between two early punk bands managed by the same man. Malcolm McLaren, a British art school impresario influenced by the avant-garde and the legacy of May 1968 in Paris, knew that he wanted his first group, the New York Dolls, to shock audiences. They already had a reputation for performing in drag, but he wanted to go further. So for a 1975 tour, he dressed them in red jumpsuits designed by his partner, Vivienne Westwood, and had them perform in front of a big, communist, hammer and sickle flag. This was too much. Guitarist Sylvain Sylvain reflected on the reaction. In America, you can be gay, you can be a drug addict, but you cannot be a communist, he said. It kamikaze our whole thing. We crossed the line one too many times. The New York Dolls had become his prototype of testing public reaction. For his next band, formed to promote the sex clothing shop he ran with Westwood in London, McLaren picked out another radical political ideology from history. The Sex Pistols would be anarchist, and so they would not be joining a movement with real armies, economies, and geopolitical power locked in conflict with the West. When McLaren drew on the ideology of the new left as he understood it, and especially France's situationist international, he found much to like in the elements that laughed at discipline and authority, were confrontationally anti-hierarchical, and refused to ever make concrete demands. The idea instead was a total negation of this society, a voice that denied all social facts, 
and in that denial, affirmed that everything was possible. The myth of the Maurerfall. It would not be long before the hammer and sickle stopped representing real geopolitical power, across Europe at least, when all those communist countries simply disappeared. The fall of the Soviet Union stunned the world, and the rapid collapse of allied socialist states shaped the way a generation would approach the waves of history that would crash upon them afterward. All that happened on TV. Viewers in Los Angeles or London or Lima could watch crowds of protesters surge in Germany. They could see the hated Berliner Mauer, the Berlin Wall, torn to pieces. They could follow along as that country reunited and emerged triumphant at the 1990 FIFA World Cup in Rome. Of course, the North Atlantic powers and the influential media outlets that broadly shared their worldview had reason to feel triumphant too. Suddenly and unexpectedly, they had won the Cold War, and the victory was delivered not by conflict, but by the apparently spontaneous uprising of the people. As they framed and told the story, they privileged elements that confirmed some of their deepest assumptions. History might take a long time to get there, but it was arriving at its natural destination. And indeed, Europeans suffering under communist rule had protested, demanding changes, and Germany took its place once more as a global power. But quite a lot of other things happened too. Mikhail Gorbachev, a true believer in the socialist project, had risen to leadership of the Soviet Union by winning at the game of Soviet bureaucracy. During the long rule of Leonid Brezhnev, 1964-1982, the nomenclatura had cemented their power in the system. Very few people, not even convinced anti-communists like Henry Kissinger and Francis Fukuyama, thought the system was going to fall apart. It is true that Washington became more confrontational in the 1980s, but things like Ronald Reagan's famous Star Wars program had little to do with the end of the Bolshevik project. Far more important was that Gorbachev, a man who revered Lenin, also believed that the 15 Soviet republics and seven other Warsaw Pact member nations could reintegrate with the West into a new global system. Historians are still working to explain why the Soviet Union collapsed like it did. Global superpowers don't usually disappear overnight. We know that the economy was riven with contradictions and lagged behind the world's most advanced countries. We know that the political system was inflexible, and we know that the party had used repression to construct and maintain political power. But all three of these things were true and remain true in many other countries that go right on existing. They might be true for the vast majority of governments on the planet. But we also know that the people who rushed into the streets in 1989 to 1991 were not as a rule clamoring for the arrival of capitalism. Even in East Germany, many of them believed a reformed and improved socialism would be on the way. It is only partially true that this popular surge of energy contributed to the collapse of the system. And it is entirely wrong to claim that the citizens of post-communist countries got the freedom and democracy that was promised to them. The process that led to the end of the USSR started at the top, driven by Gorbachev and a small group of elite reformers. Perestroika, or Reconstruction, was aimed at increasing industrial production and rooting out corruption, which necessarily entailed confronting the nomenclatura. But a velvet purge, unlike the purges in the 1930s no one was getting killed, put wily mid-level bureaucrats on the defensive, and the collapse of the command economy structure cut off the flows of profits and wages, sustaining the system. It was bureaucrats who really reacted to their change in fortunes, not the workers who often kept going to work without getting paid. The nomenclatura at the national level seized the assets and territories they controlled, and Gorbachev refused to use force to stop them. As Russian historian Vladislav Zubak puts it, the USSR met its end at the hand of its own leadership. At the beginning of the reform process, elites encouraged nationalist sentiment in order to undermine the nomenclatura. The former was far more successful than anyone planned, and the latter didn't happen at all. In many republics, practically no popular demonstrations took place. The mass protests that did occur largely happened after the system was already falling apart, and Moscow could have easily put them down if it wished. East German officials, who really believed in the socialist project they had spent four decades building, were horrified at the lack of leadership coming from Russia. The transition after the wall fell, after the Mauer fall, was bumpy for many East Germans, but they could rely on West Germany, one of the richest countries in human history, to spend two trillion euros to integrate them into its expanded state structures. Much of the rest of the post-communist population got war or devastating poverty instead. In the first few years of the 1990s, violence broke out in Croatia, Chechnya, Moldova, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Tajikistan, Armenia, and Bosnia, killing hundreds of thousands of people. There were going to be economic problems no matter what happened, but the leaders in Moscow, encouraged by Washington, embarked upon economic shock therapy. After elected lawmakers tried to stop him, President Boris Yeltsin, a close ally of Washington, illegally dissolved the Russian legislature and then sent tanks to shell the parliament building. Russian elites rapidly privatized Soviet assets and removed controls on prices. This was the capitalist version of Under the Stones, the Beach. Once the command economy had been shocked to death, functioning markets would simply grow from the rubble. This did not happen. Instead, Russia experienced a more severe rise in mortality than had ever been seen during peacetime in a modern society. Almost everywhere it was tried, shock therapy led to a deep and long recession, along with huge drops in indicators for education, poverty, and health. By 1995, 45% of people in 18 post-communist countries studied by the World Bank were living under the poverty line of $4 a day and the poverty hit children especially hard. Before the transition, the poverty rate was 4%. As late as 2015, the average real income of 99% of Russians was lower than it had been in 1991. Central Asia fared even worse. In countries like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Kyrgyzstan, the poverty rates jumped higher than 60%. The collapse of the Soviet economic system vastly increased inequality and poverty, but it did not change who had the remaining assets. 
those stayed with the former nomenclatura and their cronies, who quickly became a new class now called oligarchs. The name given to the process that emerged in the 1990s, by which the entire world seemed to be integrating into a single capitalist system, was globalization. Harvard historian Arna Westad has claimed that a better name for what really happened is Americanization. The United States had succeeded in shaping a global economic system and establishing itself as its hegemon. Americanization could be felt in the political economic sphere as well as the cultural. The production of entertainment and knowledge that took place in Hollywood studios or New York newsrooms became influential for an unprecedented number of global consumers. For sociologist Georgi M. Derlugian, who watched carefully as the old system fell apart in his native Caucasus region, globalization signified the revival of an old idea about automatic human progress in liberal capitalist form. It was the latest technological embodiment of the Hegelian universal spirit pursuing its self-realizing plan. Concretely, globalization was simply the interrelated consequences of the collapse of the former developmentalist states. Neo. Decades before the Soviet Union crumbled, the Third World Movement had fallen apart. Nasser died unexpectedly in 1970, and his successor, Anwar Sadat, soon found it served his purposes to abandon anti-imperialism for an alliance of convenience with the world's richest country. Earlier in Indonesia, one of its founding fathers and leading lights, President Sukarno, was shunted aside as the United States assisted the military in seizing power and carrying out the intentional murder of approximately one million people. Indonesia's capital, Jakarta, became shorthand for slaughters carried out by anti-leftist regimes across the world, especially in Latin America. But the Third World Movement was always a forward-looking, optimistic project that sought to effect true decolonization across the international system and allow the vast majority of the world's population to take its rightful place alongside the rich countries rather than perpetually developing behind them. So in the early 1970s, these countries tried to wield the tools of the global system against itself. The New International Economic Order, NIEO, was an attempt to use the UN, where Third World countries clearly had a majority, to redress economic injustices and level the playing field. First World leaders reacted with horror to the idea of the end of North Atlantic dominance of the global system. They found ways to stop NIEO in its tracks, signifying the wane of Third Worldism, by ensuring that the UN, or every country as a vote, remained largely powerless when it came to governing the global economy. Instead, organs like the International Monetary Fund, IMF, and the World Bank, which were controlled by rich countries, would have the power that mattered. The reaction to the NIEO helped set the stage for the neoliberal era. The use of that word, neoliberalism, is contested now in the English language. In recent times, it is most often used by a left wing that is openly opposed to neoliberalism, so it can be perceived as an insult, despite the fact that the word was coined in 1938 by proponents of the neoliberal project. Critics of the term have a point, however, when they claim that it can refer to many things at the same time. But the word must be used in this book, since so many protests around the world over the past few decades self-consciously took aim at neoliberal policies, so it is crucial to break down what we mean when we do so. Neoliberalism operates at several levels, and the first is global. Its early proponents, especially the Geneva School theorists like Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich Hayek, and others who did important work in the Swiss Sea, had a deep appreciation for how the first liberal era had created a worldwide capitalist economy, and they also harbored deep anxieties that the era of mass democracy and decolonization would get in its way. They wanted to impose limits on what national states could do to govern their own resources and economies. It was more important to ensure that an investor in London or New York could buy and sell copper mines in the Congo, for example, than to grant the Congolese people the full power to determine their ownership. Recently, Canadian historian Quinn Slobodian has employed the metaphor of a global encasement of the world's countries, the way the slices of an orange are encased by its peel, to describe these intentional limits on national sovereignty. Secondly, neoliberalism works at the national level, with policies that reduce the size of the welfare state and privilege the ability of markets to set prices above all other economic goals, while assuring everyone that increased growth will make all of this worthwhile. The shock therapy of following the Soviet Union could be seen as a quintessentially neoliberal policy prescript, according to German economist Isabella Weber, although the first experiment with the implementation of radical neoliberal prescriptions came in Chile, after a U.S.-backed coup that ended the presidency and life of democratically elected socialist president Salvador Allende in 1973. The Brazilian dictatorship, despite the best efforts of some neoliberals in both Washington, D.C. and Rio de Janeiro, remained committed to an earlier development model. The state born out of the U.S.-backed military coup in 1964 was active in managing the economy, with the goal of producing advanced goods at home, rather than importing them from rich countries. The center of this push was the industrial base in the state of São Paulo, where metalworker Luis Inácio Lula da Silva rose to the leadership of the proletariat created by this drive for modernization. Crucially, all of this worked out quite well for those same investors in London or New York. And finally, many theorists assert that neoliberalism works at the level of the individual, shaping human beings who think of themselves as autonomous individual firms whose success must be prioritized above all else, maximizing, optimizing, hustling, and striving, rather than existing as part of any community. For the countries of the former third world movement, globalization was the end of their attempt to catch up with the first world through intentional economic upgrading. Those words themselves, third world, have been transformed, in English and French at least, from a thoroughly positive term signifying the subjects of history, the true revolutionaries who inspired the students on the streets in 1968, 
to objects of pity and derision. Meanwhile, far more post-communist citizens fell into third-world conditions than entered the first. 2. Mayara and Fernando Mayara Vivian was born in São Paulo in 1990, as the new global order was taking shape. She grew up in Jardim Celeste, a working-class neighborhood on the outskirts of the megalopolis, not far from the city zoo. Like millions of other Paulistano, she lived in a big, dirty white building, surrounded by other tower blocks in a rough neighborhood. Her mother and her grandmother made ends meet working odd jobs, selling soap, bedding, and cosmetics door-to-door, -door. and things got especially bad after her uncle got laid off from a big printer downtown. But a lot of people had it worse. She knew that. There was always enough to eat, but not by much. Once, she ran away to live with an aunt, mostly because she could afford to buy cream cheese. Outside on the streets, there were nice punks and the bad punks, the skinheads and the gangsters, and Mayara, always a rowdy and gregarious kid, spent a lot of time outside on the streets. In the 1990s, Brazilian democracy was finding its feet once more after decades of military dictatorship. The country was not poor by global standards, but remained far behind rich countries, and was one of the world's most unequal societies. Many white, middle-class Brazilians would never dream of cleaning their own homes or cooking their own food. That was done by struggling women, almost always with darker skin than their employers. Truly wealthy people in Sao Paulo would avoid the streets entirely, cruising around in bulletproof cars or taking helicopters from the top of one of the city's skyscrapers to another, avoiding the traffic and crime below. All of this gave the city a decidedly post-apocalyptic aura, which shocks foreigners and reminds them more of Blade Runner than the girl from Ipanema. From the top of the tall Edificio Italia downtown, named after the country that gave the city a big chunk of its immigrant population, high-rises like Mayara's extend literally as far as the eye can see, in every direction. Mayara got into music and politics very early. In 2003, she attended her first protest on the city's main thoroughfare, Avenida Paulista. They were trying to stop George Bush's war against Iraq. President Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva had just taken over as the country's president and declined to help the U.S. president with the invasion. As Lula tells the story, he told George W. Bush, my only war is on hunger. A former metal worker and union man, his Partido dos Trabalhadores, PT, had built roots in Brazilian society, embraced ideological pluralism and participatory democracy, and was proudly left-wing. But Lula was not going to start an open fight with the United States either. Over the previous century of intervention, most Latin American leaders had learned to avoid those conflicts if they could. It was only after the U.S.-backed coup d'etat against Hugo Chavez in late 2002 that the Venezuelan president became the rare South American leader to take a consistently adversarial stance toward Washington. So it fell on a wider group of protesters in Brazil, mostly on the left, to make the case more forcefully against the invasion. They were not alone, of course. This may have been one of the largest street actions in human history. Over 10 million people protested, from Berlin to Tokyo to Cairo to California. I joined in as a university student, and my roommate got arrested, ending up on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. On the street in São Paulo, Mayana noticed that there was a kind of split among the protesters that were blocking two lanes on Avenida Paulista. On one hand, there were the more organized and traditional left-wing groups, bureaucratic, she called them, and on the other was a group of more raucous and freewheeling kids. She knew what she identified with more, but she wasn't going to be joining any disputes that year. She was only 13. It was remarkable she was there in the first place. Two interrelated historical currents helped pull Mayara onto the streets that day, the anti-globalization movement and Brazilian anarcho-punk. The fall of the Soviet Union had devastated the old left, and in the 1990s, the target of the most visible contentious politics shifted from national governments to international organizations. An assorted group of anarchists, environmentalists, Trotskyists, labor groups, and anti-establishment subcultures came together and took aim at entities like the World Bank, the IMF, and the World Trade Organization. The activists often preferred to be called the alter-globalization movement, since they were not against the idea of a world united. They took issue with a particular way that globalization was taking shape after the end of the Cold War. They wanted a different type of globalization that did not privilege corporate profits and international investors while crushing labor and restricting the sovereignty of countries in the global south. Books like No Logo by Canadian author Naomi Klein, helpfully promoted by the band Radiohead, and magazines like Adbusters, which sought to use the tools of corporate marketing against itself, provided the Anglophone intellectual framework through which a lot of young people understood alter globalization. Their weapon was confrontational mass protest, aimed at stopping the roving meetings of those international organizations. They shot the world in 1999, when tens of thousands of people took to the streets in Seattle to disrupt the meeting of the World Trade Organization. Alongside the loose and diverse coalition of forces, anarchists adopted the black block style, wearing dark clothing, covering their faces, and destroying private property. The protesters overwhelmed local police, who responded with tear gas. During the eruption in Seattle, millions of people relied on indie media, a website founded by activists a few weeks prior. Indie media reflected a radical, anti-authoritarian ethos, built between the neo-anarchist movement and the libertarian ideals of the early internet. Its goal was to allow readers to bypass corporate media, and anyone could publish on the site. The idea of an editor even choosing to accept, reject, or edit anything it published flew in the face of what it stood for. For a generation of curious young people, myself included, indie media is the place where we came of age online. Indie media spread quickly around the world and arrived in Brazil in 2000, with its name translated as the Centro de Media Independente, CMI. 
A small group of volunteers, no one got paid at Indie Media, would meet at a little office in downtown Sao Paulo and bang out articles on dirty old desktop computers. They had cells all around the vast country, from the chilly southern capital of Porto Alegre to the middle of the Amazon. The anti-globalization movement first exploded onto Avenida Paulista in 2001 with the A20, April 20th protest against George Bush's free trade area for the Americas. Mayara was inspired. She wanted to go, but Eleven was too young for even her to hit the streets. Her forays from home in those days were limited to punk shows. Brazilian punk rock music took off in Sao Paulo in the 1980s, and it was dangerous. They sang in Portuguese, and the fans formed gangs. Bands like Hatos de Porau, Olo Seco, and Colera, Basement Rats, Dry Eye, and Cholera, reflected the chaos of Brazil in the last decade of the dictatorship. The violence they were singing about was very real, and it ground down the community. Death and drugs made for shocking content, but began to appear to some Paulistano as a dead end. By the 1990s, a second punk wave arrived, and these younger bands were more likely to reject violence, sing in English, and get actively involved in left-wing politics. There had always been a vague association with anarchism in the Brazilian punk scene, remembers Frederico Freitas, singer in the straight-edge, third-worldist vegan hardcore band Point of No Return. But this second wave was more likely to actually start reading about this stuff, collecting books by 19th-century thinkers like Rudiol, Kropotkin, and Bakunin. Punk music was left-wing and anti-nationalist in Brazil, and it played a major role in bringing anarchism back in the country. Freitas helped found the recurring Verdurada, loosely translated Veggie Fest Party, which was a mix of punk shows and political discussions. Bands would play and then stop for everyone to listen to a feminist speak. Or someone from Brazil's monumental Movimento Sem Ter, MST, the left-wing landless workers' movement that invaded large properties around the country and pushed for radical land reform. The extra vegetarian food would be donated to São Paulo's ample homeless population. Everything at the Verdurada was structured horizontally. No authority, no leaders, and the organizational model was not so different from that of a mosh pit, the kind with a band placed right in front of the churning crowd. Mayara liked bands of both types, and she especially loved Colera, Invasores He Cerebas, Brain Invaders, and the all-woman outfit Menstruação Anarquica, Anarchic Menstruation. The second wave had too many clueless rich kids for her liking, but that could be ignored as long as the music and the politics were good. For her, the world of punk and the associated universe of activist causes offered a kind of second family. To find out what was going on in the scene, she would ask the kids in her neighborhood or head down to the Galeria do Roc, alternative shopping mall, and check out the flyers posted on the walls. Her uncle had a crappy old computer at the house, but to use the internet, she had to wait past midnight when the connection got a bit cheaper. She read Indie Media, of course, when she went online. The ultra-globalization generation was even more anti-authoritarian, even more apparently structuralist, and even more anarchist than any of the dominant protest movements in the 20th century. In the 1960s, the new left had insisted that means also mattered in addition to the ends. David Graeber, the anarchist and anthropologist from the United States who was active in the new protest movement, went even further. In a 2002 essay for New Left Review, he explained that for them, the means were the ends. They were not doing something in order to get something else. The point was what they were doing. He wrote, This is a movement about reinventing democracy. It is not opposed to organization. It is about creating new forms of organization. It is not lacking in ideology. Those new forms of organization are its ideology. It is about creating and enacting horizontal networks instead of top-down structures like states, parties, or corporations. He defended prefigurative politics and celebrated a rich and growing panoply of organizational instruments, all aimed at creating forms of democratic process that allow initiatives to rise from below and attain maximum effective solidarity without stifling dissenting voices, creating leadership positions, or compelling anyone to do anything which they have not freely agreed to do. Like many other people in the movement, Graeber complained that anti-globalization was an entirely inaccurate label imposed by capitalist media. In reality, they were pro-globalization but anti-neoliberal. He wrote, in Argentina or Estonia or Taiwan, it would be possible to say this straight out. We are a movement against neoliberalism. But in the U.S., language is always a problem. The corporate media here is probably the most politically monolithic on the planet. Neoliberalism is all there is to see, the background reality. As a result, the word cannot be used. In Graeber's essay, he offered a novel explanation for the resurgence of anarchist politics. It was the end of the Soviet Union, yes, but not the collapse of the officially Marxist-Leninist states. Anarchists could never be very good at war, he said, but they could flourish in peace. The moment the Cold War ended and war between industrialized powers once again became unthinkable, anarchism reappeared just where it had been at the end of the 19th century, as an international movement at the very center of the revolutionary left. In Brazil, under Lula, anarchism was far from the center of national politics, but a small group of ultra-globalization activists and indie media journalists took part in digitally coordinated global events and reproduced the new language of civil disobedience that Graeber elevated, combining elements of street theater, festival, and what can only be called non-violent warfare. At the World Social Forum in Porto Alegre, young Brazilian activist Rodrigo Nunes found space for a school, training grounds for a carnival of protest, conducted by London's clandestine insurgent rebel clown army. At the turn of the millennium, a different Palestino developed another critical but slightly different approach to the age of globalization. 
Fernando Haddad, a cocksure and handsome young leftist hailing from Brazil's sizable Lebanese community, was working at USP, the University of Sao Paulo, the best college in Latin America. Fernando's grandfather, Habib, was a Greek Orthodox priest who had a reputation for standing up to French colonial authorities. Just after World War II, he decided to take his family on the same path that had been forged by so many, mostly Christian Arabs, over the previous 70 years. He made his way to Brazil and started selling fabrics in downtown Sao Paulo. Like so much of this community, young Fernando excelled at the country's best schools, and he chose to study law, he remembers, after watching his father lose a house in a legal battle. But at university, he gravitated toward politics and student organizations. He wound up part of a weekly Marxist pizza party and discussion group in the hip Pinheiros neighborhood. Haddad found himself on the anti-Stalinist left, but he was never attracted to libertarian opposition to state power in general. Fernando joined the Partido do Trabalhadores, PT, the Workers' Party, while the country was still under its military dictatorship, and then pursued advanced degrees in economics and philosophy. At just 35 years old, he sought to update Marx's class analysis for the era of planetary neoliberalism, writing Em defesa do socialismo on the 150th anniversary of the Communist Manifesto. As he saw it, the collapse of the welfare state and the arrival of neoliberalism meant that leftists in the global south would face serious challenges, but they must not abandon the socialist project, thus the title, In Defense of Socialism. He claimed that social democracy outside of the rich first world was impossible, that the modest gains made by workers in North America and Europe in the 20th century were dependent on extraordinary profits flowing to those countries from the global south. Any attempt to create global social democracy would be ridden with contradictions and end in one of two ways. If it did not turn to explicit socialism, it would fall prey to neoliberalism. The PT came into life in 1980, when industrial workers, along with progressive forces in the Catholic Church, veterans of the Marxist-Leninist, armed guerrilla struggle against the dictatorship, and dissident intellectuals, founded a new mass party. Unlike his brother, Fray Chico, tortured by the secret police in 1975, Lula was never in the powerful Brazilian Communist Party, something that made his union leadership slightly more palatable to the government, but his movement was always proudly left-wing. Over the next two decades, the Workers' Party built up a base of active members who took part in internal decisions. At the same time, changes in the global economy undermined the industrial base that had created Lula's union movement in the first place. After the U.S. government raised interest rates under Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker, Many Latin American countries were plunged into debt crisis, and consequently the Reagan years were sometimes called a lost decade, in which catch-up with the first world was reversed, and factories began to close. When PT candidates made it into government office, they found they had to govern in concert with the local elites who held the real power. The end of the dictatorship had changed the political system, but the economic structure of society remained largely the same as before the 1964 coup. The most ambitious reforms proposed back then were stuck in their tracks by the military takeover, and the new global system made projects like land reform or radical redistribution very hard to imagine. In his book, Haddad wrote that in the neoliberal age, politics would take one of three forms technocracy devoid of political content, authoritarianism, or outright fascism. Representative democracy was obviously in crisis, he recognized, but he insisted that the form must be protected, as it was the best way to defend classes without property. Unlike the younger anarchist left, who wanted to rush forward and get rid of the state entirely, he insisted on a defensive posture. This dying form, the democratic government, must somehow weather the neoliberal storm, and if at all possible, be revitalized. Haddad was deeply worried about the power that media have in bourgeois democracy. It was not only that a particular class of rich people ran the public sphere and chose which topics would be discussed, Market logic also meant a cheapening of information and the impossibility of critical engagement. Capitalist media expels an endless stream of undifferentiated facts. Television was the worst offender. Its content took the same form as the advertisements that made the whole game possible, which sought to provoke the greatest psychological effect in the shortest amount of time. Politics, he lamented, had become marketing. Members of the PT had good reason to be suspicious of media power in general, and in Brazil in particular. The first time that Lula ran for the presidency in 1989, he faced a small-scale information war. It was the first time Brazilians were directly choosing their president since 1960, and Lula seemed to be doing fairly well against playboy maverick Fernando Collor. As the election progressed, delivery companies boycotted the distribution of workers' party materials, meaning the PT had to take their own publications around the country on buses. Pedro Globo, the flagship of the media super conglomerate owned by the billionaire Marinho family, and by far the most important TV channel in the country, where you watch the football and the novella, edited the final debate selectively, to the obvious detriment of the leftist. Collar won and was rapidly impeached for corruption. In 1994 and 1998, Lula lost fair and square to Fernando Enrique Cardoso, or FHC, as everyone calls him. FHC is a genteel academic, the kind of guy who speaks French and wears tweed and is anything but a reactionary. As a sociologist, he worked within the field of dependency theory, which operated from an understanding that rich countries exploit poor countries. But as president, he oversaw a wave of privatizations and the institutionalization of macroeconomic policies that left Brazil's assorted neoliberal think tanks in the country since the early 1980s with little to complain about. Relations with the United States were good under FHC, with a notable exception of a Commerce Department report, accidentally published just before President Bill Clinton came to visit, that said corruption was endemic in Brazil. 
In 2001, Fernando Haddad put academic theory aside to join the world of concrete Brazilian politics. He took a job at City Hall, working for São Paulo Mayor Marta Suplicy. Her family is especially legendary in the city. Her ex-husband, Eduardo Suplicy, is a beloved elder statesman of the left, and her son Supla is a punk rock singer who sports a halo of yellow spot hair. Haddad had matured into something of a Gen X hipster, professorial, but well-connected to the worlds of music and culture, with a bit of a nonchalant and slightly ironic air. As a young government employee, he took a helicopter ride over the poor periferia of the city and was shocked by the sight. A monster, a sea of cement with a state nowhere to be seen, a harsh reality that his middle-class upbringing had never forced him to face. But within the PT, he impressed colleagues with his intelligence, loyalty, and concern for expanding educational opportunities. In 2003, Lula finally entered office as president, and Haddad soon joined the federal administration, leaving bread-and-butter city issues behind. Later that year, municipal issues rocked the country, but far from both Mayara and Fernando in the city of Salvador. The capital of Bahia, the state most famously associated with Afro-Brazilian culture, raised the price of a ride on the bus. A small number of students protested in response. But then, more and more young people joined, until thousands of them were blocking the streets, occupying public vehicles, and apparently getting the support of the public while doing so. Commuters would honk in solidarity, give the kids a thumbs up, or tell the media that the disruption was all worth it. In Salvador, like the rest of Brazil, working-class people put a big chunk of their income toward getting to their jobs and back. And in Bahia, like the rest of the world, the daily grind of braving traffic and cramming into uncomfortable spaces only to go work all day and then come back home again was one of the worst parts of contemporary urban life. Indie media Brazil paid close attention to the little uprising and covered it for the rest of the country. The Student Union in Salvador, strongly linked to the Partido Comunista do Brasil, PCDOB, had played a role in starting the wave of protests, but it grew far too large for them to control. In some cases, protesters insisted on keeping party political flags out of the demonstrations, declaring that the movement should be apartidario, or without a party, non-partisan. But the mayor, who now understood that he had to solve this problem, could hardly negotiate with a sudden leaderless explosion, so he called in the student leaders. After negotiations, they got nine out of the ten things they asked for, but they didn't stop the bus rate hike. This opened a split on the young left in Brazil. For the student leaders and the PCDOB, the movement had used their leverage to get as much as they could, and this was a victory. For the autonomous left, the more anarchist and anti-bureaucratic youth, the communists had done what Stalinists and hierarchical political parties always do. They had spoken for people they had no right to speak for, and they had sold out the street movement in service of maintaining a cozy relationship with politicians. The PCDOB was a Marxist-Leninist party, practicing democratic centralism and tracing its roots back to the Communist Party founded in 1922, and they were loyal members of Lula's ruling coalition, believing their job was to defend this new government. So it is probably true that they were never going to bet on a general insurrection in the first year of left of center rule since the 1960s. The local man with a camera who always showed up at these sort of things, Carlos Pronzato, made a wobbly little documentary about the Salvador protests called A Revolta do Buzu. After it was shown in the glitzy beach city of Florianópolis, local youth got excited and formed the Campaña Pelo Pase Libre, the free fair campaign. Except when these kids took to the streets, they actually pulled it off. After intense street conventions starting in 2004, they got the city government to give up on raising the bus fare. Across the country, the ultra-globalization generation was inspired. In January 2005, at the meeting of the World Social Forum in Porto Alegre, a group of activists created the Movimento Pase Libre, the Free Fair Movement, or MPL. Many of its founders came from indie media. Their goal, the crusade that gave the group its name, was for a Brazil in which no one would ever have to pay for transportation at all. And of course, their method was direct action. Now 15 years old, Mayara became a founding member of the MPL. She made the long trip down to the southern tip of the country to help plan and prepare food. The average age in the group was not much higher than hers. Lucas Legume Monteiro, whose nickname translates to vegetable, was a few years older. Lucas was from a comfortably middle-class family in São Paulo, and despite appearances, Vegetable didn't get the nickname from the vegan punk milieu in which so much of the group mixed socially. He got it playing Magic the Gathering at school, but his family had other links to the punk world. His father was a successful musician, and his stepfather was an old punk, featured on the back cover of the album for a 1982 festival in Sao Paulo, the beginning of the end of the world. At 21 years old in 2005, Vegetable was basically an elder, as far as Mayada was concerned. In its founding Charter of Principles, the MPL declared that it would be a fully independent, autonomous, and horizontal organization. There would be no leaders or specialized roles, and decisions would be made by consensus. Every single member should agree on any course of action. This was definitely not Leninism. In this model, the majority should not be able to force any individual to do something they didn't agree with. This approach was partially inspired by some of their neighbors in South America. In December 2001, the government of Argentina froze the bank accounts of its citizens after the International Monetary Fund halted loans to the country. In response, people banged pots and pans, went on strike, ransacked private businesses, and blocked major roads across the country. After President Fernando de la Rua resigned, Argentines, many made unemployed by the crisis, formed hundreds of neighborhood assemblies, 
filling the vacuum created by state collapse, discussing day-to-day -day problems, and occupying factories. The assemblies adopted horizontalidad, or horizontality, a word that had only recently entered the nation's political vocabulary, for a couple of reasons according to Argentine historian Ezekiel Adamovsky, who proudly took part in the same bank occupation that served as the ad hoc offices for Indy Media. First, the country's traditional and hierarchical structures had failed the people or disappeared, and neither the state nor private companies, nor even the old left-wing parties and unions, could offer a way out of the crisis. Argentina faced a rift in the system of representation, he said. And secondly, paradoxically, the anti-neoliberal movement might have been influenced by anti-state and anti-political discourse since the 1980s in the mainstream press, as elites pushed for neoliberal privatization. In practice, the Asambleas employed horizontality because everyone was at the same level, and no one could decide anything for anyone else. Horizontalism, as a word and as an operating principle, took off globally after a book of the same name by U.S. anarchist theorist Marina Citron was published in 2006, and it names an ideology that privileges fully horizontal organizations as a moral and political imperative. This ideal had existed in the left libertarian and anarchist traditions under different names for years. In Chile, for example, this might be called Asambleismo, or Assembleism, but horizontalism repackaged them in a certain way for the digital age. Many people in this world were influenced by the Italian autonomistas, leftist groups that worked outside the bounds set by the Italian Communist Party after 1968, and developed innovative forms of direct action. But for the members of the Movimento Pase Libre, who often watched documentaries about the radical contention in neighboring Argentina, autonomy meant full independence and self-governance, no funding or direction coming from the outside. The MPL charter proclaimed that it can be said that a horizontal movement is a movement in which everyone is a leader, or where leaders do not exist. For Mayara, all of these principles, as well as their role in creating a better society, were self-evident. She said, it's fundamental. If we are fighting to build a democratic city, we need to have a democratic movement and struggle in a democratic way. This is the end. The discourse in the rich Anglophone world, taking place in the halls of power and on slick corporate media, is very different from the conversations happening on slow-loading websites and in grimy Sao Paulo bars. The first years of Mayara's life, the moment in which Fernando Haddad entered formal politics, the new era born with the death of the Soviet Union, were not experienced as struggle, but as triumph and opportunity. During the 20th century, both major schools of post-enlightenment thought, Marxism and liberalism, had professed that history was going somewhere. They disagreed on the destination, of course. When the Second World, led by Moscow, fell to pieces in the 1990s, liberal democracy appeared to be the only coherent ideological project that resonated across the entire planet. When we talk of liberalism here and throughout the book, we mean the broader philosophical tradition that prioritizes property rights and individual freedoms, not the U.S. meaning that indicates something like progressive or center-left. The idea that history is moving towards something, that it has an ultimate end, can be called teleological, from the Greek word telos, or end. Put simply, the end of the Cold War gave birth to the era of liberal teleology. A political scientist and employee of the U.S. State Department, Francis Fukuyama, asked if we had reached the end of history and grounded his analysis in Hegelian philosophy and an analysis of recent events. But in the English-speaking world, more broadly, a vulgar version of teleological thinking simply assumed that things were going to work out. The West won, and would continue to win because it was superior, more powerful and morally privileged. From now on, things would keep getting better, according to the standards of a liberal capitalist democrat, and one had to simply accept the flow of history rather than fight against it. Back in the 1960s, Martin Luther King Jr. had criticized this type of lazy thinking in his letter from Birmingham jail. Taking aim at the white liberals who seemed to believe that things would simply improve on their own, he attacked the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively, he wrote. We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God. Nevertheless, I feel that during my childhood in California at the end of the 20th century, those assumptions undergirded much of what I learned. Liberal teleology is closely related to something else we might call the ideology of progress. People on television would say, this is the 90s, as if that automatically implied more freedom, progress, feminism, and fun, simply by virtue of being a bigger number than 80s. I can't even count how many times I watched some special about the end of the Cold War that presented events like this. Ronald Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Crowds rushed into the streets and overwhelmed communist elites. David Hasselhoff sang to the people, and everyone lived happily ever after. As I entered university and studied political economy, we began with literature in the field, modernization theory, that assumed global societies would progress through stages on the way to becoming more like the United States. There was no more third world, but rather emerging markets, a term coined at the World Bank in the 1980s, which implies automatic motion at the same time as it places these markets squarely, permanently, in a position of catch-up relative to the rich West. Like almost everything in Western civilization, the concept of historical teleology has its roots in the Christian intellectual tradition. Aristotle discussed teleology, but he was speaking about the purposes of things. It would not have made sense to him to claim that history had an endpoint. For the ancient Greeks, time was not linear. History was cyclical. But in the Abrahamic tradition, 
history would come to an end with salvation. Indeed, the meaning of everything that had ever happened previously would be resolved and defined by that final moment. For those of us who live in the wake of this tradition, time is a line, an arrow pointing to the end times. As European intellectuals began to question their absolute fealty to Christian faith, this understanding of time was transformed, but never discarded. Throughout the age of rationalization and industrialization, the notion of progress took the place of providence, the hand of God. Hegel and Marx provided the most robust and influential accounts of the ways in which history might be understood to move forward through stages without the guiding hand of the Lord. For Marx, class struggle is the engine of history, and the process that pushes humanity through stages. To identify theology as the deep root of all of these systems, and most everything else, is not to discredit them. Every idea has its own history, and there's nothing suspect about movements that seek to give life and its tribulations meaning through their relationship to a higher, noble purpose. But as noted by Karl Lewitt, the German philosopher who traced these intellectual developments back to St. Augustine, we began to assume that progress marches on without having a conscious understanding of why it will do so. In the 1990s, the skies were clear and blue for true believers in the universal liberal project. Everything would be coming up democratic and capitalist. Some analysts began to speak about the reasons for the exceptions to the global democratic trend, such as in the Middle East, turning to some kind of religious or cultural explanations, such as the obedience to authority inherent to the Arab mind. The solution, of course, was that the adoption of neoliberal reforms, which would lead to economic growth, would carry all the world's nations to the promised land. The end of the Cold War also changed the way the United States government approached protests and even revolution. While the Soviet Union was around, Washington often acted as a fundamentally counter-revolutionary power, afraid that any instability would open the door to communism. But in the 1990s, after Russian chaos led to capitalism, the U.S. launched major efforts to remake the world in its own image. By the turn of the millennium, over $700 million a year was spent on democracy promotion. And in 2000, the U.S. government directed a lot of money, not in North American terms, but enough to tip the scales in Serbia, to Otpor, or Resistance, the group that led the successful bulldozer revolution against Slobodan Milosevic that year. Non-governmental organizations, NGOs, made a difference too. In the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, the Soros Foundation, named after the Hungarian-American liberal philanthropist George Soros, helped support Kamara, the local version of Otpor, as did the National Endowment for Democracy. In November 2003, Protesters there brought down President Eduard Shevardnadze, the man who had first run the country in 1972. As a result, Georgia turned west and away from Russia, and the Rose Revolution became the first of many in the region this century to be named after a color. In the years leading up to a terrorist attack on New York City in September 2001, founding neoconservative members of the Project for the New American Century insisted the U.S. could also use its military force to spread democracy. Guns and bombs could be used to give history a little push in the right direction. Many of these men had influential positions in the George W. Bush administration, and when, after the 2003 invasion of Iraq, regular people toppled a statue of the brutal Saddam Hussein, this was sold to viewers back home as another Mauerfall moment, as the obvious continuation of the legacy of the falling of communist regimes. As it turns out, the U.S. military had actually pulled it down for them. That did not stop Fox News and CNN from playing a clip of the statue falling down every 4.4 and 7.5 minutes respectively on that day. It would take years for the political elites in the U.S. to recognize that the invasion had not been a success for liberalism and democracy, or to consider even that Mayara and all those protesters on the streets around the world had been right all along. Learning to Report At the beginning of the 21st century, Jim O'Neill of the Goldman Sachs Investment Bank in the United States came up with the term RIC, that is, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, to name four up-and-coming emerging market economies. They were each great places to put your money. But the term really took off after the eruption of a global financial crisis in 2008. The rich, freewheeling capitalist countries like the US and the UK had seemingly discredited themselves by tanking the global economy in 2008, and the so-called BRICS were taking their place on the world stage. They created a formal organization in 2009, adding South Africa to round out the acronym to BRICS a year later. As President Lula hosted the second summit in Brasilia in 2010, his country turned a lot of heads around the world. Gross domestic product GDP growth that year in Brazil was 7.6%, as the US economy shrank by 2.5%. I was working at the Financial Times in London and paying close attention. I had accidentally become a journalist back in 2007 in Venezuela. I was looking for any work I could get, and I was one of a few people in the newsroom with language skills and experience in South America. My editor, like many of the bigwigs in English language journalism at the time, had cut his teeth covering the fall of communism. In the world's most important outlets, the developing world or the emerging markets were often interpreted by men who had more experience in North America or Europe, and whose education, like mine, had been deeply shaped by liberal assumptions. The BRICS appeared to be a set of powers rising on the new tides of truly global capitalism, and while they were not all as democratic as Brazil, all of them, including Russia and China, have become a lot more liberal than they used to be. I arrived in Sao Paulo at the end of 2010. The Financial Times had decided that they needed a second correspondent to beep up their Brazil coverage. The booming country was set to host the 2014 FIFA World Cup and had just won the right to host the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. I came to write about the rise of a new global power, a democratic Brazil that was growing and thriving under Lula. The ascent was not perfectly smooth. 
Just after Rio won the right to host the Olympics, drug traffickers in one of the city's famous favela communities shot down a police helicopter. I knew that as a correspondent, I would be tasked with answering embarrassingly gringo-centric questions like, is Brazil ready to host the World Cup? And can Rio really put on the Olympics? And that was part of the job. The reality was that Brazil remained one of the world's most unequal societies, nearly as bad as South Africa had been under apartheid. And the vast chasm separating the rich and the poor was so obvious that no one ever mentioned it. Indeed, that seemed prohibited in polite society. Working people suffered from violence and relied on woefully inadequate public services. But the gains since Lula took over in 2003 had been tremendous. Tens of millions of people had risen out of poverty, even as rich people fared incredibly well too. For a decade, a construction boom in China had meant robust demand for Latin American commodities. With this money coming in, Lula expanded a set of modest but efficient social programs that distributed more gains to the working class. The most famous was Bolsa Familia, a welfare program for poor families that kept their kids vaccinated and in schools. Fernando Haddad continued his ascent in formal politics, becoming Lula's minister of education in 2005. Together they created ProUni, a program that put a generation of working class kids in university. Brazil enjoyed significant global prestige. Lula especially gained favor as the poor kid who made good, won power playing by the rules, and developed friendships all around the world. Brazilian elites and the media they own certainly noticed when Barack Obama famously called him my man and one of the most popular politicians on earth in 2009. Yet this was not the realization of the socialist revolution. It was not even the industrial upgrading policy that had guided so many development projects in the 20th century. It was built on the classic third world practice of extracting the land's raw materials and shipping them off to other countries. But here, it seemed to be working. Inequality was falling and things were getting better. As his second term came to an end, Lula enjoyed a ludicrously high approval rating. 83% of Brazilians supported the president. Not many people had expected this. Progressive reform in the world's fifth largest country by population had been violently halted in 1964 with a U.S.-backed military coup, and no leftist had come close to the presidency since. As Lula finally closed in on electoral victory in 2002, the markets appeared unhappy with the prospect. Every time a poll showed him in the lead, the price of the Brazilian currency, the real, and the value of Brazilian bonds would drop rapidly. Lula wrote a letter to the Brazilian people, even though he was really writing to the representatives of global capital, declaring that he would maintain the basic economic structure established under President FHC. But the investor class was very wary of the Workers' Party. Eight years later, almost everyone in that class was much richer, and the Lulista approach, more stuff for everyone, was looking very good. With a center-left party in power in Brasilia, the countries of South America had made a renewed push for regional integration, and Lula tried to build Brazilian influence in Africa, especially through a set of huge, nationally strategic construction companies. Lula's two terms were a major part of the Pink Tide, a term favored by international journalists to name the arrival of several leftist intergovernments in Latin America. A generation after the fall of authoritarian capitalist military regimes, social democrats or socialists took power in Venezuela, Argentina, Bolivia, Uruguay, Chile, Ecuador, and Paraguay. It was no surprise that democracy would cause such a tide to rise. The era of U.S.-backed coups repressed a genuine desire for reform in Latin America, and since they fought and died to fight illegitimate power rather than exercising it themselves, the left often had moral and intellectual authority. To begin my career as a Brazil correspondent, I applied a technique I perfected in Venezuela. I gave myself a crash course in its language and culture by getting into the local music scene and going out as often as I could. Sao Paulo is a truly international city. It quickly stops mattering if you come from somewhere else. Of course, as a citizen of the world's richest country and a writer for some fancy publications, I got a very different welcome than would be offered to immigrants from Bolivia or Senegal, just as it is a lot easier to be British in Manhattan than it is to be Nicaraguan. But like in New York, after you've lived in a place for a year or two and speak the language, you are basically just another Paulistano. As strange as it may seem, I felt at home very quickly. But my future as a journalist was far from certain. The age of reporters with job security, especially international journalists, was over. The arrival of online advertising and the consequent decimation of newspapers meant that shrinking budgets were increasingly directed to the kinds of activities that generated lots of clicks online. Nuanced global journalism might draw in some readers, but it was simply less cost-efficient than the kind of opinion piece, aggregated blog or listicle, that someone could bang out from a desk. This meant that my field was increasingly dominated by the kinds of young people who would take the plunge and just move somewhere, hoping for things to work out. The work of foreign correspondents always had a tendency to reproduce neo-colonial dynamics, but this made it worse, because it is only a certain kind of young person that can afford to move abroad on a lark. My job, as I understood it, comprised three interrelated but certainly distinct goals. Tell the Brazilian story while remaining faithful to the truth, attempt to build a life in the country where I would remain for many years, and try to somehow construct the kind of long-term career that could support an adult life. If I was lucky, if I could make a splash and get noticed, I had a shot at getting another job when I was done here. As you would expect for a young correspondent, I was tasked with covering the 2010 elections. Lula was done. Brazilian presidents cannot serve more than two consecutive terms. The next Workers' Party candidate, Dilma Rousseff, had a long and impressive story of her own. Born to a Bulgarian immigrant father and a schoolteacher in the state of Minas Gerais, 
the young Vilma became a Marxist guerrilla, seeking to overthrow Brazil's military dictatorship. She was arrested and subjected to horrifying torture. Afterward, she became an economist, served as an administrator in various government positions, and sat on the board of Petrobras, the state-run oil company. She had a reputation as a gruff and competent technocrat. Dilma, as she was referred to, would be Brazil's first woman president. But all that really mattered, as far as the election analysts were concerned, was that Lula was telling the country to vote for her. After his performance, people would vote for whomever he chose as a successor. The election was never even close. The most interesting and unexpected story I did in 2010 was about a clown. Since I didn't grow up there, I didn't know much about the famous performer known as Chiririca. He is the kind of intentionally absurd Latin American television character that was lampooned on The Simpsons, except unlike the bumblebee man, Francisco Everardo Oliveira Silva is fully self-aware and a truly brilliant performer. He had made his name in the 1990s. He claimed to be illiterate, and now he was running for Congress. The campaign was based on a set of flawlessly executed television spots that, of course, went viral online. In one clip, he is a plump, middle-aged man wearing a bright wig, a red hat, colorful trousers, and a bizarre graphic top. He spins around, grinning. He overpronounces and mispronounces his words. I want to be a congressman, to help the people that are most in need, especially my own family, he says. What does a congressman do? In reality, I don't know. But vote for me, and I'll tell you. And then he dropped his famous campaign slogan. Voce no chiririca, pior que tanao fica. Although it lacks the comedic rhyme of the original Portuguese, the translation is simple. Vote for chiririca. It can't get any worse. I cannot overemphasize how genuinely funny all of this was. His target was clear, and his aim, perfect. He was calling the system absurd and corrupt, saying that an idiot from television would do a better job than the people already in Congress. Voting for Chiririca was a way to give the finger to the political establishment. In an interview with Fola de São Paulo, he said that he really wanted to improve Brazil. He also said that he meant what he said. He really didn't know what happens in Congress. And, he said, he really believed that things in Brazilian politics could not get any worse. Chiririca received far more votes than any other congressional candidate in the history of Brazil. He got twice as many votes as the second most popular candidate for the legislature that year. He got double the amount that any real politician received. He entered Congress on January 1st, 2011. Dilma took office on that day too. Like every other Brazilian president, she would have to deal with an unwieldy and unruly coalition in Congress. There were over 20 parties in the legislature in order to actually govern. So having one former clown in there didn't change her job too much. One of the most significant moves of her early administration was an attempt to sweep away corruption without hesitation. When allegations surfaced against some members of her own cabinet, she got rid of them immediately. A number of scandals had dogged Lula's government and indirectly helped both Haddad and Dilma to rise as they took the places of men who fell to accusations. But they'd never really reached the president himself. At the beginning of her term, Dilma's approval ratings hovered around the 70s. In January, in São Paulo, Mayor Gilberto Casab, also a Lebanese Brazilian, raised the price of a bus ride. The Movimento Passe Libre sprang into action yet again. Six years into the existence of the group, there were less than 50 dedicated militants in the MPL, including Mayara. But they managed to get a bunch of kids and punks together, cause some trouble, and get noticed. Over three months, crowds of them marched on or invaded bus stations. They organized catracasos, mass fare evasion, carried out by jumping or breaking the catracas, or turnstiles, and faced down waves of repression from the police, though they failed to stop the price hike. As they often had in the years since their founding, they would encourage kids to go rip down any flags that anyone brought to the streets because of their fundamental opposition to parties and hierarchical organizations. Theirs was an apartidario, or a party, movimento, after all. Vice magazine would soon make a punchy little documentary about the group. But at the beginning of 2011, Brazil was not the site of the uprising that the whole world was watching. 4. More than an uprising. Just before noon, on December 17, 2010, Mohamed Bouazizi walked to the local government building in Sidi Bouzid, Tunisia, poured paint thinner all over his body, and lit it on fire. It was suicide, and it was an act of protest against a specific official. But even his relatives did not agree on what Mohammed really wanted to say, or what he expected to happen next. A scene like that, so horrifying and so moving and so troubling, must be interpreted by the people that it leaves behind. And over the days and weeks that followed, his death would not only take the form of a brazen political statement, but become one of the most important events of contemporary Arab history. Mohammed was 26 and sold fruits and vegetables at the market just a little bit outside the dusty city center. He didn't have a permit, so he was constantly fighting with local authorities. This kind of thing was very common in Sidi Bouzid, a town about 150 miles south of the Mediterranean coast and the capital city Tunis, which sits on the same beautiful strip of land as the ancient city of Carthage. Since the end of Arab socialism, and especially since the 2008 financial crisis, unemployment had been widespread throughout North Africa. His region had a proud reputation for being tough and rebellious since the days when Tunisia was a French colony. The Boazizi family was known for being tough too. As they tell it, Mohammed was the victim of constant harassment. But one inspector, a woman, went too far. She confiscated his scale which he needed to sell his wares. There was no way he could afford a new one. This led to a fight, and she struck him. 
In response, he escalated the situation as high as anyone could go. This tactic, self-immolation, was not unknown in the Tunisian repertoire. A few months earlier in the breezy seaside town of Monastir, another street food vendor had set himself on fire. But there, nothing happened. His death had occurred in a different place, within the very specific structure of this society. Tunisia, a country of around 10 million people nestled between Algeria and Libya, won its independence from Paris in 1956. The young nation's first leader, Habib Bourguiba, was relatively liberal, and women enjoyed more rights there than in most of the region. He did not take the bold, anti-imperialist positions that Nasser did. Bourguiba was running a small country, and he kept his head down on the international front. But as Egypt gained prestige throughout the region, Tunisia, like many Arab countries, took on elements of Nasser's socialist model. The country remained intellectually intertwined with France. French philosopher Michel Foucault taught at the University of Tunis in the late 60s, where he gained a reputation for sexually abusing underage locals. In 1963, Tunisian leftists living in Paris founded the Marxist-Leninist journal Perspective. The events of May 1968 radicalized this group even further, and they launched an Arabic journal aimed at the working class back home. Perspective gave birth to both the Maoist party and one that was aligned with Albania's resolutely Stalinist leader, Enver Oxa. For a while, Brazil's PCDOB had the same orientation. As Tunisia abandoned socialism in favor of free market capitalism starting in the 1970s, leftists and workers responded with a wave of strikes and contentious politics. The army deployed U.S.-supplied helicopters to quell them. Activists reported that the bloody crackdown, which took up to 300 lives, was led by Director of National Security Zine El Abidin Ben Ali. In 1987, the same Ben Ali seized power by declaring Bourguiba medically incapacitated. He then immediately implemented a neoliberal structural adjustment program. For a North African country in the age of neoliberalism and brutal dictatorships, Tunisia had a robust and autonomous set of labor unions in 2010. Unlike the Egyptian Trade Union Federation, ETUF, which had been fully integrated with the state since the time of Nasser, the more independent Tunisian umbrella union, UGTT, still had some bite. The men at the very top got along with the government, but below that level, many union members were radical leftists. Tunisia even had a union of unemployed graduates, the kind of group that had only time on its hands and several bones to pick with the ruling class. A 2008 rebellion in the Gafsa mining region with the slogan, A job is a right, you pack of thieves, had grown outside the control of police and labor officials alike with the assistance of organized leftists. Though neither organization was large in absolute terms, the illegal communist parties that emerged from Perspective, both Wadad, Struggle, and the Tunisian Communist Workers' Party, PCOT, believed that revolution was necessary, if not necessarily imminent, and they had trained their highly disciplined members to prepare for it. Joa Erchana, the daughter of a teacher in the countryside, joined the PCOT while attending university in the capital. They were the group most resolutely opposed to Ben Ali, she remembers, and then immediately got kicked out of school. When the Gafsa rebellion erupted, she was studying in the beach city of Sousse, and she, like her comrades around the country, got directions from the party that they should drop everything and spread the word about the uprising. She had been schooled in how to rally fellow students, how to be arrested, and how to withstand torture. Party members were always at the front of demonstrations, whether they were against Israeli policies in Palestine, their own government, or the capitalist system more generally. They were the kings and queens of the streets, she liked to boast at the time. But in Nada, the relatively moderate Islamist party was a lot more popular, and its leaders were living in exile in London. Center-left secular parties like the opposition Parti Démocratique Progressiste, PDP, also had a significant role in civil society in the years leading up to December 2010. One of Mohamed Bouazizi's cousins, Ali, was a member of the PDP. He posted a video of his cousin's death online and began agitating for more protests in the region. Very quickly, another relative informed local media and Al Jazeera, the well-funded Qatari outlet that had been paying high salaries to experienced journalists and putting together a world-class news operation over the previous few years. Watad and the PCOT once more activated their Leninist cadres, most crucially, the youngest ones. Students got up on the tables during lunch break, telling their classmates that it was time to rise up. They began to graffiti walls across Tunisia with old leftist slogans like work, freedom, and national dignity, or water and bread, yes, Ben Ali, no. They had some help from leftist teachers who were active in schools around the country. Tunisia's small community of bloggers, as well as a new set of people using Facebook, a social network from the United States, spread news of the ongoing clashes in Sidi Bouzid and the surrounding area that, along with Al Jazeera, helped break the official media silence. Ali may have embellished his cousin's story a bit, saying that he was a college graduate and adding the humiliating slap from a female police officer, which probably made Mohamed Bouazizi a more sympathetic martyr. This story spread far and wide. Vast networks of Tunisians, unemployed or underserved and formally unorganized, took action on their own terms. All of the above meant that, unlike most uprisings in this part of the world, the protest wave actually reached the capital a week later, on Christmas Day. In Tunis, one youth group unfurled a large red banner, reproducing a play on the original French phrase from 1968. It read, 
under the paving stones, the rage. Ben Ali's forces cracked down on union members and protesters in the capital, while the government accused Al Jazeera of biased reporting intended to undermine the country. On December 28th, a group of Tunisian attorneys gathered in front of the National Palace of Justice. Lawyers had already protested in the city of Kasserine, but the arrival of this distinguished professional group onto the scene standing tall outside the center of judicial power in Tunis changed the dimensions of the wave of contention. By the final days of 2010, lawyers were protesting in almost a dozen more cities. The organized bourgeoisie was starting to join the revolt. Mohammed Bouazizi's funeral on January 5th attracted thousands of people, and thousands more protested throughout the country. Jawahir did too. She had been doing this for five years now, but this crowd was imbued with a special energy. It felt as if they were making history, and they were not backing down. She was at the front, naturally. The police walked up to them and called her out, along with her seasoned activist friends by name. They said it was time to go home. We are demonstrating peacefully, Jawahir responded, knowing very well that this would be read as a refusal and a provocation. But she wanted to show the people behind her that they were not giving in. The police grabbed her and dragged her across the street until she passed out. She woke up in the police station. They tortured her. They subjected her to the rotisserie chicken, in which you are bound to a wooden pole, hung upside down, and then beaten. It's the exact same thing that the military dictatorship did to Dilma Rousseff in the 1970s. Except in Brazil, they call it the Pauze Arara, the parrot's perch. The overlap in tactics is probably no coincidence. After the U.S. backed military coup in 1964, the Brazilian generals learned dirty tricks from their allies in Washington. But they also closely studied methods developed by the French during counterinsurgency operations in North Africa. The cops started to rip Jawahir's clothes off, but she said she would jump out the window and commit suicide rather than let them touch her. While Jawahir was still in jail, on January 11th, the UGTT mega union announced that all of its members could join a general strike. Ben Ali had now lost organized labor, including the normally pliant leadership at the top. The U.S. ambassador, reporting to President Barack Obama and the foreign policy chief of the European Union, both expressed concern. This was a very big deal, since support from the West had been crucial for maintaining the assorted set of neoliberal authoritarian regimes in place in the Arab world. Amnesty International soon announced that at least 23 people had been killed in the recent uprising. The world was paying attention, and the message being transmitted to most people was that a dictator was cracking down on a diverse set of civilian protesters with a legitimate set of demands. All of this was true, but it's not like it was the first time something like that had ever happened in North Africa or indeed in Tunisia. No one knew quite how this was going to end. Jawahir got out of jail much earlier than she expected. Someone from the UGTT intervened and pressured the police to release her. This was a strange moment. The dictatorship could no longer keep even card-carrying communist feminists in jail after they had clearly broken the law in public. She feared that Ben Ali would soon have his revenge after reconsolidating power unless people stayed in the streets. She knew how every other uprising in her life had ended, but she began to hope that this time, they really had a chance. Next, another set of Tunisian organizations, including the Human Rights League, the Association of Democratic Women, and the Anti-Torture Association, called for an end to violence against the protesters. Ben Ali blamed masked saboteurs for the bloodshed. At the same time, he promised to employ 300,000 university graduates by the end of 2012. This did not work. Protests continued into the night of January 11th, and schools were suspended throughout the country. Tunisians around the world staged another set of demonstrations in support of the revolt back home. On January 12th, the government instituted a night curfew in the capital, and the next day, Ben Ali called for an end to violence against the protesters, and promised not to seek another term as president. This did not work. On January 14th, a group marched from the headquarters of the UGTT to the Ministry of the Interior, and the crowd swelled as it moved through the city. Into the night, people clashed with police directly in front of the presidential palace. The army refused to open fire on the protesters. Ben Ali gathered his family and fled to Saudi Arabia. The president had fallen after 23 years in power. News spread quickly throughout the world. 1,500 miles to the east in Alexandria, Egypt, the Mediterranean city built by Alexander the Great 2,300 years earlier, Hossam el-Hamalawi, was sitting in a small cafe near the sea. Hossam had been a dedicated activist and labor organizer for years, and he was smoking shisha with his friend, a diving instructor. Online, he was known as A-Arabawi, the transcribed version of the Arabic for the Bedouin. He was not actually a nomad from the desert, he was from Cairo, but this handle gave him an easy way to assert his proud Arab identity. Hossam was trying to convince his friend, in vain, to form a diving instructor's union. He wasn't buying it. A noise erupted in the coffee shop, and everyone's eyes turned to the TV. The journalist announced that President Ben Ali had fallen. The place burst into applause, and people began shouting. One man yelled, Mubarak is next! Eighteen days later, protests had been staged in Tahrir Square in the center of Cairo for years, but they were never aimed at President Hosni Mubarak, the man in power since 1981, at least not directly. In 2000, Palestinians began the second intifada, or uprising, against Israeli control over their lives, and supporters in Egypt filled the square in solidarity. 
the Gaza Strip, is just a few hours' drive from the capital, and Israel has been a deeply important issue for Egyptians since the country was founded. As a result of the 1978 Camp David Accords and the Egyptian government's permanent reorientation toward the West, Egypt had been helping the Zionist state to enforce the impenetrable border in closing the Gaza Strip. Then in 2003, protesters filled Tahrir in a failed attempt to stop the invasion and destruction of Iraq. Gihad, a listless young woman from the capital, grew up identifying the very idea of protest with a Palestinian cause and opposition to Western imperialism. Her mother was a doctor, and her father was in the country's expansive armed forces. Well, he really worked in oil exploration, but the army controlled that sector along with many more, and Gihad had a relatively comfortable upbringing. For a time, she was quite devout, donning the headscarf and living as a hijabi. Then she took it off and became more liberal and secular, angering her mother even as she still valued her faith and considered herself a Muslim. She was a precocious, weird teenager, reading too many fantasy novels and preferring to listen to old Lebanese music rather than the rock or pop most of her friends favored as she whiled away her hours on the internet. Gihad felt that support for their more oppressed neighbors brought her entire generation together. She used to sit around all day, hanging out in free Palestine chat rooms, which is where she learned about politics. At the age of 13, she ditched school to go support the Second Intifada, and then she protested the Iraq War in 2003. In the Egyptian repertoire, these were the causes that gave rise to the occupation of Tahrir as the natural performance. Then in 2004, a new organization emerged. It was called Kifaya, or Enough, and owed its existence to rumblings within the Egyptian elite, as well as vibrations unleashed from the West. When Nasser's successor, Anwar Sadat, sought rapprochement with the West, it shocked Moscow. The communist method for maintaining Arab allies, Syria was another, essentially consisted of shoveling money and assistance at them without ever exercising any real control over their states. When Sadat evicted more than 15,000 Soviet advisors, the Egyptian military high command was flabbergasted. Those were the guys supplying all their arms in an ongoing conflict with Israel. In 1973, Sadat tried to take back the Sinai Peninsula, which Egypt had lost to Israel in the 1967 conflict, leading to another full-on war with the Jewish state. Throughout the war, he told U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger his plans, hoping to curry favor with the Americans. Kissinger simply passed the information on to the Israelis. Many in the military believed that Sadat threw away the campaign, and after the war, which the government called a win but many considered a set of lost opportunities, the armed forces felt deeply alienated by the leader, except for the weak air force, led by a loyal man named Hosni Mubarak. Sadat cracked down hard on the left and reversed the land reform that had undergirded Nasser's revolution, handing a lot of property back to the country's feudal class, and began an infita, or opening, that commenced with the deconstruction of Arab socialism in the region's most populous country. The Egyptian people responded with red riots across the nation in 1977. The Muslim Brotherhood, one of the most important Islamist groups in the modern world, had been around since 1928, and was therefore older than the Egyptian Republic itself. The Egyptian government had variously subjected the group to intense repression or used it as a counterweight against the left. But there were smaller, more radical and jihadist groups in the country too. In 1981, one of them murdered Anwar Sadat in front of the whole country, and not too many people cared. Under the country's next president, Hosni Mubarak, the army remained sidelined, and the police, always important in the Egyptian Republic, took on increasing power. Of course, Mubarak maintained the country's pro-Western orientation. The global debt shock in the 1980s, caused by the surprise increase in U.S. Federal Reserve interest rates, hit the region particularly hard. By the middle of the 1980s, Algeria, Jordan, Tunisia, and Egypt were paying 30 to 60% of their export earnings to service debts to rich countries. The IMF, of course, was there to bail them out and push the countries toward free market reform at the same time. The United States and its National Endowment for Democracy, NED, which had also taken on some of the activities pioneered by the CIA, were now promoting more robust capitalism as a force that would bring about democracy in the country. And in 1991, Egypt earned a huge chunk of debt relief in exchange for supporting George H.W. Bush's invasion of Iraq. By the first years of the new millennium, Egypt had privatized billions in assets, which landed in the hands of a new, super-wealthy capitalist class. But neoliberal reforms did not magically deliver democratization as liberal teleologists would have assumed. To the contrary, they required the repression of dissent to be implemented, just as they had in Chile in the 1970s. Unemployment shot up, while the economy was powered more by real estate speculation, remittances from laborers in rich Gulf states like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Bahrain, and the construction of shopping malls than any really productive activity. There was certainly no longer any push to change the very shape of the global economy. As part of his campaign to democratize the Middle East, George W. Bush had been pressing Egypt to show some progress in creating more democratic processes. In response, Mubarak apparently let the Muslim Brotherhood win seats in the next election with the goal of scaring the Americans into backing off. Kefaya, enough, flowered into this small space Mubarak opened for legitimate civil society as well. When Mubarak indicated he might hand the country over to his son, Gamal, it was too much for many people in the establishment. Liberals, Nazarists, secular reformers, Islamists, and Marxists alike united in their opposition to a hereditary Mubarak regime. Gamal, the son of the dictator, was a creature of the elite global business world. He had run a private equity fund in London, 
He surrounded himself with a close group of his cronies, and he had no links to the revolutionary struggles that had built and fought for Egypt, a quality that especially irritated the military. Reflecting global trends at the time, the new Kefaya was non-hierarchical and cross-ideological. Its members published articles and organized rallies, but they never seemed to put real pressure on the government. Mubarak carried on as usual. But then, a wave of wildcat strikes began to take off outside the capital. Inspired by the industrial action, one group of activists based in Cairo attempted to drum up support for a national strike on April 6, 2008, in solidarity with workers in the Nile Delta. They didn't pull it off. That was beyond their organizational capacity. But the group stayed together. The small April 6 youth movement got some attention and some support from U.S.-based NGO Freedom House, in addition to receiving some training in a very different tradition than that of revolutionary socialist Hossam Arabawi El Hamalawi and the leftists in Tunisia. The April 6 movement spoke with Otpor, the Western-backed Serbian group that worked to bring down Slobodan Milosevic in 2000, and adopted the same raised fist as the group's logo. The support from Freedom House, however, caused controversy within the group. But these groups failed to create any major bouts of contention in 2008 or 2009. Then the police killed Khalid Saeed. The nation found out that Khalid Saeed, a regular guy from Alexandria, was dragged from an internet cafe in June 2010 and beaten to death by the police. Citizens across the nation were shocked at the image of his disfigured body going viral online, and he became a symbol of the expansion of brutal police repression to regular people. As a public figure and a martyr from the quiet Cleopatra suburb, he became more innocent and heroic than the real individual had ever been. He was no leftist, nor was he an Islamist radical, and his death incensed liberal and conservative Egyptians alike, who knew very well that Mubarak's police were a threat to almost anyone. Most people had stories of state violence. They had either seen something or had a family member suffer grave injustice. What was new in 2010 was that images of the repression were available for immediate viewing by tens of millions of people, and that they could soon join a page on Facebook to share their collective outrage. Facebook had launched in Arabic in 2009, and by 2010, around a quarter of Egyptians used the internet regularly, especially young people in cities. Wael Bonim, a marketing executive at Google, set up the page, We Are All Khaled Said, and Abdelrahman Mansour, a former Muslim Brotherhood member who had trained a bit as an activist with Hossam Arabawi, helped him run it. The group grew in members and activity throughout the beginnings of the Tunisian uprising. It was the We Are All Khaled Said page that called for a protest on January 25th just 11 days after President Ben Ali fell in Tunisia. But once more, the protest would not be directed at the Egyptian president. They would call for the removal of the interior minister. The date was the national celebration of Egyptian police day, which could allow the rally to emphasize its focus on police brutality and to recall a time when cops had played a far more heroic role in Egyptian history than they did now. Tahrir means liberation in Arabic, and the square was renamed after Egyptians won formal independence. But informal control persisted, and in 1952, 50 police officers died fighting British troops and defending national dignity near the Suez Canal. The contrast with the way the police were acting now was clear. At the planning meetings, Osama and other activists laid out the routes and made preparations. Someone asked, what will we do after we reach Tahrir Square? Everyone burst into laughter. That was not going to happen. On the morning of January 25th, the uprising back in Tunisia was far from finished. When Ben Ali fled, it was not clear what was supposed to happen. Politicians invoked an article of the Constitution, allowing them to appoint one of his allies as president. But this generated more protest. What was left of the government found another article to invoke, and appointed the same man as prime minister, and he sought to form a national unity government. Elites were divided on the next steps. A new set of demonstrations demanded that no one from the previous regime remain in power. And since January 23rd, they had been occupying the Kasbah, the government square in Tunis. On the afternoon of January 25th in Cairo, far more people showed up to the police day protest than anyone expected. Marches broke through the lines of cops who responded with the repression they had been trained to unleash. But they were unprepared for the number of people who came out that day. The protesters charged past them to the square. Hossam was in the back, and he got a call from a comrade up front. There are like a million people here, she said. What are you smoking? Hossam replied. Until he checked videos now circulating on the internet. This was bigger than anything he had ever seen in his life. Jihad had stayed home, not out of fear, but because she didn't think much was going to happen that day. Protests like this at Tahrir had been happening for years, and despite the events in Tunisia, she figured this one would peter out like all the rest. But then she saw the image of a man facing down a police vehicle, impervious to the blast of its water cannon. And something stirred inside her. She knew she was going to join this revolt. She had been drifting for months, unsure what to do with her life after a teaching job that didn't work out. Now, she had a mission. The protest on January 25th finally fizzled out, and the demonstrators went home. But Jihad had plans for Friday. She would be going to the next protest, marked for three days later. Friday is prayer day. As waves of young people and activists made their way toward Tahrir Square on the 28th, they were astounded to see new streams of people coming out of the mosque after ceremonies. Together now they chanted, Bread, freedom, social justice, and the people want the fall of the regime, a demand that not even the seasoned activists had planned to make three days earlier. Some preachers had come out in support of the revolt during Friday prayers, and then 
a huge procession emerged from Imbaba, the poor neighborhood that looks much like a Brazilian favela, and stomped onto the bridge over the Nile to add their numbers to the movement. As protesters from all over Egypt pushed forward, now part of a far larger mass than anyone could have imagined, it felt like something had shifted in the nature of time itself. They had cracked open the structure of reality, and with each step, with each victory against police defenses, with every movement, it felt as if they were literally moving history forward. A weird distortion in the air, or the feeling of magic, this was the kind of language that participants grasped for to describe the sensation. Everything was possible. The armed forces, not the target of the demonstrations, stayed out of the clashes. Some soldiers were seen smiling and hugging demonstrators. Some protesters chanted, The people in the army are one hand. Hossam marched toward the center of town, because today, he was on the front line. He had no sense of how many people were behind him, and so, when they approached the pedestrian bridge looming above, he ran ahead and scurried up so he could look back. He immediately burst into tears. It was a sea of people, and he couldn't even see where it began. He began to exclaim to himself, It is happening! It is happening! It is happening! A few minutes later, he ran into a longtime friend of his, an engineer who had always laughed at Hossam's political engagements. For years, he had worked on a strategy called visualization of dissent, coordinating with striking workers and distributing images of uprisings as widely as possible so that regular people might see themselves in them and imagine they could change the world. Now, he could see them participating in front of his eyes. People had called him a clown for believing in revolution, and yet, they were there with him. He ran into an Islamist friend who always disliked Hossam's political commitments. Then he ran into this man's sister and his mother. He knew he had been right all along. January 28th was relatively spontaneous, and that it came together very quickly, and it was indeed leaderless, horizontally structured, and ideologically diverse. But it was not nonviolent, and this was no longer a protest. A huge mass of Egyptians went to battle with the police that day, and the police lost. Some ripped off their uniforms and scattered into the wind. Protesters burned down over 90 police stations that night. One wave of Egyptians battled cops on the Qasr al-Nil bridge, holding their ground while suspended over the Nile, pushing back, taking losses, and then advancing again until the police simply retreated. At that point, the revolutionaries could have taken anything. They chose to stay in Tadir Square, the default destination for many in the crowd. It was an empty piece of land, and its conquest offered no strategic value, except for its visibility. This had not been planned, and some participants soon questioned why it happened. Would it not have made more sense to actually charge the halls of power and take control? Should a revolutionary movement not seize the television and radio stations so we can stop the regime from broadcasting its propaganda? It was all right there for the taking. But if they did that, who would have been in charge of deciding what to do with them? This was not a movement led by a revolutionary vanguard. It was a huge mass of individuals that just days ago were little more than an event on a Facebook page. In any case, that is not what they did. They took the square, and they stayed there. It was packed with people. The government had shut down telecommunications that day in the hopes of cutting the legs out from under the marchers. This was a mistake. The Cairo is a dense, tightly knit city. For millions of people, Tahrir Square is basically just down the road. If you want to know what is going on with that protest or your son or daughter, you can just walk over. Lots of people did exactly this. After decades of dictatorship, there were very few formal structures in civil society, but there were surely informal structures. The people, or the street, kept everyone abreast of what was going on. Over the next 18 days, Tahrir Square became a carnival of prefiguration and structurelessness, the symbol of the world of Egyptian resistance. Communists and tattooed lesbians broke bread with pious Islamists and children who lived on the street nearby, all of them united in opposition to Mubarak. Laughing, smiling, suffering, sacrificing, and working together, these people created a new mini-society, keeping everyone fed, safe, and healthy. Kihad had never felt more alive in her life. As soon as she arrived, she saw a simple woman in hijab, appearing neither rich nor poor, holding a sign that simply read, Hope. In a few days, Kihad had gone from a state of depression to the experience of the sublime. Like many other people, she went back and forth between her home and the square. Life there felt legendary, it felt mythical, and it felt as if it belonged to a different universe, one that was unforgettable, yet hard to truly believe, one that was profoundly, unimaginably beautiful. Governments in the West didn't know how to respond to all of this. In early February, with Tahrir still packed to the brim, former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair came out to publicly defend longtime ally Hosni Mubarak as immensely courageous and a force for good, mostly because of his friendship with Israel. US President Barack Obama sent veteran diplomat Frank Wisner Jr., the son of Frank Wisner, the man who pioneered the use of covert operations at the CIA in the 1950s to Cairo to represent the State Department and assist with negotiations. Global media, however, did know how to respond. They turned their cameras to Tahrir Square and sent their reporters to Cairo. One reference point appeared immediately. This was 1989, but this time, in the Middle East, the images certainly looked very similar. Radio Free Europe, the US-funded outlet that had been intentionally trying to bring down that wall in the Cold War, reported, not since the fall of the Berlin Wall in November 1989 and the jubilant scenes of East Germans rushing across to the West has the world witnessed such a tidal wave of humanity on the march. The contradictions of the Arab exception were finally working themselves out, and history was finally pushing these countries into the liberal democratic order. 
But who could Western outlets get on TV to explain what was happening and what the movement wanted to achieve? This mass of people had no official representatives. So the journalists chose the people who could explain, ideally in English and ideally in a vocabulary their viewers would appreciate. They were not likely to grab a teenager who lived on the street, addicted to cheap drugs, and put them on The Daily Show, even though some of these kids had fought most greatly against the cops. And they probably were not going to interview a fervent Islamist on CNN, even though the Muslim Brotherhood, which joined late but certainly participated in the revolt, was the largest organized group in the square. There was an elective affinity between media coverage and revolutionary elements with a liberal, pro-Western orientation. The term Arab Spring, applied in January by a U.S. political scientist in Foreign Policy magazine, was widely adopted by the global press, despite the fact that spring has very different connotations on the northern edge of the Sahara Desert, and none of the original protesters used it. It was actually winter, but the concept darkened back to the Prague Spring in communist Czechoslovakia and before that to the 1848 springtime of the peoples across Europe. On Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman spoke with columnist Mona El-Tahawi, who called Mubarak himself the Berlin Wall. On CNN, Anderson Cooper spoke with Wael Konim from Google, who said that the leaders were every single person there. The network then cut to U.S. President Barack Obama, who said that it was nonviolence and moral force that bent the arc of history towards justice once more. Later, the U.S. President offered Poland as a transition model for the Arab world. Commentators were dazzled by the fact that the Internet, U.S.-based social media especially, seemed to have made this all happen. The Western media gave special attention to the euphoric, prefigurative, and ultra-democratic elements within the revolt. Jack Schenker, a Guardian correspondent who lived in the country and knew many revolutionaries well, put it this way. Egyptians built something different from Mubarak country. A different set of borders, a different set of social relations, a different narrative about who they were and what they could do. Everyone, including me, wrote about the inventive food supplies and toilet systems, the hijacked power cables and tented schools, the in-house hairdresser, and exuberant street weddings. For Anglophone readers, all of this appeared as the kind of decentralized and anti-hierarchical movement that could herald open progress, rather than the kinds of dedicated or Leninist revolution that insisted on a given path. No, this was aimed at transforming power, rather than seizing the state. Schenker continues, writing that Egyptian revolutionaries had not viewed power as something just out there to be captured. They've understood it as something diffuse, scattered across complex domestic, regional, and global nodes. It means a reimagination of how power functions, and the opening up of a space in which that reimagination can take place. It means a rejection of rigid hierarchies and ideological blueprints, of charismatic leaders, and the obedience they crave. Inspired by the horizontalidad movements of Latin America over the last two decades, this sort of rhizomatic organization, he said, was the natural outcome of the oppositional activity that had taken place during the Mubarak era. Mahmoud Salem, who had been blogging as Sand Monkey since 2004, and therefore quickly became an accidental and unofficial spokesman for the explosion, put it a different way. We were anarchists without knowing we were anarchists. Mahmoud went to battle at the keyboard and in the streets. He was often on the front lines, intercepting tear gas canisters and throwing them back at the police. He and two friends grabbed a boat and crossed the Nile River to occupy Tahrir Square. And in the end, all of this worked. Of course, the military provided a major assist, a day of savage repression on February 2nd, in which plainclothes thugs rode into the square on camels, convinced many of the country's most important men that Mubarak had to go. On February 11th, the generals refused an order to fire on the people. Mubarak was done. Gihad woke up to the news of a new country being born. After a long night in the square, she'd been napping at home. When Egypt found out that the dictator was gone, a roar erupted through the neighborhoods of the capital, the kind of screaming you only heard when the national football team scored a goal. Osam Al-Arabawi heard the same thing all the way across town, and he couldn't believe it. Everyone was jumping and yelling with joy together. The country was now controlled by SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, which promised to hold democratic elections soon. This is war. Although they are both grouped into the so-called Arab Spring, things in Libya and Syria went differently. They did not live through demonstrations that grew so large that they forced a transformation of power. Unlike the cases we analyze more closely in this book, protest movements in Libya and Syria did not experience that strange shift from quantitative to qualitative change, from numerical growth to full transformation on their own. In both countries, the outcome had little to do with the tactics and ideology of contemporary street contention. Something else happened, something much more familiar to students of history. But the outcomes there profoundly changed the future of mass uprisings, both those already underway and those yet to be born, and so we must explain that distinction. In Tunisia, the first Kasbah protests at the government square ended without complete success, but in February they returned, and the Kasbah II occupation forced the resignation of Ben Ali's old prime minister, and the interim president announced a national constituent assembly to write a new constitution. In Egypt, the sudden fall of Mubarak appeared as a lightning bolt from heaven. As would become increasingly common throughout the decade, Mahmoud Sand Monkey Salem turned to pop culture to explain how many people viewed the possible fall of the leader. It was like the Lord of the Rings, he said, referring to the Hollywood adaptation of the J.R.R. Tolkien story. If you take Tahrir, that is Mordor, and then you automatically bring down Sauron, that is Mubarak. In the movie, once Sauron falls, all the dark magic in the universe simply dissipates, and all the forces of evil disappear. 
That is not what happened. All the same people and all the same structures remained in place, except now, SCAF was in power at the top. Domestically, the military faced a chaotic and mind-bogglingly complex political scene. Who were they supposed to talk to in order to make sure they could keep the revolution happy? How many people were ever actually in the square anyway, and whom did they represent? Empirical analysis of the biggest crowds which came out later indicated that participation was more complex than initial narratives would have suggested. Most people cited economic concerns as their primary motivation, far ahead of democracy. Around 25% of people in the square supported the Muslim Brotherhood, more were middle class rather than poor and unemployed, and a majority got their primary information from television, especially Al Jazeera, rather than the internet. But how much did that actually matter now to the real configuration of power across the country? Most urgently, the government wanted to be able to stop another flood of anarchy from breaking through. It was just over the border that the dam broke first. Since 1969, Libya had been governed by Muammar Gaddafi, a mercurial pan-Africanist revolutionary that spent some time as one of the West's most infamous enemies. More recently, he had made peace with the North Atlantic powers, giving up his weapons of mass destruction and re-establishing relations during the years of the global war on terror. The state he had constructed was fundamentally authoritarian, and it also distributed material benefits to much of the population. In the 2010 United Nations Human Development Index, Libya scored higher than any other African country. Starting in February 2011, some of his longtime opponents in the east of the country began protests, and then an armed uprising. Largely led by tribal, regional, and Islamist forces, rebels seized a number of cities quickly, but government forces began a brutally effective counterattack. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, a security alliance created to counter Soviet influence during the Cold War, elected to implement a no-fly zone to stop Gaddafi from massacring his own people. Gaddafi surely had domestic enemies with very good reasons to want him out of power. He had surely employed systematic repression as he reproduced state power, and he had surely committed crimes against humanity. All of the same was also true for Saddam Hussein, another leader marked for removal by Western forces. Despite its stated intention, the NATO attack in Libya was a regime change operation. Without outside interference, Gaddafi could have easily kept control of the country. To justify military action and the violation of Libyan national sovereignty, the international forces invoked the responsibility to protect, a doctrine developed in the wake of tragedies in Rwanda and Kosovo in the 1990s, with the aim of protecting civilians from things like genocide. But the targets chosen by NATO revealed that the real goal was to overthrow the government. A layperson would have never guessed it, but a no-fly zone actually meant bombing quite a lot of Libya. Fighter jets carried out thousands of airstrikes, killing scores of civilians, and they bombarded Qaddafi's hometown, even though no one in the loyal region needed any protection from the government. NATO simply wanted the leader of the country to fall, and he most certainly did, in dramatic, terrifying fashion. Rebels sodomized Gaddafi with a knife and then uploaded the video to the internet. Anyone in the world could watch the Libyan leader being tortured to death. For many other world leaders, especially but not only the autocrats, these shocking images offered a few lessons. First, if you have weapons of mass destruction, don't give them up. Second, foreign powers will use legitimate or apparently legitimate uprisings as an excuse to push their own agendas. And finally, whatever you do, don't let this kind of uprising win unless you want to end up like Gaddafi. Hillary Clinton, serving as Secretary of State in the United States, left the world with no doubt as to what had happened. Speaking later to a television reporter, she paraphrased Caesar, who as it happened also attacked North Africa. She said, we came, we saw, he died, and left. Neither rising power China nor decadent power Russia liked any of this one bit. Along with Brazil, they had not voted for UN Security Council Resolution 1973, which authorized the no-fly zone. Hu Jintao, leader of the People's Republic of China, called for a ceasefire and said, if military action brings disaster to civilians and causes a humanitarian crisis, then it runs counter to the purpose of the UN resolution. As a result of the NATO operation in Libya, former Russian President Vladimir Putin, who had stepped aside in 2008 to let Dmitry Medvedev run things, decided he must return to the presidency. Previously one of the most eagerly pro-Western leaders in Russian history, he supported Bush's war on terror in the early 2000s and sought to align with the EU and NATO. He was now developing a new security doctrine, based on the idea that the West was not accepting the world as created by the end of the Cold War, and was instead using destabilization and illegal invasions to push for wider and wider influence. In 2011, Dilma Rousseff became the first woman to ever open the UN General Assembly, Brazil always goes first, and used the speech to take aim at problems with the responsibility to protect doctrine, insisting that the use of force should be a last resort. In March 2011, just before the NATO attacks, citizens in Syria began to rise up in protest against President Bashar al-Assad who had been in power since 2000. Originally trained as an ophthalmologist in London, he took over for his father, Hafez, after his older brother died in a car crash. This kind of hereditary succession was a betrayal of the original Republican ideals of the Ba'ath Party, as was the abandonment of socialism for neoliberalism and the government's close identification with certain ethnicities, rather than all Arabs. But under Bashar, the country remained, in rhetoric at least, opposed to the foreign policy of the West. Syria was friendly with Iran, and Bashar al-Assad had let jihadis go to Iraq to fight against the U.S. and British invading forces. Small protests started in Daraa in the south, and they were initially peaceful. The demonstrations were obviously inspired by the events in North Africa, and some Syrians came to believe that Western forces would intervene, as they had in Libya. 
But unlike the situations in Egypt and Tunisia, loyalties in Syria were divided along sectarian lines, and minorities like the Alawites, who made up much of the army high command, and the Shia, often felt that their interests were better served by the government than by the alternative. As the protests began to spread, violent elements appeared alongside peaceful demonstrations. Some Syrian minorities feared that Sunni militants might impose a totalitarian religious regime if they won, or massacre Alawites as they had in the 1970s. Bashar al-Assad was able to convince his security forces to stick with him as he opted for brutal repression. They did not identify the uprising as the people, spontaneously clamoring for the extension of universal rights, but instead viewed these Syrians as representatives of specific, opposing interests. The bloody suppression of the demonstrations led to further radicalization on the part of the rebels. Meanwhile, the leadership in Saudi Arabia, Washington's most important ally in the Arab world, came to the conclusion that it was in its own interest to back Sunni rebels in Syria. Painted on the walls of the ancient nation, regime loyalists delivered a very simple message. It is either Assad, or we will burn the country. Sealed with a kiss. No country had more reason to pray for the arrival of a metaphorical spring than Bahrain, the island nation in the Gulf of Arabia. This is a very hot part of the world, but there is more coastline here than dry sand, more beach than desert, and for centuries, locals were renowned as skilled pearl divers. In 1783, the country was conquered by Sunni Arabs from the peninsula to the west, and the House of Khalifa has ruled Bahrain ever since. As 2011 began, Hamad bin Isa al-Khalifa, a close ally of the House of Saud, ruled as king. Bahrain is majority Shia, and the royal family systematically privileges the Sunni minority and excludes the Shia from the benefits of full citizenship. In Gulf economies shaped by oil exploration, Bahrain was the first country to discover the stuff in the region and will soon be the first to run out. Jobs in state-run companies are all important. The Shia majority is denied positions with strategic value. Rather than allow them to serve in the security services, the ruling family invites people from Sunni countries like Pakistan, Yemen, and Syria to staff the repressive apparatus. As uprisings spread throughout the Arab world, Bahrainis did not just have complaints about economic policy and police brutality or the current leader, but complaints of subjects in young republics like Egypt and Tunisia. They were dealing with the kinds of issues that most European countries had resolved in the days of the original spring back in 1848. An unaccountable monarchy brazenly stepping on the rights of the oppressed majority. The National Assembly, the body created to give some representation to the people, was scrapped in 1975 after Marxists and Islamists formed an alliance to oppose a draconian national security law. Ibrahim Sharif is the unassuming, cheerful leader of Wa'ad, or Promise, a Bahrainian political party born dedicated to the dream of socialist revolution. Historically, Bahrain had one of the strongest left-wing movements in the Gulf, and Sharif is well-steeped in the history of global revolution, from reading a lot and hanging out with aging veterans of the Dofar Rebellion, a failed bid to overthrow the Sultanate of Oman with a long, Che Guevara-style guerrilla war. But in the past few decades, the goals of the Promise Party have been much more modest. Overturning the monarchy and instituting a republic would be far too provocative to next-door powerhouse Saudi Arabia, the thinking went. So the left of center opposition had limited itself to calling for a democratic constitutional monarchy. The royal family would stay, but the people would be granted some basic rights. All of this seemed possible in 2001 when the young then Sheikh Hamad submitted a national action charter outlining a set of moderate reforms for referendum. It was approved by 98% of the population. But Sheikh Hamad decided to interpret this as a mandate to subsequently write an entirely new constitution and keep power for himself. The opposition, leftists like Sharif, the Shia parties, Democrats, anyone who opposed absolute monarchy was floored. They had been played. February 14, 2011 was the 10-year anniversary of this referendum, the last time that people had been able to articulate their will as a nation, and so it was the perfect day for the wave of Arab uprisings to crash onto Bahraini shores. Ibrahim Sharif attended the protest. Usually, it is mostly the Shia who demonstrate, but Wa'ad is a cross-sectarian opposition party, and its Sunni and secular members traditionally join in too. So he headed, a bit unprepared, to Pearl Roundabout, the closest thing to a Tahrir Square that the country had. He was immediately called upon to give a speech, which he did, but it all happened so fast that he barely had time to decide on his message. I don't know what I said, something like, we need to do whatever they did in Egypt. That's the way he remembered it afterward. But the whole thing made it onto YouTube, the video aggregation website hosted by the California technology company Google. Soon after, the leader of the largest Shia party got in touch with him. He planned to go speak with Crown Prince Salman bin Hamad al-Khalifa, but he didn't want to let anyone claim that this was a sectarian uprising. That was a favorite tactic of Sunni elites in the region to dismiss opposition concerns, especially effective when paired with a claim, almost always baseless, that Iran was behind whatever the population was asking for. The Shia wanted to present a united cross-sectarian front, and they wanted Sunni leftists like Ibrahim Sharif to be a visible part of it. Sharif called a meeting of the entire opposition, and they assembled in his quiet suburban home. This uprising, however, would not end with negotiations. Member countries of the Gulf Cooperation Council, GCC, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Kuwait, sent their forces over the bridge into Bahrain on March 14th and surrounded the small island, helping the crown prince to crush the protests and annihilate the opposition. There were far more troops roaming the streets than necessary, and they were terrifying. The opposition was rounded up, 
and authorities cracked down especially hard on Sunnis like Ibrahim Sharif, who had broken ranks and betrayed their putative allies in the ruling Sunni minority. They obliterated the Pearl Roundabout, paving over it in such a way that you can't even find where it used to be, and named the new construction after a historical figure hated by the Shia, a clear slap in the face to the majority. And that was it. There was little outcry in the West, and Arab media largely ignored the crackdown. There was no talk of responsibility to protect or even any real hiccup in relations between the United States and Saudi Arabia or Bahrain. A few things may help explain this. First, Bahrain is the home of the Fifth Fleet. The island hosts a huge U.S. naval base. Washington was not going to countenance the loss of Bahrain to a Shia government, representing the majority of the people that might be friendly with Iran. The foreign policy establishment had already lost Iraq to the Shia after the invasion of that country did not go as planned. Washington's partnership with Saudi Arabia, forged back in the days when both Wahhabism and Zionism were cultivated as the best ways to counter the appeal of secular nationalism and Arab socialism, was too important to let human rights and democracy get in the way. There may have been a deal struck. Washington will keep quiet on Bahrain if the Arab League backs the invasion of Libya. These were the things that Ibrahim Sharif was left to ponder as he was tortured over and over. It didn't make sense what they were doing. They already knew everything. His speech was on the internet. Why were they torturing him? They would ask him, did you say this or not? And he would say, yes, you have the video. He had been in the respectable opposition for decades. He didn't have any secrets. But the assaults continued, and the punishment was not only physical. Every morning the captives would wake up with a portrait of Saudi King Abdullah facing them, and they would be tortured if they didn't kiss it. 5. Around the World The inspirational example of the so-called Arab Spring, and especially the fantastically well-illuminated scenes of the prefigurative carnival in Cairo, was only the beginning of a year of global movements that sought to transform society. In the United States, the world's most powerful nation, and the place where many people learned the meaning of protest back in the era of television, demonstrators took aim at Wall Street. The magazine Adbusters called for a Tahrir Square moment in the U.S., and soon, thousands of people would horizontally encamp outside the center of the global financial system. This would have a profound impact on political culture in the country, largely through its interaction with the media. Todd Gitlin, the early president of SDS and prescient critic of corporate journalism, was there, and David Graeber became one of its most recognizable public intellectuals. But before that, millions of people took to the streets, or took over the streets, in southern Europe. The still unfolding global financial crisis hit these countries especially hard, due to the structure of North Atlantic capitalism and the configuration of the European Union. For regular people, this took the form of austerity and rising unemployment, and young people were shut out of the economy, with Greek and Spanish people taking the worst blows of all. Protests had already erupted in Athens a year earlier, and three people lost their lives. But on May 15th, the newly formed group, Democracia Real Ya, or Real Democracy Now, occupied the Plaza del Sol in Madrid. This was the arrival of the Tahrir model in the West, and the press called them the Indignados, those furious at banks, politicians, and the real-life devastation they had wrought. Over a hundred protest camps sprung up across the country, and Spanish protesters called on more of their Greek brothers and sisters to join the struggle. And they did. A teenager set up a Facebook page to organize a protest at Syntagma Square in downtown Athens, which remained occupied until the summer. Invoking the spirit of Athenian democracy, assemblies sprang up around the country. These groups, especially those affiliated with Democracia Real Ya, were committed to horizontalism and radical participatory democracy. Throughout Spain, protesters set up people's assemblies that sought to come to decisions through full consensus. Anybody was free to join. The contention was not limited to the permanent settlements. During these months, it's possible that up to 3 million Greeks, a third of the population, and 6 million Spaniards out of around 45 million total, participated in a wider set of marches and demonstrations. A vast majority of people in both countries said they agreed with the wider goals of the protest movements. In Spain and Greece, demonstrations pushed the governments to the brink of collapse. But it did not come to that. This was the West, where life is different from Yemen or Egypt. European nations have a different place in the global system, and institutions in these countries were stable enough that a systemic rupture did not occur. The armed forces in NATO countries were certainly not going to abandon the state, however weakened, as the legitimate democratic authority in favor of an amorphous, left-leaning movement, and NATO certainly wasn't going to bomb itself. Life was very difficult for young people in southern Europe after 2008, but few protesters were ready to take up arms, fight, and die for the rejection of EU-style capitalism. The confidence repressive forces, and they certainly exist, had the confidence to allow legal protests to flourish, and the confidence that they could do their job and violently repress the lawbreakers without inviting condemnation from the international community. Unless society actually ground to a halt and the reproduction of the economic system became impossible, the institutions could survive. And they did. The demonstrations got big, very big, but they remained demonstrations. After the summer, the assembly shrank, and then they shrank further. Only unemployed people or students could spend all their time there, which dictated to some extent the demographics of the long-term occupations. And even they found their energy sapped eventually. Within this wave of first-world occupiers, there was a fundamental split over the meaning of the protest camps. For anarchists, they were self-governed communities, operating autonomously from society, a seed that could grow into a world of its own. For others, they were a temporary rallying point, a stage from which to blast out their claims. At Occupy Wall Street, OWS, which began that fall, many aspects of the former didn't really work out, while the latter did. 
Occupy Wall Street, OWS, insisted that all decisions be reached through consensus. At its most extreme, this led to outcomes in which a tiny number of people could block the will of the majority. One day, civil rights pioneer John Lewis arrived, signaling he supported the movement. A congressman in the United States government, this man had marched with Martin Luther King Jr. and helped forge the modern repertoire of contention with his own body back in the 1960s. Most people in the ad hoc assembly wanted to let him speak. Two did not. No particular human being is inherently more valuable than any other, one of them, a white graduate student said. Lewis was not allowed to speak. And then in New York, there were fights over who controlled the all-important social media accounts. The same thing had happened in Spain. Facebook and Twitter were the sites where the demonstrations were defining what they were meant to demonstrate. Occupy Wall Street was tiny compared to other uprisings in a decade. It most definitely was not about to force the end of the First Republic of the United States. Life barely changed for people who went to work every day in downtown Manhattan. But it took place just a short walk from the most powerful media institutions in world history. And after some initial hesitation on the part of papers like the New York Times, they were able to get their message out. A generation that had very rarely heard any left-wing positions articulated suddenly saw them embodied in the real world, and some participants went on to influential media careers. OWS engendered a real discursive shift in the country, but the physical occupation ended with a whimper. I watched all of this from Brazil. I had Facebook and, still I think, MySpace, but those were for keeping tabs on friends from university or high school. For news, I would open my web browser and read the Financial Times, Brazil's Folha de São Paulo, or my new employer, and coincidentally my hometown publication, the Los Angeles Times. Our audience was principally the one million print subscribers in California, but the internet was rapidly changing the way we worked. During Dilma's first year in office, we had no earth-shaking uprising in Brazil, but near my home in downtown São Paulo, on the same road as the old offices of Indie Media Brazil, I could feel the light tremors that connected the streets below me to the spirit of the age. The Movimento Passe Livre protests had taken place earlier that year, though they did nothing to stop the rise in bus fare. In June, there was the Parada Gay, which entirely overwhelmed my block. Globally speaking, São Paulo is a quite tolerant place, and the gay parade was always large. But this year, four million people rushed the street. And there was the Marcha da Macona, or the Marijuana March, which brought together a very diverse group. Mayara was there, of course. Though it wasn't the kind of raucous, directly confrontational event that her MPL organized, there were a lot of people from the autonomous movement on the streets, and the day ended in clashes with cops. Brazil's very small but very well-organized right libertarian movement also put people into the streets that day, but they were not the ones who faced off with the police. Then in October, Ocupa Sampa, that is, Occupy São Paulo, popped up beneath a bridge near City Hall. It was directly inspired by Occupy Wall Street, which was inspired by Tahrir Square, which was inspired by the uprising in Tunisia, and it was more visible than it was well attended. I walked by this part of town all the time, and the tents were always present, even if they were fairly empty. In this part of the world, and that part of the city especially, street life is dominated by crime and violence that far exceed anything in New York or Cairo. This scared away some potential sympathizers. The organizers called themselves Indignados, and said that the movement was about direct democracy, as well as the environment. To explain the encampment, the media turned to Anonymous, the decentralized hacktivist collective, famous for subversive action and for wearing the mask from V for Vendetta, a revolutionary British graphic novel made into a 2005 film in the United States. Under the bridge downtown, however, things looked desolate. The movement did not occupy São Paulo at all. Something like the opposite happened. Ocupa Samba was swallowed up by the darkness of the city center. It was on the other end of the continent, way over on the coast of the Pacific Ocean, that South America was most visibly rocked by the spirit of 2011. The leaders of Chile's student protests disagree on the extent to which the events of that winter were inspired by the so-called Arab Spring. They had originally planned their action for 2010, but it was delayed when an earthquake devastated the country that year. And crucially, these leaders were from organized, long-standing, and intentional student associations. Their contention was planned well in advance. They were not a spontaneous reaction to an episode of police abuse or war or revolution in the region, but they were certainly carried out by student leaders who had been paying attention to the events of 2011, and they were reinterpreted and reproduced by a global media that had gotten used to covering large explosions of progressive, youthful energy. The Pinochet dictatorship, which took shape after the U.S.-backed coup that ended the presidency and life of socialist president Salvador Allende, made life very difficult for students whose parents were not members of the upper crust. True to the spirit of primordial neoliberalism, Pinochet privatized and financialized everything he could, which meant that a lot of families went broke or took on serious debt trying to make it through the educational system. This affected even the comfortable middle classes. The terror unleashed by the junta was effective. There was comparatively little protest in Chile under the dictatorship. One small exception came in 1983 to 1985, when a global economic crisis, the same that affected North Africa so severely, led to a wave of protests. After the vote that ousted Pinochet in 1990, the center-left Concertación, or Coalition of Parties for Democracy, discouraged rowdy activism, afraid that too much trouble could lead to another military coup. So Chile became famous for a conspicuous absence of contentious politics in the years when the rest of Latin America was rocked by rolling waves of anti-neoliberal protests. This changed in 2006 with the Penguin Revolution. 
a new student association, more democratic and horizontal than its predecessors, but still formally structured, submitted a set of proposals to the government that would increase public funding and reduce inequality in education. After this was ignored, the students launched a set of confrontational street protests and then got hundreds of thousands to take part in a sit-in in Santiago. Chile is a neat and tidy country, visibly influenced by the legacy of the English capital that flowed into the country after it won independence from Spain. High school students dressed very formally in black and white uniforms that earned them the nickname of Pinguinos. During the demonstrations, public support for the little penguins reached as high as 87%. And socialist president, Michelle Bachelet, formed an advisory commission which came up with a package of reforms that she took to Congress. But lawmakers would not pass them. Many students learned a lesson that year. You have to negotiate while the movement is still alive. If the energy has already dissipated, at least have no reason to do anything they don't want to do. Five years later in 2011, the same generation launched an altogether more spectacular set of demonstrations. A conservative was now in power. The billionaire businessman, Sebastián Piñera, which meant that progressives didn't have to worry if a bit of contention might be bad for the executive. The protests were organized by elected student leaders at the country's most important universities, and they were aimed at the for-profit, neoliberal education model. They had formal associations, they had resources, often money raised from their families or professors, and they had the attention of a sympathetic media. The country's Mapuche indigenous people also began to embark on a set of active protests in defense of their rights in the same years. But social scientists find that they received far less attention than student actions that took place in the capital. The student leaders disavowed the destruction of property caused by some protesters in hoods, and instead generated the kinds of images that for-profit media loved to reproduce. They employed carnivalesque or even affective tactics, staging parades in their underwear, or putting on kiss-ins. Media in the country and around the world would often highlight that the movement was not affiliated with any party. But there were big exceptions. It was true that Giorgio Jackson, a student leader at the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile, and Gabriel Boric, a rising star at the University of Chile, were not in any of the old left parties. Boric was an indie rock kid with messy hair from the freezing cold far south of the country who helped build an autonomous left non-party group in college. But Camila Vallejo, the president of the student union at the University of Chile, was a member of Chile's communist party, the Partido Comunista de Chile, PCCH. Vallejo was a talented communicator who had been shaped by the party's internal education system. The PCCH had been around since 1912, having survived two right-wing dictatorships. It was tightly structured, and its young members get an education in both Marxism, Leninism, and practical activism. Camila Vallejo got special attention from international media for other reasons. The New York Times gave her a big spread, with a slightly confusing headline, The World's Most Glamorous Revolutionary. Camila certainly dresses well, but she looked a lot more like a leftist college student than anyone who spent a lot of money on clothes. But the article got to its real point with a quote at the end of the first paragraph. She's hot. The students managed to win very wide support from the broader population, but when it came to translating their leverage into policy outcomes, they kept hitting the same wall, said Giorgio Jackson. It was the constitution put into place under Pinochet, and still in effect. The Chilean redemocratization movement had never overcome that major hurdle. By contrast, Brazil adopted a new, relatively progressive constitution in 1988 after the fall of its dictatorship, offering many rights to the population, including free medical care and free public universities, though real-life inequality has often gotten in the way of its more ambitious promises. The 2011 student movement forced Piñera to replace the education minister three different times. He eventually agreed to meet some of their demands. Most importantly, he lowered the interest rates on student loans. But the big structural questions were off the table. There was a split within the movement on how to deal with this, on whether the point was to extract concessions by playing politics, largely favored by party members, or whether the correct move was to expand street actions and radicalize. Back in Brazil, members of the Movimento Pacilibre paid close attention to their comrades in Chile, and they naturally sympathized with the latter group. They favored the more autonomous forces that gained influence as the year wore on. Several members of the MPL went to meet with protesters in Santiago and came back to Sao Paulo with a manual for training students in the art of contention. But Piñera and the rest of the Chilean state stood stubbornly in the way of radical change. As the demonstrations dragged well into 2012, it became clear that despite the largest protests since the fall of the dictatorship, no major victories were imminent. 6. A social network In July 2012, I got an email from another journalist in Sao Paulo. We should go have dinner with a couple big shot reporters from New York, he wrote. They're here looking to meet people. I didn't know who they were, but it was easy to read up on them. David Carr was a media correspondent for the New York Times, who commanded a large following online. Andy Cartman was a journalist at NPR who had just written a book called Distant Witness about his experience using Twitter to report on, and to some extent participate in, the events of the so-called Arab Spring. A few months prior, I had started working in the newsroom of Bola de São Paulo, Brazil's prominent mainstream newspaper, which was organizing their talk. I was now the Brazil correspondent for the LA Times, but that was no longer the kind of gig that was going to get you an office. Despite the historical importance of the LA Times Brazil correspondent position, my predecessor had played a key role before the US-backed 1964 coup. The newspaper was just barely able to keep it alive for me. To fund my work, they partially relied upon a grant from the Ford Foundation, an organization that also had a long relationship to authoritarian regimes in Latin America. 
I worked out a deal with Fola that I would maintain an English language blog on their website called From Brazil, primarily so I could have a place to work that wasn't my little bedroom. At dinner, Car and I got along very well, and I soon felt that he had taken me under his wing. He asked if I had Twitter. He wanted to tag me in a post. No, I said. Well, I had created an account, but never put my name on it. Frankly, that seemed like a strange existence, in which your popularity was quantified in real time in front of the entire world. That was very different from the social networks I'd been on since 2002, Friendster, then MySpace, and Facebook, where you connected with your friends rather than seeking followers. Until that point, social media had played precisely zero role in my professional life. I only dealt with editors, trying my best to show I could cover politics in Brazil, which was never going to be a huge crowd pleaser, well enough to stay in the game. But it made sense that a boost from Car might be a good place to start. I created a public Twitter profile. He was the expert, after all. Their talk for Fola was to be about the power of social media. This made sense for a couple reasons. First, Brazilian corporate media is in almost universal agreement with U.S. media on big geopolitical issues. In countries like Argentina or Mexico, various media platforms view the U.S. as a meddling imperialist power, or at least a very unreliable ally. At Fola, journalists like to tell foreigners that they were the New York Times of Brazil. It made perfect sense that Fola would want to hear from Carr and Carvin. And second, social media was a very important emerging issue. For Western media, the U.S. government, and a wide range of civil society groups around the world, among these, there was near universal agreement that technology in general and social networks like Facebook and Twitter specifically were going to make the world a better place, more free, and more democratic. Of course they would. Technological advances have driven human progress since the time of the Enlightenment. Indeed, the leaps and bounds in technical capacity helped give rise to our idea of progress in the first place. It was only a tiny minority of people, mostly drowned out by cheerleaders for these companies or ignored by well-funded government and non-government organizations, who pointed out that we were not dealing with pure technology, that these were a set of tools and a set of powerful, for-profit firms that had taken shape in very particular historical circumstances. The Internet as we now know it today was created by the United States Armed Forces during the Cold War. The agencies that built its core structures were responsible for keeping groups like Students for a Democratic Society under surveillance and assisting counterinsurgency efforts in places like Vietnam. Domestically, the computers gave rise to a network allowing communications between researchers in the private and public sectors. Perhaps even more important than its roots in the U.S. military-industrial complex, however, was the time and place that regular people began to move parts of their lives online. The Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton administrations privatized the machine world into corporate America. Nothing was more natural for the politicians of this era. Public ownership was seen as barbaric, if not outright un-American. So for-profit firms would control the computers and the built environment of the online experience. One could very easily imagine a different internet if it had been built by a different country, France, Vietnam, Iraq, or even at a different moment in U.S. history. But in the first two decades of the 21st century, the vast majority of the digital experience took place in spaces engineered and controlled by U.S. corporations. As more and more of the world gained access to the network of machines, starting of course with the wealthy and especially young segments of the world population, North American users became a minority. But the entire ecosystem remained profoundly shaped by these firms. The companies often arose in Silicon Valley, a region of California where government contracts and good universities allowed for physical infrastructure to flourish in suburbs in the San Francisco Bay Area. Culturally, this new corner of U.S. capitalism was shaped by free market libertarian ideals, as well as a version of New Age individualist utopianism that had some roots in the new left. According to one prominent string of thought, decentralization and the destruction of all hierarchies that accompanied the advance of network technology would distribute power, and it would mean democratization. Some took this very literally. At the Synergia Ranch commune, run on a cybernetic notion called ecotechnics, both organization and collective action were strictly forbidden. In practice, dark versions of abusive authority quickly emerged. The founders of the Silicon Valley companies, enthusiastic publications like Wired and the U.S. government itself, all routinely professed and seemed to believe they were changing the world. For the better, of course, but they also needed to make money. And for many of them, the solution to that problem was advertising. I myself remember being delighted when I could begin using Gmail, the robust email service from Google. You had to get an invitation back in 2004. I never really thought to ask what paid for it. And the answer came out eventually, which is that Google searched all of your communications in order to understand you better, so that other companies could sell you more things. Facebook, a company founded by an undergraduate at Harvard, also began as a service restricted to a small elite. The social network expanded to Columbia and Stanford and then to other prestigious colleges, then to wider sections of the population until everyone was invited. Its founder, Mark Zuckerberg, certainly didn't invent the social network. Many others came first. But in terms of an advertising-based, money-making operation, men like Zuckerberg took a huge leap forward from the television model that Fernando Haddad had described at the beginning of the millennium. Social media barons didn't have to make the shows. Instead of producing content to attract eyeballs, they simply had the users do that themselves. Their communications with their loved ones, the photographs of their lives, their public discussions about culture and politics, all of that would be content now that could be used to help other corporations sell things. 
Regardless of original intentions, the logic of this dynamic drove a number of innovations designed to keep the user glued to the website as long as possible. I distinctly remember the day that Facebook added the like button to its user experience. My network, it must be admitted, friends from a good California university, many of whom ended up working in technology firms after the 2008 crash, dashed their other hopes, reacted with shock and disgust. Allowing everyone to affirm but not critique and quantify each other with a click seemed like a cheap engagement trick, which it was, and it worked. But even as they emerged as wildly profitable entities in the business world, these technology companies retained the sheen of anti-systemic, vaguely countercultural quests to save the world. For some of these firms, that reputation was not just marketing. Twitter had roots in the alter-globalization movement. The anarchist Evan Henshaw Plath, one of the engineers who created the microblogging social network, had been a software developer for Indie Media. Back in the late 1990s, he helped build a status update newswire on the top of Indie Media's webpage in order to keep readers abreast of what was going on, mostly where the cops were and what they were doing during protests. Then they developed a way to send these out en masse via text message. This eventually grew into Twitter, launched in 2006. With major investment flowing into the company and the arrival of founder Jack Dorsey, who was certainly into a kind of radical politics but more business-driven Henshaw Plath remembers, the company began to look for ways to make money. Anyone could send little tweets and choose whom to follow. Quickly, the service moved onto the internet exclusively and became something very similar to Facebook, except that you had a much smaller profile and could only post short dispatches. During the George W. Bush administration, the U.S. State Department began training movements in Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East in the use of digital tools. It became state policy to push for global democratization using technology and social media. In 2009, thousands of Iranians took to the streets to protest what they believed to be a fraudulent election. Some of them were using Twitter, and this seemed to confirm that social media could push the world toward the end of history. Andrew Sullivan for The Atlantic published a piece titled The Revolution Will Be Twittered. In the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof claimed that in the quintessential 21st century conflict, on the one side are government thugs firing bullets, on the other side are young protesters firing tweets. It did not change the mainstream narrative much when this round of contention in Iran achieved very little, and the Iranian government actually used social media to identify and promptly arrest many of the dissidents. Mark Feitley, a former deputy national security advisor in the George W. Bush administration, tried to give the Nobel Peace Prize to Twitter. Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, went even further. Referring to the 1994 genocide in Central Africa, he said, You cannot have Rwanda again because information would come out far more quickly about what is actually going on, and the public opinion would grow to the point where action would need to be taken. In 2010, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton under President Barack Obama likened the promotion of internet freedom to support for dissidents in the USSR during the Cold War. As networks spread to nations around the globe, virtual walls are cropping up in place of visible walls. In the International Herald Tribune, Roger Cohen wrote that while tear down this wall was a 20th century slogan, the same demand for the 21st was tear down this firewall. Eli Lake, writing in The New Republic, made the same comparison. Belarusian theorist Evgeny Morozov, who knew very well that the end of communism did not go the way most people in Washington, D.C. and California thought it had. Alexander Lukashenko has been entrenched in power in Belarus since 1994, tried to push back against this wave of uncritical boosterism for California businesses. These people had their Cold War history very wrong, he said. Authoritarian governments are not passive simpletons waiting to be overthrown, and they could learn to use the Internet themselves, he pointed out. Whether rich Westerners realized it or not, situations even worse than the governance of a stable authoritarian state were possible, including civil war or failed states. But if he was given any attention within what became a tsunami of praise for the technology sector, it was also so he could be attacked with reckless abandon. In the mainstream press, the Internet guys were almost always the good guys. Confidence in this perception was so deeply internalized that these capitalists spoke of disruption in society without feeling the need to demonstrate that aggressively shaking things up would lead to improvements. This was not far off the logic of Beneath the Stones, The Beach, or Chiriricas, It Can't Get Any Worse. Smash things up and something better will emerge from the wreckage. And this assumption seemed widespread. In the 2008 election campaign, a young senator named Barack Obama had plastered his face over the unaccompanied word change, and few people stopped to recognize that everything bad that happens is change too. The events of the so-called Arab Spring only reaffirmed the faith of the liberal techno-optimists. It was undeniable that Facebook had played some role in the events of January 2011, and many of those who became unofficial spokespeople for The Swear also became such on Twitter. Over the following 10 years, media companies, brands, and all kinds of corporations would spend ungodly sums of money trying to figure out which kinds of things generate engagement on corporate social media. But for whatever reason, some people, whether it was because they were articulate, loud, interesting, or shocking, rose to prominence on these networks, often to the chagrin of others who had more influence on the ground or had gained a following in the older world of long-form blogs. The Che Guevara of the 21st century is the network, wrote Alec Ross, the officer in charge of digital policy in Hillary Clinton's State Department in 2011 in NATO Review. In the Brazilian press, the coverage was not so different. In North Africa, a new form of popular mobilization is trading in weapons for cellular phones, declared a report broadcast that year by the Globo Network. 
The Facebook revolution allows individuals to construct the very facts that they are narrating. Nothing will stop it. But for the real people this term, the square, usually named the progressive, secular revolutionaries in North Africa, who had inspired so many others around the world, things were far from perfect, even in the wake of the most successful uprisings. Tunisia was locked in torturous negotiations to shape its future. And in Egypt, though some demonstrators had chanted that the people in the army are one hand, faith in the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, SCAF, had dissipated after Mubarak's departure. SEAF put forward a set of constitutional amendments, but many revolutionaries opposed quick and easy changes to Mubarak's constitution, saying that they were rushing the process of transition to benefit conservative political forces that are already well organized, such as the Muslim Brotherhood. Then in October, a crowd of people from Egypt's Coptic Christian minority gathered in front of the Maspiro television building in downtown Cairo to protest the destruction of a church in Upper Egypt. SEAF forces crushed the demonstrators, killing at least 24 people. Government tanks rolled over their bodies, while state media blamed the protesters for inciting violence. And this was the exact same type of brutality that had inspired the uprising in the first place. But the Egyptian revolutionaries only really had one arrow in their quiver. They could try to take Tahrir Square again. All types of protests took place in 2011 and 2012, but unless they forced the country to a halt again, they remained demonstrations. Unless they could oust SEAF and replace it with a new revolutionary government, they would have to rely on negotiations and conversations until the planned elections. But the square was splintered into a number of small groups, which made them easy to ignore. If SEAF wanted to dialogue with civil society, the Muslim Brotherhood stood out as a single coherent organization with a reliable base of support. New elections did go ahead in May 2012. The Muslim Brotherhood would be represented by Mohamed Morsi, who was rigid and conservative by the previous standards of the Islamist group. Candidate Ahmed Shafiq represented a continuation of the Mubarak approach to governing. Amdin Sabahi, a Nasserist social democrat and one of the founders of the Kafaya coalition back in 2004, promised a fairer economy and full democratization. In interviews and private conversations, he sometimes pointed to a development path forged far outside the Arab world. He was inspired by Brazilian President Lula, who had governed democratically and improved the lives of the poor without breaking with the global system. Gihad chose to vote for Hamdin Sabahi. She thought he was the candidate who most stood for bread, freedom, and social justice, that original revolutionary slogan. Some other young secular revolutionaries, like Gihad's future husband Ahmed, chose to back Abdel Fotou, a former member of the Muslim Brotherhood seen as progressive compared to most Islamists. That seemed like a good tactical choice, Ahmed figured, given that Fotou could both represent the revolution and appeal to the country's large religious bloc. Ahmed would have been very happy to see Hamdin Sabahi win too. Other revolutionaries called for a boycott of the vote. For some, the point was never to represent the people with new repressive structures at all. Osam A'arabawi el-Hamalawi, the revolutionary socialist, believed in seizing state power, but he thought that the uprising was still underway, and the priority was to remove SEAF, not legitimize their rule by taking part in their elections. They had been successful in organizing strikes since the fall of Mubarak, and it was obvious to him that the revolution still controlled the streets. The blogger Mahmoud Sandmonkey Salim came out in support of spoiling ballots. He said that the real point was to say, fuck you to the Supreme Council of the Muslim Brotherhood. He rejected the interim military government that was clearly in dialogue with the Islamists, and he did not trust SEAF to put on fair elections. But quite a lot of people voted, and the election seemed legitimate. In the first round, Morsi got 25%, Shabik received 24%, and Sabahi and Fotou took 21% and 17% respectively. The secular revolutionaries were horrified. The election would come down to a run between the Muslim Brotherhood and the old regime. If they had been able to organize a united front, the combined votes for Sabahi and Fotou would have easily surpassed the numbers earned by Mubarak's man. In the second round, Morsi won. After 84 years, the Muslim Brotherhood would be in charge of running the country. This was good news for Turkey, while Saudi Arabia, despite its religious extremism, had long viewed the Brotherhood as its rival. To some extent, Morsi's arrival seemed to be a victory for Qatar, the small Gulf monarchy that had played an outsized role in regional politics since founding Al Jazeera, and whose leaders were more friendly with the Muslim Brotherhood than the monarchy in Riyadh. It was not clear what it would mean for Egyptians, but still, Gihad thought, at least the country now had a democracy, and after Morsi took over, the forces of civil society would be able to protest or regroup to win the next election. Meanwhile in Syria, the uprising had turned into a fully-fledged war. The Obama administration took the same position as its Saudi ally and began providing secret support to the Free Syrian Army in 2012. Early in that conflict, international support for the Syrian opposition was driven by a very prominent online personality. A young and beautiful woman, posting as gay girl in Damascus, regaled Western followers with tales of resistance to the brutal Assad regime. They were shocked when she was abducted by the Syrian government. Supporters launched a campaign to find her and save her life. Journalists, including Andy Carbon at NPR, began to look into her story. It turned out that she was a fiction made up by a bored graduate student from the United States. In Yemen, 
the eruption of mass protests starting in 2011, had forced Ali Abdullah Saleh to step down after 33 years in power. But Saudi Arabia, the powerful country to the north of the border, brokered a deal that allowed his deputy, Abraba Mansour Hadi, to take over. In early 2012, he ran unopposed for president, and protests started again as rebels in the north and south of the country boycotted the vote. Tunisia, the country that had started it all, struggled through the difficult process of drafting a new constitution. Pre-existing parties, the Islamists and the leftists and the liberals, tried to hammer out a document that would bring the country into the democratic world, reflect the interests of the people, and deliver on the spirit of January 2011. But Maya Dribi, the secretary general of the Parti Démocrate Progressiste, PDP, noted that the uprising had not provided the country with a concrete political direction. They were using institutions that were there before, rather than building truly new ones. There was no major change to economic conditions in the country. What happened, she said, is more than an uprising, but less than a revolution. 7. Cowboys and Indians I lived a blessed life as a correspondent in Brazil. The task I was given to attempt to understand the country was endlessly fascinating. As a journalist, your only real value is that you can get very smart or very interesting or very important people to speak with you because they want to be in the paper or because it is their job. This was an immensely enjoyable endeavor during a great time to be alive in Sao Paulo. And considering I had a relatively full-time job paid in U.S. dollars, I lived a much more comfortable life than the vast majority of Brazilians. There is no way you can do this job properly without correctly identifying your own objective relationship to the subject matter. And the vast majority of citizens of the United States of America are in the top 10% of earners in the global population. University-educated professionals in exclusive fields like media breathe even more rarefied air. In Brazil, just as in the United States, having light skin makes your life a lot easier. In the 13 years since I moved to Brazil, not a single cop has ever said a word to me on the street. Their job is the repression of a different population. Every day I walk from my apartment downtown in the Praça da República to the offices of Fola de São Paulo, where I had my desk space. I would pass through parts of Cracolandia, or Crackland, the sprawling community of street residents and drug users in the city. But this is not a poor country. It's an unequal country. No matter how plush my life was in São Paulo, I was still often shocked to hear about how some colleagues in the Brazilian media lived. Single people in their 20s who had a maid come to clean their apartments three or more times a week. Highly educated, cosmopolitan intellectuals who hadn't the slightest clue how to do the dishes. The journalists at Fola were not highly paid, but almost all of them came from families of European descent and attended elite, private educational institutions. Less than half of Brazilians identify as white. Looking around the newsroom in 2012 several times, I never saw a single black reporter. As it happens, Brazil was not cheap at all when I arrived. In some ways, it was more expensive than London, where I lived until 2010. Some of the hype surrounding Brazil was the result of a coincidental global imbalance that emerged in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. As part of the response to an inflation crisis in the 1980s, caused by the debt crisis initiated by the U.S. Federal Reserve's interest rate increase under Chairman Paul Volcker, the government had saddled Brazilians with some of the highest real interest rates in the world. This worked to stabilize the currency, but it also meant that even if regular people could buy their first washing machine under Lula, they paid exorbitant and hidden fees to finance them. After the 2008 financial crisis, the United States government failed to construct a fiscal response, for example, boosting the economy by spending money on things like infrastructure and public services, and instead relied on the Federal Reserve to slash its rates to historic lows. This unleashed a wave of capital into the world, and especially into the tech sector, seeking returns. When it came to Brazil, the carry trade strategy, simply take out money with low interest rates and put it in a place with high ones, served to inflate the value of the real. This made it a bit cheaper for normal people to buy foreign goods or travel abroad for the first time. It also meant the deindustrialization of the economy, and it allowed Brazil to become the world's sixth largest economy. But on the ground, and in the data, it was undeniable that something real was happening. Many people you met, rich or poor, were doing things they had never done before. Poor people got full-time jobs with benefits or took their first flight. Middle-class kids got to vacation in Paris or Tokyo or Mexico City. Throughout 2012, Dilma's approval rating hovered around 65%. Conservative forces were muted. Analysts called this phenomenon the Direita Envergonada, or Embarrassed Right, a legacy of the fact that almost everyone agreed that during the military regime, the left had fought for democracy and the right had defended dictatorship. A colleague at The Economist, who grew up in Poland where they had a different historical memory of the left, wrote a bemused column during Rousseff's first term, noting that out of 32 registered parties, 26 had names that suggested progressive values. The Brazilian political terrain comprised 50 shades of pink, someone told the magazine. Much of my work as a reporter was focused on the ways in which the social revolution was still incomplete. I went out and spoke to teachers worried about abysmal educational conditions for poor children. These had improved under Education Minister Haddad, but there was a very long way to go. There was the obvious and persistent problem of crime that had made Rio's favelas infamous. I attended parties organized by drug traffickers as research, yes, journalism, in municipal territory controlled by organizations such as Comando Vermelho, Red Command, or 
Amigos, dos amigos, friends of friends, where I spoke with some of their leaders. Cops were not allowed anywhere inside their turf. Teenagers wearing nothing but sandals, surfing board shorts, and huge assault rifles handled their security. I especially love getting out of the cities. I was lucky enough to report from every one of the 26 states, often crossing the whole country by bus. The Amazon basin covers 2.5 million square miles, roughly equivalent to the area covered by the European Union and India combined. Brazil governs the lion's share of the rainforest, which is home to much of the planet's biodiversity, and so crucial for the globe's oxygen production. Once you get out there, you realize that much of this biodiversity is bacteria, viruses, or animals that are trying to kill you. But that doesn't make them less beautiful or less important. I spent a lot of time in the jungle attempting to explain why so much of it was going away. The battle over land has been at the center of Brazilian politics since the country's birth, and it is relevant to the future of humanity. I became close to a group of scientists who operate as an environmental protection force for the federal government. My main contact in this world was a federal agent in Brazil's Institute of Environment and Renewable Natural Resources, IBAMA, named Olavo Pedin Galvão, a kind man who patiently explained to me the diversity of the forestry and the nature of the work done by his team. Armed and highly trained, they scanned the vast region for potential deforestation sites using satellite data to find suspicious holes in the forest, followed by flyovers in small planes. Finally, when there was a clear target, they would touch down in a helicopter to investigate. Often, they would find telltale equipment, or land, converted into pasture for cows. Sometimes, there were people on the sites, shooting at the helicopter as it got closer to the ground. I touched down with them many times. They would pan out, searching for clues, and immediately determine what kind of operation was underway. Olavo would examine the soil and track down any supplies or equipment. Many times as the day ended, I would stand back and watch as they torched everything they found. The Ibama had the authority to find ranchers with the backing of the federal government, but they also ran up against the other concrete power structures in Brazil's political economy. The president governing from Brazil's capital, Brasilia, does not control every aspect of life on the ground, any more than politicians in Washington, D.C., could micromanage frontier law in the Wild West. If you work the courts right, or put operations in the name of some low-level criminal, the benefit of the deforestation could outweigh any fines incurred. That is, given the real set of regulations and punishments within the Amazon, it is economically rational to cut it down. Indeed, the local political structures were often highly sympathetic to the deforestation economy, if not entirely dependent upon it. Olavo told me, one day in the truck as we rolled through the wasteland, how many serious threats they received. Many people understand that the forest is shrinking. Few realize what takes its place. The communities that exist in between the thick, dark green foliage are primarily cowboy outposts, in every sense that the word connotes. Men wear big belt buckles, cowboy boots, and big cowboy hats. They amble into watering holes to get drunk and listen to country music without bothering to hide the pistols on their hips. Cattle, which transform the soil and help destroy the jungle, are their source of income. At one bar, I stood out like a sore urban thumb and told the locals unconvincingly, but accurately, technically, that I was going to write about country music and culture. Residents look on city folk that come out there as empty-headed do-gooders trying to destroy their livelihoods. This scene attracts outlaws who can cross state lines and start a new life to evade the police. After that night in the cantina, I went to watch a local motocross show on a deforested piece of dirt nearby with a young woman I met. We have to leave, she said as soon as we arrived. Her ex-boyfriend was there. Oh, it's no big deal, I said. It's not like we are on a date. I'm just a clueless gringo journalist. We can tell him that. Oh, no, you don't understand, she said. He moved out here because he is wanted for murder in several states. I skipped the race. Relations with the United States had improved under Dilma after Washington was displeased with President Lula's attempt, together with Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan, to organize an Iran nuclear deal in 2010. The U.S. consistently pushed Brazil to adopt its oppositional stance toward the Hugo Chavez government in Venezuela. For her part, Dilma enthusiastically supported the BRICS and was committed to building networks of South-South cooperation. In 2010, when Brazil began development of its massive offshore oil reserves, accompanied by the largest stock offering in the history of the world, Experts in the North Atlantic issued concerned warnings that the developmentalist provision to reinvest the profits in local industry would be unfair to international companies. At home, Dilma oversaw the launch of a truth commission that investigated the crimes committed by the military dictatorship. It was the reproduction of a successful model developed in places like Argentina, Chile, and South Africa. It had no teeth, but behind the scenes at the armed forces, the top brass did not like this one bit. The armed forces had been re-empowered starting in 2004, when the Brazilian military went to Haiti as part of the United Nations Stabilization Mission in Haiti, MINUSTA, and reportedly committed egregious abuses against the local population, especially Haitian women. And if you listen carefully, you could hear wealthy Brazilians start to complain that the poor seemed to be doing a little too well. A recurring complaint during Dilma's first term was that domestic workers were becoming too expensive. The other side of this story, of course, was that working-class women could demand good wages and benefits for the first time. For my story, see the Los Angeles Times. In Brazil, changing times usher in servant problem. A more blatant case of class hatred came when one Facebook user in Rio famously complained that poor Brazilians could now be seen aboard airplanes. But all of this felt like background noise, the quiet mutterings of a ruling class that was getting used to a new reality. Nothing served to reinforce the idea that this moderate social revolution was here to stay more than the new man in charge of São Paulo. 2013 begins. Fernando Haddad took office as mayor on January 1st, 2013. 
This was a surprise achievement for Sao Paulo progressives, both culturally and politically. The country's economic powerhouse had elected center-right candidates in the past two contests. But now, after a full decade of workers' party rule at the federal level, voters handed City Hall to a socialist intellectual who had matured under one of Lula's large wings. He was also a man who played guitar on stage alongside U.S. rap group Public Enemy, proposed an urban model with less cars and pollution, and promised to revitalize the historic city center. As he set up the office of his Secretary of Culture, he established links with some of the young people organizing street festivals and protest events since 2011, including some of those who had ties to the ultra-globalization movement. By the numbers, his victory was driven by votes in the city's poor periphery. But it also delighted a lot of people in the left-leaning world of university-educated artists, musicians, and writers, speaking frankly for the social groups I joined. The short campaign had provided a little bit of drama. For a while, media personality Celso Romano dominated headlines. He was a man permanently in TV makeup, a gifted showman, who had made his name giving tips to consumers and defending the rights of the customer. Whether this was celebrated or derided, it was a fact that the Lulista model of development meant incorporating the poor into full citizenship through participation in consumer society, and these were popular themes. The country, like so many in the global south, was living through a boom in shopping mall construction. Even more newsworthy was the fact that Rusomano raised eyebrows by appealing directly to the country's growing evangelical Christian population. This group's power and influence were on the rise, but it had never been so clearly in the spotlight. I went to spend time in the churches, where two things became clear. First, they provided a truly meaningful space for regular people. Protestant pastors engaged directly with working Brazilians, almost all of whom used to be Roman Catholic, and many reported turning their lives around after finding Jesus in these new churches. Second, pastors often presented donations to the churches, not so much as good works done in service of the Lord, but as a kind of investment. If you did what the church asked, you were going to get rich. You were going to eventually get more money out of this whole scheme than you put in. That explained why so many founders of the mega churches were mega rich, and why countries in Africa, like Angola and Madagascar, actually shut down their churches. As soon as he took power, Haddad felt that he was fighting a rearguard battle against the city's conservative elites and the media they owned. Fights over politics, playing out in media both social and traditional, often revolved around his flagship programs to expand bike lanes in the city and spend money treating drug addicts living on the streets downtown. Fights over control of the streets got particularly nasty, with motorists insisting that Sao Paulo was not Amsterdam or Berlin, and that trying to push cycling culture was left-wing social engineering. A columnist at Veja went as far as to question why the ciclovias were painted red. Was that propaganda meant to spread the color of socialism in the Workers' Party? Even more outlandish was the claim made later in the magazine, the kind of thing that would go viral online, that Haddad was the Taliban of the bicycle, ISIS on two wheels. Influential sectors felt that all of this progressive stuff had gone too far. The new mayor became deeply frustrated with the media coverage. He felt he was always playing defense, facing off with the right. In March 2013, I wrote an article about media culture in Brazil and focused on national politics. The story sought to situate and explicate a puzzling phenomenon. How was it that Dilma Rousseff now enjoyed approval ratings as high as the 70s, but not a single major publication, television station, or online outlet supported her administration? The coverage was universally critical. Almost all of the major media in the country had also supported the coup back in 1964, and I noted that it was the exact same outlets and the same families controlling them that dominated the landscape in 2013. I was working inside one of these, and I think that emphasizing this point may have caused a little bit of discomfort in the newsroom. My colleagues there stressed it was also important to recognize that their bosses weren't the only ones who had class interests. Much of the best media in the country was aimed at the audience who drove subscription and advertising revenue. Think of a lawyer in Sao Paulo, one editor said, and this class especially, like the economists they consulted, believed that Dilma's economic policies were dangerously wrong-headed. But in May 2013, it was neither municipal concerns nor macroeconomics that held my attention. A sadly familiar story in the states of Mato Grosso do Sul, local ranchers had apparently hired pistoleros, local gunmen, to murder members of the Terena tribe. Of course, it was a fight over land. In disputed territories, indigenous people sometimes fight with bows and arrows or clubs. The cowboys always use bullets. They may not have the federal government on their side, but they have enough to get the job done. In the Guarani, Kayowa community, this dynamic had led indigenous people to slowly kill themselves. Over the previous three decades, members of this tribe had committed suicide at 60 times the national average. As June 2013 began, I was sitting in a hut with Alda Silva Cuna Tupa Henji, listening to her explain why they no longer wanted to live. 8. Minority Report Istiklal Avenue runs through the center of Istanbul on the European side of the ancient city. There are no cars here, just endless street cafes and vendors selling ice cream in the summer or roasted chestnuts in the winter. You can pop down a tiny side street, perhaps built when this was still the capital of the Byzantine Empire, and have grilled lamb and fresh vegetables, or a bottle of FS beer brewed and bottled in Turkey. Just a few blocks east is the water of the Bosporus Strait, which you can jump on via ferry to the more conservative and religious Asian side of the city. Istiklal, on the other hand, has been the traditional heart of secular elite culture, the stomping ground of the urban bourgeoisie and its fun-loving children, many of whom fared well under the modernizing regime of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. If you walk up to the end of Istiklal Avenue, you will find a big open space, Taksim Square, and then a humble patch of trees and grass called Gezi Park. It is not a particularly special or beloved park, 
but it is in the middle of everything. In the beginning of 2013, activists staged a set of interventions in defense of the environment, public space, and the secular lifestyle in general. There was nothing very surprising about this. This was a democracy, and the city was going through a number of transformations that were always going to be subject to discussion and contestation. This is how the game is supposed to work in the era of liberal globalization. For many years, Turkey had often been held up, especially by Westerners, as a model for the rest of the Muslim world. Under Recep Tayyip Erdogan, first elected prime minister in 2002, the European Union began to seriously consider or at least discuss the possibility of admitting the country as a member. Erdogan had incorporated its Muslim majority more fully into the body politic, while remaining ardently pro-Western and bringing the country in line with the rules of the global capitalist economy. The Turkish left, historically strong enough that the military felt the need to take power in a violent 1980 coup, denounced this as neoliberal capitulation and pointed to widening inequality. But Erdogan had established a broad coalition of supporters, and his project, moderate Islamism, pro-business and pro-Western contesting elections, appeared hegemonic. In March 2013, his approval rating hovered around 60%, though it was only 46% in Istanbul. Protests began when intellectuals and artists in that city mobilized against the demolition of a beloved downtown cafe and then a historic movie theater, which were to be cast into the dustbin of history to make way for a new shopping mall. The activists failed, and the mall went forward. A group of environmentalists made contact on social media so that they could do something to protect the city's remaining green spaces from rapacious development. Fukan, a college student from Istanbul, joined the Loose Network and started planning. Like many of his friends, he looked more to Europe than to the Arab world for inspiration. They were moved more by the ways that environmentalists organized in the West and the way that leftists had taken to the streets in nearby Greece in 2011 than the example of Tahrir Square. In any case, he didn't have much hope his little group of tree huggers would accomplish much, aside from slowing down the ongoing commodification of Istanbul. On Twitter, he discovered that the city planned to bulldoze trees in Gezi Park on the night of May 27th. In addition to destroying a bit of nature, the president wanted to build a large mosque which would celebrate the Ottoman period. Fukan and a few dozen comrades went to the park. A group totaling perhaps 85 activists, 15 journalists, and one member of parliament from the pro-Kurdish party managed to stop the bulldozers. But those big machines were going to come back. The protesters spread the word, and a thousand people came out the next night. Most were committed environmentalist types, with a smattering of different political viewpoints represented. But the one commonality was that nobody was pro-Erdogan. On a whim, some of them dragged out tents so that there would always be someone there to protect the park. In the middle of the night, on May 29th, the government arrived, this time to clear out people instead of trees. As the cops began to tear gas the settlement and torch the tents, Hukan scrambled in panic across the square. Desperate to escape, dozens of people tried to rush down the same small set of stairs at the same time, and they crashed to the ground. The whole thing was filmed on camera phones. On May 30th, the entire country woke up to the shocking images of a crackdown on nonviolent environmental protesters in the middle of Istanbul, with Taksim Square on fire. Except that is for those who tuned in to state media, which wasn't talking about this at all. But social media, Twitter especially, and international coverage made it easy for well-connected Turks to see past the censorship. And so citizens poured into the square in solidarity with the victimized demonstrators and in protest of police brutality. Then, photographer Osman Orsal produced an even more scandalous image. A young woman, elegantly poised and wearing a flowing red dress, was pepper sprayed at close range by the Turkish police. After seeing this on Twitter, a lot of people felt like Hazar, a shopkeeper in the bazaar from a middle-class family. He said, A sandstorm is erupting, and I want to be one of the pieces of sand. I just want to support the people. The square was entirely packed now, 24 hours a day, and the whole world was watching. The Turkish Model in 1922, the mighty Ottoman Empire finally collapsed after more than 600 years. After Mehmed the Conqueror took Byzantium in 1453, the sultans embarked on a conquest that eventually gave them control over a huge swath of land stretching from modern-day Algeria in the west, deep into the Arab Peninsula in the southeast, and up to what is now Hungary and Ukraine in the north. They did not force their subjects to learn Turkish, but maintained a network of local rulers who were loyal to Istanbul. They traded in both African and European slaves. The Cossack people from the steppes of modern-day Ukraine acquired a heroic reputation, among Slavs at least, for liberating prisoners in horseback raids before they could be sold at Crimean ports. But as the world was increasingly transformed by European imperialism and the attendant rise of capitalism, the Ottomans were dragged through slow decline. The Republic of Turkey was born in 1923, and President Mustafa Kemal Ataturk pushed through a set of modernizing, westernizing reforms. These Kemalist measures abolished the Ottoman Caliphate, instituted the use of the Roman alphabet, declared the state to be fully secular, and banned the use of Muslim headscarves in any public institution. Many Turkish women remained hijabi, but not if they were serving in government or teaching at a public school. Ataturk suppressed local efforts to reproduce the Bolshevik Revolution, but he also learned lessons from the Soviet Union. Turkey used central planning, but to build a national bourgeoisie and capitalist economy, rather than the proletarian-led industrialization favored by the USSR. Nasser's system in Egypt was not wildly different from Ataturk's creation, economically speaking, but Nasserism was more leftist and more committed to the cause of the Third World than Kemalism had been. And modern Turkey, unlike Egypt, did not cover a territory that had been a coherent nation for thousands of years. Its version of nationalism relied on exclusionary and destructive violence. 
Late Ottoman leaders carried out a genocide against the Armenian people, and the Republic was locked in eternal conflict with the Kurdish people, unhappy to be locked within Turkey's new borders. After World War II, Stalin thought he might be able to establish naval bases in Turkey, but the government in Ankara ultimately chose to side with the West in the Cold War, joining NATO in 1952. As the organized left grew in power and influence in the 1970s, the state backed far-right nationalists as well as Islamists as counterweights, until, in 1980, the military seized power, ending parliamentary democracy, banning all unions, and annihilating the socialist movement with a series of executions, imprisonment, and the use of torture. The coup led to a controlled opening for Turkey's religious groups, and it meant the beginning of neoliberalization in the country. Prime Minister Erdogan's party, the Justice and Development Party, AKP, grew out of the pro-business, pro-American wing of an Islamist party founded in 1983. The former mayor of Istanbul, 1994 to 1998, took power in 2003, and proved to be a valuable U.S. ally in the global war on terror, all while maintaining a wide base of support at home. The AKP movement embraced people who were truly marginalized by the old development model, like more conservative Muslims and small business owners, as long as they were ethnic Turks, though these groups had not been as excluded from the political system as ethnic minorities or the organized working class. Some leftists backed Erdogan, seeing him as a truly populist figure, elected in a democracy that was preferable to authoritarian secularism and far-right nationalism. In 2010, Erdogan successfully passed a constitutional reform that further sidelined the military, established a rule of law in line with European Union standards, and also made it easier for police to crack down on activists. With Erdogan approaching a decade in power, the groups that his movement had been championing since the 1990s no longer seemed so marginal, and a lot of people in downtown Istanbul, often it must be said the direct beneficiaries of secular Kemalist modernization, didn't like what was happening to their city. Erdogan found himself in a complicated position as a result of the so-called Arab Spring, or that is, he put himself in one. On the one hand, the fall of Ben Ali and Mubarak seemed to offer a chance for the real expansion of Turkish influence and the AKP model. Then there was the problem of Syria. At first, Erdogan wanted to position himself as a mediator between Assad and the opposition, while the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia wanted regime change. But as the Saudi position gained traction in Washington, Turkey changed its orientation too. The Free Syrian Army, the armed rebel group originally formed of defectors from the Syrian army committed to overthrowing Assad that received Saudi funding and later U.S. support, was founded on Turkish soil in July 2011. Turkey had provided active assistance to the NATO operation against Qaddafi in Libya after a lot of hand-wringing and indecision. And closer to home, the Turkish government was wary of any developments that would prove advantageous to the Kurdish movement in general, or more specifically to the militant Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, that Ankara considered its mortal enemy. Erdogan had both ideological and geopolitical incentives to pull for Islamist movements in North Africa, and he did. The Turkish president supported Anada in Tunisia and was close to the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood after the victory of Mohamed Morsi. These were the movements that might recreate the Turkish model. In other words, the pro-Western, neoliberalized, moderately Islamist mode of governmentality he had developed over the previous two decades. But this isolated him in the region. Saudi Arabia did not like the Muslim Brotherhood government one bit. And putting the pro-Western Turkish model aside, it was obvious that any successful democratic or social revolution in the most populous and influential Arab country would call into question the point of the kingdom. Why would anyone need a repressive, murderous monarchy if the Arab world can come together behind a prospering, progressive Egypt, or a new version of Nasserism, or Pan-Arabism, or even a relatively stable Islamist democracy? In April 2013, a movement called Tamarat, Rebellion, appeared in Egypt, collecting signatures to call for the end of the Mohamed Morsi presidency. They were clearly drawing on the repertoire of revolutionary associations developed in 2011. They presented themselves as a youth-led, grassroots, digitally coordinated uprising, and they collected a whole lot of signatures very fast. With an official spokesman in Mahmoud Badr, an activist since the days of Kefaya, or Enough, they appealed to revolutionaries as well as secular elites and charged Morsi with overstepping his power to impose conservative religion on the country. Erdogan quickly took Morsi's side. Hesista Brasil After the woman in the red dress went viral, the world was served with images of supporters of the park and opponents of Erdogan, packing Gezi to the brim. In the beginning of June, Taksim Square was home to a permanent settlement of demonstrators. At the same time, Gezi Park welcomed protesters who could come by every day in the evening after work. Turks living abroad spent days glued to Facebook, and some of them, with a means and inclination, jumped on planes to join the movement. More demonstrations erupted in Izmir, Ankara, and a dozen other cities. But in the first days of June 2013, Yesi Park became the national platform for a range of political causes, a site for clashes with the police, and a space for a radically different type of communal experience. None of this had been planned, and there was no obvious demand for them to make, no stupidly clear target to match their escalated sense of purpose, no dictator that had been in power for decades, for example. And so, the causes remained nearly as diffuse as the participants. In the Turkish context, getting the military to defy the president, as had happened in Egypt and Tunisia, would certainly not be a revolution. It would just be another coup. Yesi was not as leaderless and horizontal as Tahrir, Plata del Sol, and Occupy Wall Street. 
since the Taksim Solidarity Umbrella Organization quickly formed in an attempt to give some direction to the revolt. But this didn't always work out in practice, as it wasn't exactly clear who was under that umbrella. Anyone could come to the park, and participation was diverse. The environmentalists had started the movement, and from the beginning, there had been representatives from the People's Democratic Party, HDP, a progressive party that routinely defends Kurdish interests. The organized left, including the Turkish Communist Party, TKP, was there. Unlike most of the crowd, the TKP had been fighting with cops here ever since they threw their bodies against the 2003 attack on Iraq, as U.S. fighter planes used Turkish airspace for the invasion. Feminist and LGBT groups quickly made their presence known. There were Kemalists of different stripes, secular social democrats, as well as the ultra-nationalist anti-Kurdish wing. Disconcertingly, the square also attracted the support of some gray wolves, the far-right nationalists who had been responsible for part of the wave of terror against the left before the 1980 military coup. But they were resolutely opposed to Erdogan, so the progressives understood why they would be there. Some people on the front lines were wearing those masks from V for Vendetta, and there were a whole lot of normal, mostly middle-class citizens without explicit political identities or experience. Surveys indicated that most people in the square were far more educated than Turks as a whole and came from well-off neighborhoods nearby, while farmers, housewives, and shopkeepers were less likely to support the occupation. The professionals were united, very loosely, in defense of secular values, in opposition to the commodification of public space, and in solidarity against police violence. And then there were the football hooligans. In English, hooligan implies a quite unsavory type of violent character, but outside of Britain, the better word is usually ultras, designating groups of tight-knit superfans that may or may not have an explicit political ideology. In many places, and certainly in Istanbul, there are leftist ultras. A group of fans of the local Venerbahce club, calling themselves Vamos Bien, a phrase they took from Fidel Castro, is an anti-fascist, feminist, and socialist ultra group in Istanbul, and they were there from the first day. Ultras are well organized, and they have a lot of experience fighting, and with repression. Fans who were in the Fenerbahce Stadium on May 12th of the previous year, for example, remember when police helicopters bombed the stadium with tear gas. The members of Vamos Bien called the middle class, more celebratory protesters, the flower people, and they weren't exactly sure how to interact with them. These ultras often manned the front lines at Gezi, with the assistance of experienced activists, but they weren't sure if the soft and disorganized protesters behind them appreciated what they were doing. It could be frustrating to engage in real combat, take real risks, and turn around and see a petty bourgeois cultural fair. One day, a huge column of the supporters of Besiktas, another club in Istanbul, marched into the square. The procession deeply impressed Irene Sengardes, an artist from an elite neighborhood. They unfurled a large banner reading Besiktas, except they had drawn the K as a communist hammer and sickle, and a circle around the A in the anarchist style. Irene watched, absolutely dazzled, as one Besiktas ultra stood in front of the rest and raised his arm to direct them. It was truly insane. They're disciplined, Irene said. With every little motion of his hand, the entire squad responded and moved in unison. He had complete control. Referring to a 2002 movie produced in the United States in which the hero controls a complex computer with flourishes of his fingers, he said, it was like watching Tom Cruise in Minority Report. Another night, another very different procession descended on Taksim. Rahana was playing a huge show a few blocks away. As she sang, fans in the VIP seats also watched the events in the square on Twitter. Then they swarmed up the hill toward Istiklal and joined the revolt. Iron's girlfriend was in that march. They knew that they didn't exactly hail from the proletariat, but everyone was coming together to fight for their city. Like so many other protesters, Iron was struck in the head with a tear gas canister fired by the police. This changed his life, and not because the injury was permanent. During the trip to the hospital, he made the kind of deep, unmediated connection with another human being that so many people spoke about in Tahrir in 2011 or Paris in 1968. He wasn't sure if he would survive, terrified by the size of the head injury which pulsated with terrifying heat. He locked eyes with another man in the waiting room, someone who he knew he never would have spoken with before Gezi. But in that moment, they were brothers. The feeling was transcendent and far more powerful than the pain in the back of his skull. Zeynep Tufeche, a Turkish sociologist who had been a part of digitally coordinated activist networks since the alter globalization moment, noticed that the language employed was nearly identical to that which had been produced in New York and Egypt. If I squinted and ignored that the language was Turkish, she reported, I felt that it could have been in almost any 21st century protest square, organized through Twitter, filled with tear gas, leaderless, networked, euphoric, and fragile. She also clocked the dual nature of the revolt. It was somewhere between a music festival and the Paris Commune, she wrote. Like Graeber, she rejected the idea that contention is a means to an end. But her interpretation was not based on a prefigurative ideal, but rather on the empirical observation that people were deriving real meaning from these experiences. This was the feeling of participatory democracy, SDS, had dreamed of, except they were running a square instead of the country. Tufeci saw and felt that Gezi Park offered an escape from the alienation of everyday life. The ability to exchange products without money inverted the commodity fetishism of workaday capitalist society. There was always more blankets or food than anyone needed. Meanwhile, defenders of the Erdogan project scrambled to declare that the situation here was very different from the movements it was echoing. In an article for Al Jazeera entitled, Taksim Square is not Tahrir Square, 
two university professors pointed to the presence of radical Kemalists in the square and claimed they were using the revolt to overthrow a government that had revolutionized center-periphery relations. This was the language of the intellectual left being deployed to shore up Erdogan's AKP. As anthropologists and Marxist academics, they wrote, we observe that the AK party still holds the support of the subaltern, the real subjects of a possible revolution. Since 2002, the people on Turkey's periphery have become the center. Today's chaos threatens to reverse this. But support continued to pour in from all around the world. Bahar, a rye and impish scientist who worked near the square, very much enjoyed her time amidst the crowd. She joined the square in defense of secular values, particularly the scientific method, and against Erdogan. Yezi was a revelation. She had no idea there were so many people who thought the same way as her in Istanbul. For the first time, she got to know queer and trans people. She met a boyfriend. Well, he was more of a fuck buddy, according to her, in the square. She was always on Twitter, except for when she was kicked off or mouthing off a little bit too much. In the second half of June, she saw a tweet coming in from Brazil, reporting that demonstrators in Sao Paulo were getting tear gas. She read that Brazilians had exclaimed, Love is over, Turkey is here, as they withstood the onslaught. Bahar saw a flowering of responses, all in solidarity with that other street movement halfway across the globe, appear both online and in the real world. She took a photo of eight people, all in their 20s or 30s, holding green and yellow paper, the colors of the Brazilian soccer team, with a big message spelled out. She posted it online, then sent it to the journalist in Brazil who had first posted the viral tweet, that is to me. Their sign was written in Portuguese with some mistakes, but totally legible. Todo lugar es São Paulo. En todo lugar, resistencia. Resista Brasil. A Turquia está ao seu lado. Or in English, the whole world is São Paulo. Resistance everywhere. Brazil, resist. Turkey is by your side. A few days later, thousands of people gathered in assemblies. The older activists with experience, mostly organized leftists who were referred to as big brothers in the park, wanted to use the leverage they had created to reap the benefits, the negotiation and institutional politics, and end the occupation. Young protesters shouted back at them, questioning their authority, and yelling that they did not represent them. The faces of the big brothers went pale. They knew they had lost. When it came time for the Turkish government to invite a delegation to negotiate on behalf of the park, it wasn't clear who was actually supposed to go. 9. The Free Fair Movement Things were very busy for the Movimento Pase Libre in the first half of 2013. The city of São Paulo had scheduled a rise in the price of a bus ride and metro ticket, which would normally go into effect on January 1st, but President Dilma asked Mayor Haddad to wait until June to help keep a looming inflation problem under control. Haddad didn't think this made much sense, and they had a small fight over the issue in Brasilia. He didn't think transport fees in one city were going to do much to affect prices in the national economy, he told her, and the city badly needed the funds. But she went out. He was going to wait, which meant that the MPL had months to plan their response. And plan they did. The Free Fair Movement had been studying urban policy and the effectiveness of confrontational street tactics for eight years now. They looked back at what had worked before, Florianopolis, in 2004, and what hadn't worked, Salvador in 2003, and Sao Paulo in 2011. They got together twice a week at the office of the Tortura Nunca Mais, Torture Never Again, Human Rights Group, to plan. Their meetings would last hours, because everything had to be decided by consensus. After school, or work, or on the weekends, Mayana sat around with Lucas Vegetable Mondero, Pedro Punk, law student Nina Capello, rocker Daniel Guimares, the feisty Elisa Tinkerbell Cuadros, and 20 or 30 other members. Many of them attended the city's prestigious and free University of Sao Paulo, USP, but they had long ago decided as a group to refuse to share biographical details with anyone in the press. They didn't want attention on individuals, as they didn't want anyone elevated above the rest of the group. It was exciting to plan for the struggle, but it wasn't easy. Meetings could run until 2 or 3 in the morning, even when they started before noon. Their goal was to force Mayor Fernando Haddad to reverse the 20 centavo hike on the price of bus rides in the city. Some of them believed they could change Brazilian society in a larger sense, but their movement could lead more people, or the working class, to assert political power through direct action on the streets. But as a collective, they had a single, very specific objective, and they came up with a detailed plan to achieve it. As they got closer to June, they began to meet every single day. Members who lived outside the capital, like geography student Oliver Kawakawi, descended on Sao Paulo to prepare for the action. The Movimento Pase Libre knew that Haddad and the Workers' Party, PT, had developed a robust set of mechanisms for interacting with social movements. Haddad would want a dialogue to incorporate, co-opt, and converse, or, as Vegetable put it, to put us in meetings that would lead to a series of meetings that would create a committee that would discuss future committees and then eventually create an agenda based on future negotiations. They chose to deny that possibility and turn their backs on City Hall. They knew that in order to create the necessary pressure, there would have to be some chaos in the city. Their little group was not big enough to cause the desired conflagration, so they would need to rely on other people joining it. They planned the exact number of demonstrations that they thought would be necessary for Haddad to give in. Of course, they knew that media reproduction of their interventions would be essential. They were deeply distrustful of corporate media. Their founding charter urged caution when making contact with these oligarchical structures, but they had to have a communication strategy. Their organizational model and the beliefs that underpinned it would never allow for them to select designated spokespersons. In horizontalism, everyone was equal, and everyone would do everything. So that job would rotate among the members of the Free Fair movement and underline that they were truly a leaderless collective. 
They would only talk about the movement and its objectives rather than any other political issue. But they would certainly make sure to offer the media the sort of content they loved to run. They went as far as to plan the exact image they would like to see on the cover of the city's main newspapers after their first intervention. They planned to stop traffic on one of the city's main thoroughfares, Vincitres de Mayo, and mount a barricade, lighting tires on fire, a classic in the Brazilian radical repertoire, and unfurl a giant banner reading, Ciat Tarifa, now by Char, a cidade vai parar. It rhymes, of course, and scans like a line of poetry. It means, if the fair doesn't come down, the city is coming to a halt. They figured the cops would probably clear them out of there eventually, but not before the press got their shot. Within City Hall itself, Haddad was having his own problems with the police. Brazilian cops are military police, a legacy of the dictatorship, and the most important troops report to the state government. State Governor Geraldo Alckmin, from the center-right PSDB party, was a political rival of Dilma and Haddad, and had very different ideas about public security. Haddad believed that the Policia Militar PM was upset with City Hall over a budgeting issue inherited from the previous mayor. Moreover, the cops were explicitly refusing to collaborate with his open-arms treatment program, which insisted on dealing with homeless crack users as addicts, not criminals. So in May, on the first night of the Virada Cultural, a downtown music festival meant to showcase his vision for the city, they apparently responded with crossed arms, that is, they refused to do any policing during the event. I attended. It was absolute pandemonium. My apartment has a balcony overlooking one of the stages, and we watched the band Raza Negra perform live before heading downstairs to check things out. It was as if the military police had asked every small-time criminal in town to put on their best show. I had nothing other than a half-broken blackberry and a bottle of cachaça on my person, so I wasn't worried about myself. We just looked on, in wonder, and in horror, sometimes breaking into horribly manic laughter as teenage boys ripped away every cell phone, backpack, purse, and wallet in sight, and then ran off. The police leaned against a nearby wall and watched. The MDL marked the first protest for June 6th. The Movimento Pase Libre had a group on Facebook that anyone could join. They created an event page for the date, which was a good way to alert people from school, their social circle, and sympathetic activists that something was going down. Around 5,000 people hit the streets that night. Being in the Southern Hemisphere, June is about as cold and dark as Sao Paulo gets. It's never much chillier than a Los Angeles winter in the city, but it gets cold enough that people like to stay wrapped up at home. So motorists, and the police especially, were surprised to see so many students, punks, and teenagers pour on to Vinci Tres de Mayo and shut it down. The flames were especially striking against the black sky when they lit those tires on fire and mounted wooden turnstiles on top to burn along with them. The police called for backup. My friend Piero Locatelli, a reporter at Carta Capital magazine, observed what he described as combat between the military police and the crowd just before getting hit with his first dose of tear gas. Piero, no stranger to the punk underground or rambunctious protests, said he had never seen that many cops in one place in Sao Paulo before, and he had never seen such a small group of protesters fighting back with such fierce dedication. At one point, the police turned their backs to retreat. The youth cried out, Amanya vai ser mayor, tomorrow will be greater. I was far away, still reporting on the conflict between indigenous people and ranchers across Brazil's agricultural heartland, but I checked the news every day. I had been working at the offices of Folha de São Paulo for a year now, so I usually looked at that paper first, and then Estadão, the more conservative daily in São Paulo. Both papers had the same image on the front page, the Movimento Passe Libre blocking the street and broadcasting their message with their flames dancing in the dark night, exactly as they had planned. The MPL had very few resources, so they had spent a lot of their budget on that banner and the fake wooden turnstiles they burned that night. Starting on June 7th, they needed to use everything else at their disposal to help protesters who had landed in prison. At least 50 people were injured. They had to deal with the press, which had printed that photograph but was not exactly sympathetic. One paper reported vandalism, and the other described destruction of property, neither of which were technically incorrect. The MPL had to play a sort of double game, as Lucas Vegetable called it, which was to always blame the government and its repressive apparatuses for the chaos on the streets, to insist that it was the price rise and the police that caused the situation, while they also did what they could to make sure that the chaos remained within the levels they desired. They put a note up on Facebook on June 7th, emphasizing the first point, and as expected, the mayor's office reached out. Someone from City Hall got the phone number of one of the activists through a mutual friend, this is very much Haddad style, and called directly, offering to invite her in for a frank discussion from citizen to citizen on transport policy. It was rebuked on the grounds that this was not the kind of conversation they wished to have, and they were preparing for another protest that night. Looking back on the success almost 10 years ago in Florianopolis, they had come to the conclusion that unrelenting intensity was crucial for success, so for the second day in a row, they took to the streets. It wasn't bigger, as those kids had promised the cops, it was about the same size, but they surprised the city by shutting down yet another part of it. On Friday afternoon, around 5,000 people gathered in Pinedos, a richer part of the city, and the same neighborhood where young Haddad had his Marxist pizza parties. When they realized they had the numbers required, they occupied one of the country's largest highways. The military police, Tropa de Choque, or shock troops, took aim at the protesters. Some of the counterattackers were black bloc participants, fully geared up for the impending clashes. Covering the chaos once again for Carta Capital, Piero learned a trick that night from a teenage anarchist. She soaked a t-shirt in vinegar, told him to inhale the fumes, and said that it would help with the effects of the tear gas. It seemed to work. Over the weekend, 
the Estadal newspaper blamed Tadat and the alleged permissiveness of the Progressive Workers' Party vis-à-vis -vis its beloved social movements for the vandals and the violence. The mayor himself left the city and traveled to Paris, where he and Governor Alcmin were bidding on the 2020 World Expo for the city of São Paulo. Brazil was already hosting the 2014 World Cup and the 2016 Olympics, and this would be yet another jewel in the nation's crown of expensive international mega-events. When it came to the bus fare, he reasoned he was not exactly pulling a fast one on the people. He had said he was going to raise the price during his campaign, and he won handily. The rise was smaller than overall inflation since the last hike. He believed that raising the bus fare was the right move for the city. On a personal level, Haddad became increasingly annoyed with the MPL. They did not respect the differences between politicians, he felt. They lumped him in with the conservative repressive apparatus he fought against as a young dissident and was now trying to sabotage his administration. He did not believe he was trying to co-opt anybody. The PT was deeply proud of the mechanisms it had developed over the decades to involve social movements in decision-making and bring the streets into the halls of power. These kids were not only refusing to play by the rules, they were pretending that the rules didn't exist. But the movement couldn't be dismissed entirely. Vice Mayor Nadia Campeão from the Communist Party of Brazil, PCDOB, skipped Paris and stayed in town to monitor the situation. On Tuesday, June 11th, it rained heavily. Protest number three, which took place that afternoon, was not so much a statement mounted in a single place as a set of battles, appearing and disappearing beneath the downpour around the center of the megacity. Water meant no cell phones and no megaphones, and so, even less organization than usual. Demonstrators tried to enter a bus station to encourage commuters to jump over the turnstiles. The police responded, first with words, and then with tear gas and rubber bullets. In front of the Tribunal de Justicia, one cop tried to stop a kid from spray painting on a wall. But quickly, the officer found himself surrounded. A group of demonstrators began to hurl rocks at him. One struck him in the head and he began to bleed. He pulled a gun and pointed it at the kids, ready to shoot. But he relented and pointed it back up into the sky and backed away in fear. If he only caught that scene, it looked very much like a group of punks had almost killed a police officer. This was not something that the MPL as an organization really believed to be productive. It was actually members of the Movimento Pasilivri who pulled the officer out of there and surrounded him to separate him from the crowd immediately afterward. But at the same time, it was their public policy to blame all chaos on the state and to avoid criminalizing resistance. It was a typical line to walk. It became as no surprise when this was the image that made the news that day. Sympathy for the officer and the media was overwhelming. Governor Alcmin congratulated him by name in a statement of solidarity. Communist city councilman Orlando Silva used a word from the old Marxist-Leninist canon, adventurous, to describe the actions of an irresponsible group that would only destabilize and worsen the country, not actually lead to revolutionary change. Elder statesman Eduardo Suplicy from the Workers' Party invoked the legacies of Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. to celebrate nonviolent struggle for justice, and Mayor Haddad, returning from Paris, said he placed a call asking the police not to overreact to the youth revolt. But that photo in the papers of a cop nearly lynched by protesters meant that they wouldn't listen. On June 13th, the morning of the fourth scheduled protest, São Paulo's newspapers delivered a clear message. The police need to crack down on this group. This was not done with innuendo or with suggestive news coverage, but with frank calls to action. The Estadal editorial committee wrote, The authorities should have determined that the police take more rigorous action since the very beginning. In an editorial entitled Retomar a Paulista, or Retake Paulista Avenue, Fola de São Paulo published this opinion. The few protesters that seem to have anything on their minds except for hoods justify their violence as a supposed reaction to the supposed brutality of the police. Fola continued, it is time to put a stop to this. The Free Fair movement itself was getting stretched thin. They were committed to carrying the plan forward and energized by the struggle. But in addition to shutting down parts of the largest city in South America, fighting with police, and managing their image in the media and on Facebook and Twitter, they needed to provide aid to scores of injured and imprisoned comrades. And on top of it all, they had to hold constant meetings to achieve full consensus for each step they took. There was little time for sleep, but they still managed to come up with a rotation of duties for the protest on June 13th. Lucas Vegetable Montero was going to be working on legal assistance from the mothership. Mayara was going to be Frente Duato, serving on the front line, bearing the brunt of any crackdown and defining the trajectory of the march. Retomar a Paulista I got back into São Paulo early in the morning on Thursday, June 13th. It was an overnight bus, and I was tired. I knew I was going to the protest that night, so I slept all day to store up some energy. I didn't expect that this would be news for the Los Angeles Times exactly, but I was very curious. A close friend of mine, Juliana, a freelance photographer who had gone to USP and been heavily involved in the music scene there, knew some of the Movimento Pasilibre, which kept me better informed than the media could. That afternoon, I walked down Avenida Ipiranga from my apartment on Praça da República and joined the group congregating in front of the Teatro Municipal. It took me about 10 minutes to arrive, and the square felt like a university party. The musical accompaniment to MPL events, the Fanfara de Movimento Autónomo Libertario, or the Autonomous Liberation Movement Fanfare Band, a kind of marching drum circle, was warming up. There were kids in ragged clothes, the kind of cheap attire that indicated political affiliation, not poverty. 
On the edge of the crowd, I could see several different flags waving, mostly those of small, left-wing parties, but even the black and white standard of a youth movement affiliated with the Workers' Party. I didn't see any cops. If I had come from the other direction, I might have had a very different experience. Most people did not live as close as me, and they were coming through the Valido Anyangabau, one of the strips of São Paulo with an indigenous name. There, military police were stopping people and searching them. Piero Locatelli came up that way, and they pulled him aside and asked to look in his backpack. They found a big plastic bottle of vinegar, cheap stuff from the supermarket that you might mix with olive oil. He had come prepared. The police detained him. Piero couldn't believe it. He was an accredited journalist, and this was no danger to anyone. He switched into the polite, highly grammatical version of Brazilian Portuguese that should indicate he was a respectable professional and that he respected the officers too. To no avail. He was taken away. Another journalist, a colleague of mine at Fola de São Paulo, did make it into the crowd. No, I didn't see her. Juliana Baloni, 27 years old, worked for the newly founded video section at the newspaper and took a position far away from the front of the action. Mayara had a cell phone but not a smartphone. She was working as a waitress at the time, and she had never been able to afford a device with internet access. Mayara would be calling other members of the group constantly to coordinate, and she pulled the mass of people behind her. Along with Pedro Punk, they decided it was time to begin. We stomped back the way I had come up past my house, and then we pushed up toward Paulista Avenue. As we moved up Consolação, there was a column of military police staring down at us. The moment of the attack is seared into my brain. We were looking up at them, up that hill leading to one of the highest points in the city. There were a lot of us, but they had the advantage. The sky hanging right above their heads was black and empty, and then they let loose, with volleys of smoke and fire and noise and canisters and streams of light flickering into the heavens. It was strangely beautiful, in the way that the apocalypse might be. São Paulo is never pretty, but it can be terrifyingly beautiful. It can be awesome, in the biblical sense. But then the red cloud approached its intended target, which was us, and I stopped looking up. I don't have good memories of what exactly I did next. It was quick bursts of movement, with other small groups of people here and there, looking up to see if police were chasing us, and then looking back down to scurry into another little corner, like scared little cockroaches. There was nothing to really cover, in the journalistic sense, so I just kept looking at my feet, trying to find a way through the maze of the city, back into the open air. Juliana Baloni remembers what happened to her. She stumbled on to Rua Augusta, the bohemian stretch of bars and clubs. Dilma was sitting in one of these bars on Augusta in 1970, when the dictatorship picked her up and hauled her off for her interrogation and torture. Juliana was technically covering the protest, but her phone was dead, and she was exhausted. An older woman got off the bus, lost, and clearly in need of help. The commotion had stranded her downtown. Juliana pointed her in the direction of Avenida Paulista. Seconds later, the woman ran toward her yelling, Miss, they are back. It was the police, climbing down on a big black shock troop vehicle and getting into formation. Juliana looked toward them and didn't say anything. One of them raised his arm and shot her in the face. The rubber bullet bounced off her skull and she fell to the ground. Someone snapped a picture. Like Piero Locatelli, Juliana Valone is a Brazilian of Italian extraction, which is one of the most common ethnic profiles among the São Paulo elite. Juliana was 27, but she looked younger. She has dark brown hair and big, round pink cheeks. By the standards of Brazil or any other country, she is very beautiful. And she worked for Folha, the New York Times of Brazil. In the photo, she is sitting on the pavement appearing dazed and plaintive, and it looks like she has lost her eye. The image shocked tens of millions of people. Piero was sitting back at work writing his own story when he heard shouts go up in the newsroom. They had seen the picture, now flying through social networks. I was still on the street. Mayara was in a state of panic. She had lost control of the front line, which meant that she had let the movement down. When the first attack came and blasted the crowd into different crevices, she took shelter in the doorway of a building. In a moment of desperation, a young mother turned to her and asked Mayara to watch her young daughter before rushing into the streets to try to rescue her husband. Stunned, she obliged. The little girl turned her face up to Mayara and asked, Auntie, are we going to die? When the mother returned, Mayara tried to get back to the front of the march, but there was none. In vain, she attempted to give some structure to the protest, to protect her people, to put the pieces back together. But the waves of attacks kept coming and coming. Finally, she managed to pull out her crappy little phone and call Nina Capello, who was coordinating things from the base. Nina, I've never seen anything more horrible in my life. I feel like I am in a war. I don't know what to do, she cried out, both scared and guilty. I don't know what to do. Please, just give me some kind of command. Nina responded, Don't do anything at all, Mayara. Grab a beer and relax and watch, because we are blowing up on every news channel in the world. You don't need to do anything. We already did it. Mayara couldn't believe it. How could this be success? People were bleeding and wounded all around her. Television presenter José Luis Datena is far more conservative than Fola or Estadel. He runs a sensational and very popular program denouncing crime and celebrating the police. As the events unfolded on the street, he said, I am against riots, guys, and then opened a poll for viewers to vote on their phones on the question, are you in favor of this kind of protest? Over 1,000 people immediately voted yes, and he responded surprised. So far, the majority are in favor. I would vote no. I would vote no. Okay. Is it possible that we formulated the question incorrectly? And then he launched a new poll. Are you in favor of protests with rioting? Over 2,000 of his viewers voted yes against less than 900 for no. To which he responded, Well, the people are so pissed off that they support any protest as far as I can tell. Okay. 
The monitor behind him continued to transmit images of the streets, and Athena quickly changed his tune. Now the protest was a show of democracy. My memory becomes clear again when I arrived near my house. I lived on a big square, so the space was relatively open. Some tear gas hung diffusely in the air, but I could breathe. I regained my composure a bit, chatting with the security guards who worked in my building, and processed what had just happened. I was in one piece, so I decided to go back out. I made it up to the Edificio Copan, the monumental building shaped by legendary architect Oscar Niemeyer. I came upon a loose agglomeration of people attempting to somehow maintain a presence on the street. Simply being there seemed a kind of stubborn rebuke to the military police, who promptly arrived and put an end to that. As the tear gas canisters landed right below us, the crowd cheered out, Love is over. Turkey is here. I scampered back toward my house, defeated again. I pulled out my Blackberry as I walked and posted this chant to Twitter. I got into my apartment and sat down at my computer. Something weird was happening. This tweet was getting a whole lot of attention and a lot of likes, and people were retweeting it throughout the world. Something really struck a nerve. The police brutality? The analogy to an uprising in a Muslim country? I didn't understand. Nothing remotely like this had ever happened to me before. Young correspondents in Brazil working for a California newspaper don't exactly have a huge platform. For the first time, I was going viral. I still don't know if I can describe the feeling. It was as if my entire body was being electrocuted with a vaguely pleasant notion that my words were connecting with thousands, millions of people all at once. And then the feeling would vanish until I looked back at the screen, transfixed as I watched the numbers go up and up. It was deeply strange. And I didn't feel comfortable. I emailed my editor in Los Angeles. This was international news now, I was sure. But as I waited for his response, I concentrated on this feeling. This kind of attention. The fact that I might be bearing witness to a major world event must be good for my career, I thought. But energy was surging through me that felt even bigger than that. I opened up a document to try to capture the sensation just from my own memory. I frantically typed out some notes and took screenshots of the numbers. Riley. In an attempt to check myself against the twisted incentive structures that were appearing clearly before my eyes, I wrote, Getting tear gassed is great for engagement. Hopefully it was good for something. Because for the next several months, I and the rest of the Praça da República would be lulled to sleep nearly every night by the faint taste of that familiar chemical compound. 2. Chlorobenzilidenemalononitrile. 10. The Giant Awakens. On Friday, June 14th, the country woke up to news of police violence. Endless photographs and eyewitness reports and journalistic accounts. I had my little story in the LA Times. The New York Times ran something, mentioning protests in Rio, where that correspondent lived, and other international outlets covered it too. Already, catchy monikers were being created based on the social media reports the previous night. Some called it the V for Vinegar movement, referring to Piero's arrest for possession of salad preparation materials with a play on V for Vendetta, whose masks had been present on the streets on Thursday. But the really dazzling transformation happened in the mainstream Brazilian media. I walked to my office, through an absolutely devastated downtown Sao Paulo, and got to work. Freelance Guardian contributor Claire Rigby had sent me her report for the fold-up blog. Of course, like everyone else, we ran the photo of Juliana Valoni to accompany the text. Dom Phillips, another dear friend and contributor to the blog, would put together a video to post later. After I edited and published Claire's story and posted it on Twitter, I began to actually read what the national press had reported. This was a total about-face. Fola condemned the police crackdown that they had asked for on Thursday. Estadão ran interviews with innocent bystanders, commuters, pedestrians, and workers who all said they suffered from the police repression. Reporters began to notice that Brazilians do actually spend a large percentage of their income on buses and the metro. I was also guilty of paying little attention to the issue until June 13th. Outlets opened investigations into the cost of transportation for regular people. Juliana shared a personal account of her injury on Facebook, where it was immediately shared tens of thousands of times. But newspaper readership in Brazil is low, and reporters aren't famous. It was when television channels began reporting the story in the same way, especially the hugely influential Globo network, that this narrative reached tens of millions of people across the continent. For Monday night, the date that the MPL had planned the next protest, Globo made a big decision. They were going to cancel the transmission of the telenovela so they could cover the protest live. For the first time, the papers and the talking heads on TV began to distinguish between good and bad protesters, affirming that honest citizens were exercising their right to protest, and that a small minority sometimes made trouble. As a result, they granted the movement a legitimacy they had denied a few days earlier. The MPL rejected this distinction on principle, but they had a lot of other issues to deal with. They spent the entire weekend in a set of endless meetings. Lucas, Vegetable, Mondeiro, and many others were convinced that the demonstrations ran the risk of having their message diluted. That is, given all the new attention, people would bring in their own demands and take the focus off the bus fare. As luck would have it, Saturday, June 15th, was the opening match of the FIFA Confederations Cup International Soccer Tournament in Brasilia, a kind of test run for the bigger event set for 2014, and protesters came out shouting, We don't want the World Cup, we want health and education. Of course, the MPL activists were deeply opposed to ever telling anyone what to do, but they wanted to keep their message out there. 
they decided to remain laser-focused on the 20 cent double price increase and engage once more with the country's oligarchical media structures. They planned a press conference and decided that Nina and Vegetable would go on a major interview program during the next protest. On Monday, June 17th, the promise that had been made by those kids at the beginning of the protests came true. It was bigger. A lot bigger. Demonstrators were supposed to meet in the Pinedos neighborhood at the big Potato Square, except you couldn't get anywhere near there. I hopped out of a car that had stopped making progress a full 30-minute walk from the protest's gathering point and made my way toward the demonstration. Except I was already sort of in it. Everyone else on the street was walking to the same place, and I never actually arrived anywhere. The further I walked, the thicker the crowd got, until imperceptibly, we had become part of a long march, making its way across Sao Paulo. The thing, this thing that we now were, had easily taken the place of all car traffic on the main thoroughfare where the MPL had done battle two weeks ago. Police were nowhere to be found. I didn't have Instagram in those days, but if I did, I might have seen a post made by Alex Atala on the way to the square a bit earlier. The celebrity chef, who ran a world-famous and very expensive restaurant in Sao Paulo, appeared on the social network wearing a shirt that read, V for Vinegar. He posted a snippet from the Brazilian national anthem, You will see that your son does not flee from battle. In response to his photo, the Brazilian fashion designer, Alexandre Herzkovich, responded, I will be there. The target of the march was the Ponte Estallada, a big, famous, ugly bridge, around seven miles from my apartment downtown. It is really named after the late Octavio Frias de Oliveira, heir to an aristocratic fortune, banker, and owner of the Fola de São Paulo newspaper, but everyone calls it the Cable Bridge. I knew vaguely that we were headed in that direction, but in practice we were just trudging across freeway, on and on and on. The people were slightly different. The same punks and left-wing student union types were there, but there were new people too. The only way to describe such a varied chunk of São Paulo, I think, is that they were normal paulistanos, yet younger and more privileged than the median. I saw something like the same spectrum of people you might see in a middle-class neighborhood. As I plodded along, I pulled out my phone. I got a message from Juliana, my photographer friend, on Facebook Messenger. We had taken the cable bridge. The police had lost or given up. She sent me a photograph of that big, gnarly construction packed with people, all of them now supporting the protests she had been covering sympathetically for weeks. Juliana suffers from depression, and is not given to flights of fancy. She is the type of blasé paulistana who frowns constantly and listens to darkly comic British indie rock, so I will never forget her caption. She wrote, I don't think I have ever seen anything more beautiful in my life. Then, in the crowd on my part of the highway, I saw something that I had not seen before. A couple of the protesters, obviously part of the new group, were decked out in a novel style. They were wearing all yellow and green, with a Brazilian national football jersey pulled tight over their big muscles. On top of that, they wrapped the Brazilian flag around their shoulders. They began to belt out a patriotic cheer, the kind you yell in the stadium when the team is playing against Argentina or Germany. Eu sou brasileiro com muito orgulho, com muito amor. I am a Brazilian, with lots of pride and lots of love. A couple punks, skinny kids with dirty clothes and much darker skin, scampered over to tell them that this was not quite right. They launched into a friendly explanation, the kind that is meant to let the new arrivals know how things worked around here. They had the energy of the nice guys in the mosh pit, who tell the obvious newcomers how to have fun and stay safe. Elbows down, don't push smaller people around, pick up anyone that falls. Empty nationalism at a protest is dangerous, one of the punks said. We have to focus on concrete political objectives. They explained very patiently that some protesters might see the Brazilian flag as a conservative symbol or tantamount to fascism, since in the context of a demonstration, rather than a football game, it was wrong to insist that everyone in the country agrees on everything. The burly newcomers made it very clear very quickly that they didn't give a fuck about any of that left-wing bullshit, and they didn't come here to attend a lecture on political theory from some punks. The kids, sensing trouble, skittered away. The crowd kept marching. How long had we been walking? Four hours? Six? Was anything going to happen? That was it? Thousands and thousands of us just walking across the city? I peeled off and popped into one of the city's trusty bakery-slash-coffee shop combinations to write up my story for the Los Angeles Times and check the rest of the internet for news. The crowds were monstrous in size, according to the people with the expensive cameras and helicopters required to measure these things. Hundreds of thousands of people had participated in 12 cities, making this the biggest demonstration in Brazil since 1992. Since the 1984 campaign to reinstate direct presidential elections and the painted faces movement to impeach Fernando Collor, the man who beat Lula in 1989, Brazil had not lived through any mass contention. A global correspondent in New York, Jorge Pontual, rejected the idea that the internet was responsible for the mass mobilization. He credited his own television station. I was deeply tired, far from home, and you might even say perplexed. This was all very anticlimactic. I sent in my story from the bakery. The next morning, I started a now-familiar journalistic ritual of posting articles to the internet, promoting and defending them on Twitter, and discussing the day's events. But there was another battle taking place, over what had happened the day before, over what the protests were about, why people took to the street, and what they wanted. During the march, Lucas Vegetable Mondero and Nina Capello had appeared on Joda Viva, or Live Wheel, 
The interview show where a bunch of journalists literally surround the guests, asking them questions, and they had done incredibly well. It may have helped generate sympathy that one of the interviewers was Juliana Valone, sporting a giant black eye from the police violence on Thursday, but they mostly impressed the panel with their deep knowledge of transportation policy in Brazil. They had done their research, and the journalists could tell. You know, journalists are lazy, Lucas Vegetable Mondero would joke to me later. So any preparation takes them by surprise. I responded that I might put it differently, that we are bound by the economics of the contemporary industry to immediately produce engaging content with dwindling resources. But I took his point. Crucially, they remained unflappable and disciplined on the show, fully committed to the reduction of the bus fare as the focus of the protests. People may have brought other demands into the streets, they said, but the only thing that united them was support for the initial cause, the real one. Outside, however, participants and reporters and citizens and officials had seen an incredibly wide range of demands on display. Whether through signs that they brought, things they yelled, or comments they offered to journalists, the message was not exactly clear. Scrolling Twitter on Tuesday morning, I saw the same divergent set of interpretations, the same dynamic that participants at Tahrir Square had complained about. I knew a lot of Brazilian journalists personally, and I knew the small community of foreign correspondents very well. I noticed that our explanations of what happened reflected our own biases and ideologies. For example, I tended to emphasize that these were protests about insufficient public services, and that concerns about hospitals, schools, and healthcare, as well as the question of public safety, were variations on the initial theme. Another correspondent, a serious and experienced right-of-center commentator at Bloomberg, tended to see the people as rejecting a corrupt state. This had become a favorite conservative talking point since the Workers' Party began running the government. And he was right. Some people had brought banners denouncing the PT or calling Lula a thief. You could also find images of citizens denouncing the esoteric PEC 37, a proposed constitutional amendment dealing with the technical legal question of which government agency investigates crimes. It was a favorite bugbear in the right-wing Brazilian publications that, frankly, I rarely read. Dom Phillips, for our little blog at Fola, recorded video interviews with a wide range of people, covering the spectrum of the sometimes contradictory reasons they came out on Monday. Many protesters now explicitly rejected the message offered by the MPL itself. Now, e pelos, vinte centavos, one famous slogan declared, this is not about 20 cents. The global television station recorded and reproduced patriotic imagery, the new yellow and green protest style that had surprised me on Monday night. And for all kinds of reasons, Globo was far more likely to blast out photos of photogenic white women with their faces painted green and yellow than skinny punks. Who was telling the truth here? No one, and all of us. We were taking a fundamentally illegible eruption of contention and trying to make it legible. This was a horizontally structured, digitally coordinated, leaderless mass protest. Concretely speaking, there were as many reasons for participating in the revolt as there were participants. Probably more. We in the media were, well, mediating the explosion through our own sets of conceptual apparatuses and experiences and unconscious biases and the sources we had happened to meet. Those sources themselves were defined to some extent by all of the former. As chance would have it, Federico Freitas, the vegan musician who had founded the Verdurada, or Veggie Fest Punk Night, where both the MPL and the Movimento Sempera had events over the years back in 1996, was following me on Twitter and he put me in contact with MPL member Daniel Guimarães, famous in the activist scene for founding the punk band Guerra de Classes, Class War, and his role in the Free Fair revolts in Florianopolis a decade prior. So I had a source in the original movement throughout most of June. This must have made me more likely to trace things back to the original intentions of that organization. Was this analysis more true than all the other possible analyses? I have no idea. This was now a national revolt, and all my experiences were in Sao Paulo. On June 17th, protesters stormed the grounds of Brazil's Congress and danced on the roof. The military police could not or would not stop them. Maybe this changed the future of the country more than anything that took place in my neighborhood. And then, as commentators farther and farther away began to weigh in, the picture was painted in broader and broader strokes. That predictable phrase, Brazilian Spring, was used by ABC News. Even though it didn't make much sense to compare a set of winter marches in a democracy with a popular progressive president to the uprisings that toppled North African dictators. The profoundly anti-military MPL certainly was not pushing for anything like the Egyptian solution. Organizations that explicitly disagreed with the left-slash-anarchist orientation of the Movimento Passe Libre found opportunity in the protests. One of them had international roots. Brazil was home to a small but dedicated group of radical free-market institutions often linked to the global libertarian movement based in the United States. Estudantes pela Liberdade was the Brazilian version of Students for Liberty, the free-market think tank funded by the Atlas Network and the Cato Institute, both based in Washington, D.C. Founder Fabio Osterman had learned a thing or two from pro-capitalist comrades in the United States at free-market seminars in 2008 at the Cato Institute and the Foundation for Economic Education, and as a Koch Summer Fellow at a program paid for by the billionaire Koch brothers. Brazilian academic Camila Rocha, who has traced the rise of free-market think tanks in the country, calls the Atlas Network a kind of neoliberal commentary, likening the pro-business super-NGO to the Communist International as it funds and coordinates organizations that promote its own very different ideology across the world. 
Though Estudantes de la Libertad and associated organizations in Brazil, like the Instituto Mises and the Instituto Millennium, promote self-consciously neoliberal thinkers, they usually avoid that word and its negative connotations in South America. They prefer the word liberal, which in Portuguese has none of the center-left connotations it does in the United States. It means freedom, in a very different sense than the MPL understands it. It means free markets. Estudantes de la Libertad received funding from Students for Liberty in the United States, which they used to support a small team in Brazil. This also meant that the organization could not participate directly in political demonstrations in Brazil. That would be illegal. But they saw a possibility in the unexpected mass demonstrations. They wanted to create a liberal vanguard within the protest movement, Osterman told me. So he contacted a friend with the idea of repurposing one of their other slogans for the current moment. They created the Movimento Brasilibre, MBL, and used the new Facebook page to call on people to protest for the right reasons on June 18th. In Brazilian Portuguese, MBL sounds nearly identical to MPL. This was intentional. The founding of the MBL was an attempt to enter the fray and redefine the meaning of the protests, Osterman said. We wanted MBL to sound similar to MPL as a form of contestation. Because we didn't want free transportation, we wanted a free Brazil. And we had a set of proposals, like the removal of tax breaks and subsidies, the opening of markets, and more competition. Mayor Haddad was back in the city and facing intense pressure. The MBL was now amenable to meeting at City Hall. They explained their case and received the support of much of the city council on June 18th. Seven other Brazilian cities lowered transportation prices that day. But Haddad did not want to drop the bus fare. He understood why the country had exploded in response to the violence of the police, which was itself revenge against the injured officer a week before. But that had nothing to do with transportation policy. Giving in was not going to stop it. If I give in, then all that will be left as a target is you, he remembers telling President Dilma. It's better I stay out in front than take the hit. Mayara was at the meeting. She was tired, distracted, and nervous. Haddad had always been so arrogant toward them, so dismissive, she felt. But she managed to deliver the standard MPL stump speech to the council. Only afterwards did she realize that she had mixed up some of the details. She never liked public speaking. Either way, the city was not going to budge. The Free Fair movement remained committed to victory on the streets. Later on Tuesday, June 18th, there were more protests across the country. In Sao Paulo, it started downtown near the grandiose Se Cathedral, the city's main Catholic church. It was clear by now that the protesters had not actually defeated the police. The cops had simply stayed away. Except for some small interventions in events of the governor's palace the night before, they had chosen not to engage. On Tuesday, with the streets to themselves, some of the protesters began to smash up businesses downtown, and another group took aim at City Hall itself. They tried to break into Haddad's place of work and began to demolish as much of the structure as they could. The workers inside called the police for backup. None came. Mayara was on the street nearby, and an older woman ran up to her. She must have recognized her from an appearance in the media. They are smashing up City Hall. You have to do something. Tell them to stop. Mayara paused to think. It really was not a great idea actually to storm and trash those public institutions like that and to threaten the employees inside. Should she go say something? That was not exactly the role she liked to play. Protest authority? Never. Opponent of direct action? That would be a first. She continued considering her options until something broke her concentration. Right next to her, a group of protesters surrounded a TV news van belonging to the record station and set it on fire. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan placed a phone call to President Dilma Rousseff. Brazil, especially under the workers' party, sought to maintain good relations with all other countries in the developing world, and she knew him well after a visit to Istanbul in 2011. She took the call, of course. He wanted to warn her. He believed that something very strange was happening with these digitally coordinated mass protests, and he suspected that both countries, Turkey and Brazil, were the target of some kind of destabilization program. This could be a coup attempt, organized by foreign elements, perhaps in concert with a local deep state or some other shadowy forces. Dilma did not agree. Her theory was that once you deliver citizenship and some of its associated social benefits to a previously oppressed population, they asked for even more. That was only natural. She came up in this country as a dissident, and she was not going to be an anti-protest president. Later, Russian President Vladimir Putin shared a similar message with Dilma. By now, he was convinced that the West had coordinated color revolutions in a bid to shake vulnerable nations to the core and expand U.S. hegemony. On Tuesday, June 18th, President Dilma went on television, and she praised the spirit of the protests. Today, Brazil awakened stronger. The grand protests yesterday have proved the energy of our democracy, the strength of the voice of the streets, and the civic spirit of our population, she began. She praised the peaceful protesters and their patriotic gestures while distinguishing them from a destructive minority. But overall, she said, it was worth it. I saw a poster yesterday that I found really interesting that said, please forgive the inconvenience. We are changing the country. I want to say that my government is listening to these voices. The dam broke the next day. Even though around 150 protesters had gathered outside his house the night before, Mayor Haddad started the day believing he was going to stand firm on the price hike. But then, Rio de Janeiro Mayor Eduardo Paes called him and said he was giving in on his own. Haddad called in to Brasilia, and it became clear there was no way out. He called a press conference, and standing next to Governor Geraldo Alcman, announced that the fair was coming back down. Mayara and the MPL, who had barely slept for weeks, absolutely lost their minds. They were delirious with victory. They drank, they cried, and they hugged each other tight. We never gave up. We never gave up, Mayara said as she embraced a longtime friend. 
they belted out protest slogans, some now a decade old, that had marked the history of their fight. Hey, MPL, qual e a sua missão? A baixar a tarifa e fazer uma revolução. Hey, MPL, what is your mission? To bring down fares and create a revolution. Mayara called up Senator Eduardo Suplicy, a little bit tipsy and sang the Internacional, the song of the international workers' movement to him over the phone. At their base, at the Tortura Nunca Mais offices, they lit one of their model turnstiles on fire and danced around it holding hands in a circle. In the meticulous preparations that the Movimento Pasa Libre had spent a year designing, they had predicted that they would defeat the bus fare rise on June 19th. They had gotten the day exactly right. There was only one problem, Lucas Vegetable Mondero said. We had planned every single detail down to the moment we would succeed, but we had absolutely no plan for what came after that. The MPL called a final street action, a celebration, more than a protest, for Thursday, June 20th. It started before they could even get there. The members of the Free Fair movement were exhausted, hungover, and unsure how to interact with this particular awakened giant. There had been frenzied discussion among left-wing groups, including the PT, as to whether they should participate on the streets that day. It was well understood by them that they may not be welcome. In the end, they elected to make their presence known, and the MPL decided to form a kind of security cordon around them within the protest. This was a novel position for them to take. In years past, of course, they had often whispered to young punks that they should go rip down any flag on the streets. But they weren't an anti-party organization. This confusion between apartidarismo and anti-partidarismo worried them, and they put out a note affirming that these groups had been there since the beginning of June. In over 100 cities across the country, two million people were on the streets. This was now the largest protest movement in Brazilian history. Only a week had passed since the day of the police attack, but I can remember every single day of the intervening week vividly. Every street action, and every twist and turn in the battle to interpret and re-signify them online afterward. It felt like time had slowed down, and it felt like the trajectory of history was being hammered out on Facebook, on Twitter, and in the comments section of the Movimento Pase Libre page. I could see the writing on the digital wall. I knew that things would be different. There were all kinds of people on the street that day, but all I saw was fighting. I showed up to Avenida Paulista around sunset. As I got to the avenue, I saw some of the same parties that had been the core participants on June 13th, and they had fear in their eyes. They tried to make their way forward, gingerly holding their purple and yellow and red and black flags, but a line of burly men was holding them back and shouting them down. Sempartido! Sempartido! They screamed in their faces as more and more of the crowd joined in. No parties! No parties! I couldn't see the MPL anywhere, but obviously their defensive plan had not worked. The big men began to push the young leftists hard until they were violently expelling them from the avenue onto side streets. The group that spilled out onto my street was from the PSOL Socialist Party, which had some representation in Congress and committed itself loudly to the defense of LGBT and minority rights. They looked down at the ground, shocked and dejected and embarrassed. It was obvious they didn't know what to do. There was a deep sadness in their eyes, and no one could even summon the energy to discuss what had just happened. A few blocks over, a member of the Landless Workers Movement, the famous MST, made his own retreat. He stopped to speak with Piero Locatelli. We lost. We lost. It's all over. All we can do is leave. 11. Five causes. Four fingers. In the midst of the street explosion, the hacking collective Anonymous uploaded a video to the internet. These videos always went the same way. There was a man in that V for Vendetta mask sitting at a desk. There were some static visual effects, as if the group had infiltrated your computer. Then you hear a male voice distorted by another cheap video editing tool. In this video, the man outlined a set of demands. He said that the country must put politics aside and unite behind issues with no ideological or religious content, which the entire country could agree upon. The five causes for which the streets were fighting. First, they would stop PEC 37, that constitutional amendment which would stipulate that only police, not the public prosecutor's office, can investigate crimes. Even for me, someone who had been covering Brazilian politics very closely for years, the consequences of those jurisdictional disputes did not seem especially obvious. Second, Senate President Henan Caleiros must be removed. This one seemed quite political. Third, irregularities in World Cup projects would be investigated and punished. Fourth, congressional corruption would be categorized as a heinous crime. This would not change much in practice. And fifth, an end to the privileged forum, which means that charges against sitting politicians must be tried by the Supreme Court. Notably, none of these demands would lead to concrete, direct benefits for regular people. They were all judicial adjustments, or dealt with elite politics, and did not address economic justice at all. Over the next few days, protest signs in support of five causas popped up all over social media. If you wandered the streets of Brazil from June 14th to the end of the month, there were a lot of slogans you might decide represented the movement. There was V for vinegar, of course. There was O Gigante Acordao, meaning the giant has awakened, which dovetailed nicely with a long-time right-leaning slogan, Wake Up Brazil. There was Now E Pelos Vinche Centavos, which proclaimed that this was about much more than the bus fare price hike. Football came into the mix quickly, and not only because Mayara and other MPL members had coordinated with the ultras of Brazil to participate, riffing on the exact standards imposed by the World Cup organizers for the very expensive stadiums being built, signs read, We want schools and hospitals up to FIFA standards. This one, to me, seemed to capture the essence of a range of sentiments I heard over the past several years. We want to actually live like the first world, not just be accepted by them. 
We want our people to have the comfort and security that a foreigner attending the World Cup will have. And if you liked, if that was the project that spoke to you, it would have been just as possible to claim that the June protests were about the five causes. Over the entire week, President Dilma Rousseff developed her own technique for trying to read the streets. She would sit in the presidential palace, watching television feeds of the protests, Globo News specifically, with the sound off. If she removed the mediation provided by the channel's commentators, she could stare intently at the people themselves and make note of the signs they were holding. She could try to let them speak to her directly. Of course, this method was limited to the images that the global conglomerate chose to record and transmit. But it's not like she could wander among the crowd, as I had done, and even if that were possible. Demonstrations took place in a hundred cities at the same time. So she sat, and she studied the screen. After Mayor Haddad gave in to the MPL, President Dilma Rousseff called a set of emergency meetings and considered a number of ways she might respond to the dizzying sets of street manifestations. If you believed, like I did, that the whole thing was fundamentally about better public services, then this was a strange paradox. Given the actual arrangements of Brazilian politics, nobody was pushing harder for an expanded welfare state than the PT and the closely allied PCDOB. You could view the explosion as an outcry for the government to do more of what it was already doing. This was the basic conclusion that Lula drew in a July New York Times editorial. In the last decade, Brazil doubled its number of university students, many from poor families. We sharply reduced poverty and inequality. These are significant achievements, yet it is completely natural that young people, especially those who are obtaining things their parents never had, should desire more. At the same time, Lula and President Rousseff definitely saw the anti-government sentiment on the streets, the denunciations of corruption, and conservative patriotic outrage directed squarely at their party. Mayara and other members of the MPL sat down with Dilma Rousseff in Brasilia on June 24th. It went about as you would expect, Mayara thought, considering that their movement's goals were pretty clear and the president couldn't change national policy in a single meeting. Arriving in that conference room with the president that day, Mayara realized that, despite their political differences, Dilma was our kind of people. The president realized immediately that the exhausted activists were famished and got someone to feed them some Brazilian cheesy bread. Unlike Haddad, who always came across as academic and aloof, Dilma had the bearing of a fighter, just like them. But after the meeting, disaster struck. No one and everyone is a spokesperson for the Movimento Passe Libre, and among the many things that the group told the press after the meeting, MPL member Marcelo Hochinski let lie that Dilma's office was unprepared to discuss the issue of public transportation. It was a glib comment, and Mayara was gutted. Of course the press will choose it as the headline, she thought. By now, some people on both the left and right were claiming for their own reasons that the June uprising was a conservative movement aimed at dislodging the Workers' Party and the country's first woman president. Mayara thought those people, as wrong as they were, would use Marcelo's comment to buttress their arguments. They did. That same day, President Dilma Rousseff announced five pacts with Brazil. She declared her support for the heinous crime designation demanded by that anonymous video, and Congress quickly killed PEC 37, as the man in the mask had wanted. The most important of Dilma's five pacts was a proposed referendum to amend the Constitution. This would allow for political reform of the type that her party had long sought. This would require uniting the rest of Brazil's political class behind the idea. No easy feat. But in the weeks after she put it forward, 68% of Brazilians said they supported the project. Congress was also desperate to do something that would show they were listening to the streets. Senate President Henan Calleiros from the more conservative Brazilian Democratic Movement, PMDB Party, who had definitely been accused of corruption and was definitely not being removed, put forward a big package of legislation that was meant to clean up politics. One of the laws had been in the works for years, the result of international cooperation and pressure from abroad since the early 2000s. It wasn't much noticed in the flurry of changes, but Lei 12.850-2013 would modify the rules for investigating criminal organizations. Most importantly, it made possible the widespread use of de las soles premiadas, or plea bargain deals, as long as the targets were defined correctly. Behind the scenes, major players in Brazilian politics, including Vice President Michel Temer, who had not been invited to those weekend emergency meetings, made it very clear to Dilma that they were not going to countenance the kind of political reform she had announced on television. Quietly, the president backed off, and the constitution remained unchanged. But Lei 12.850-2013 soon changed things in the country. Brazil has a civil law system, derived from continental European traditions, which is very different from the common law system in place in the United States. Notably, judges in Brazil are not as bound by precedent as their North American counterparts. Lower courts have a wide range of leeway to rule as they please, and are often overturned by higher courts on appeal. The tactic of threatening a suspect with jail time and then offering him a way out if he turns someone else in was not part of the legal architecture. It was largely the influence of the United States that led Brazil to adopt plea bargain techniques. As a result of pressure from Washington, direct contact between Brazilian and U.S. jurists and officials, and the ambient assumption that things in the United States just worked better, authorities had pushed for the ability to investigate the same way as cops in the U.S. for years. And after 2013, they could. After Desi Park failed to unite behind the big brothers on the organized Turkish left, Erdogan's government tried to construct negotiations of their own. On June 12th, they invited a group of high-profile supporters, including television actors, to talks. This was widely rejected in the square, so the government came up with a different group, comprising some of the activists and NGOs who had more meaningful connections to the movement. This was better, but it was still the state selecting who would represent Gezi Park, not the movement itself. 
If you care about the ends, not just the means of your protest movement, then you can't cede the power of representation to some external actor, wrote Turkish political scientist Jihan Fugat, certainly not to your antagonist. To sum up the dynamic at work here, in Egypt, in Turkey, and indeed across the mass protest decade, Tugal paraphrased one of Marx's most famous lines in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, those who cannot represent themselves will be represented. The Turkish government presented a deal as a fait accompli. The people would keep the park if the country voted for it in a national plebiscite. But that was it. Nothing else. Take it or leave it. The people in the park were split on that proposal, and there was no mechanism for deciding how to respond collectively. Apparently, many people within the government felt deeply frustrated that they could not find a negotiating partner. The best outcome might have been to give the people, or at least these influential people in Istanbul, some of what they said they wanted. At one point, Taksim Solidarity offered five demands. Gezi must remain a park, punish officials responsible for repression, free imprisoned protesters, allow for assemblies to meet in the park, and commit to preserve public spaces and freedom of expression in Turkey. They received no answer from the square. How could it give one? At an AKP rally in the capital, the prime minister announced the government would clear the park. Authorities did so by force on June 15th. Assemblies and neighborhood forums sprang up for a while outside the park, but energy began to taper off. Regular people had to go back to their jobs. The groups could not make binding decisions or take concrete action. On June 29, 2013, the Tamarat rebellion movement in Egypt announced that it had collected more than 22 million signatures demanding that Mohamed Morsi call new elections. From the beginning, the group had represented itself as the heir to the spirit of 2011, the successor movement to Tahrir Square. They were young revolutionaries, using the internet to organize and call for an end to the excesses of the Muslim Brotherhood government. On June 30th, millions of people took to the streets. Gehad, who hated Morsi, went, but she thought this protest was very strange. This was very different from 2011. Back then, she had risen to action after seeing a protester face down police violence. This time, the police were supporting the demonstration, and protesters were taking selfies with cops. The June 30th movement also had the backing of major media, which had been building up to this date for weeks. This didn't feel like an uprising. This was more like a festival, a coordinated nationalist ritual. Military aircraft flew overhead. There were huge Egyptian flags and fireworks everywhere. This felt wrong. On July 3rd, Defense Minister General Abdel Fattah el-Sisi seized power for himself. This was a military coup. As it turned out, Tamarad was never as grassroots as it seemed. Gahad and many others would find out later that Tamarad had been funded by Gulf countries, especially the United Arab Emirates, the military, and wealthy businessmen. Saudi Arabia immediately threw its support behind the new Sisi regime. We were played, Gahad said. Simple as that. Morsi had millions of supporters in the country who pointed out that he had actually won the only legitimate presidential election in Egyptian history. They occupied the square, not Tahrir, but Rabah, a few miles to the east surrounding a mosque. Media spread exaggerated reports that the Muslim Brotherhood was planning violence. The army raided and cleared the square, killing approximately 1,000 people. The Rabah massacre shocked human rights organizations, but it didn't change the situation for Sisi one bit. The Muslim Brotherhood was banned. Dictatorship was back in Egypt. Simple as that. In the summer of 2013, Erdogan would appear in public and make a four-fingered salute in solidarity with Rabah Square. Rabah means fourth in Arabic. Even after his government had violently cleared Gezi Park, he still positioned himself as a leader who was in support of popular uprisings, as long as they were the right ones. Rabah didn't have too many supporters that mattered, however. The rise of Sisi was a huge victory for the Saudi royal family and the version of Gulf-dominated Arab politics that had seemed so threatened since the dawn of the so-called spring in 2011. The Turkish model and Erdogan's dream of international influence were in tatters. In 2013, Erdogan lost Egypt. He lost much of the secular middle class during the Gezi days, and he was now deeply involved in a bloody quagmire in Syria. It did not look like Turkey was joining the European Union anymore, but his rule itself was not in question. Erdogan looked forward to easy election victories as his government gradually became more authoritarian. Not long after the dust settled, the bizarre shopkeeper Hazar joined the military and was in for a big surprise when he met the rest of the guys in the barracks. In the square, he felt the entire country was with him, but he found out that most of these guys, watching from rural areas around the country, were against the protests from day one. The Movimento Pase Libre had to decide what to do next. After the messy multi-million person marches on June 20th, the MPL did not call for any more demonstrations. Some of them thought they could have supplied a new demand, perhaps going all the way, for the eponymous free fare, to direct the huge amount of energy now on the streets. They found, just walking around town, that people would shout support for them. People would ask what they were doing next. But making such a decision would have required every single member to agree. It is hard to decide on an entirely new campaign quickly if you rely on consensus for your decision-making. Just as importantly, they were dead tired. Some of them were now very ill. Others had lost a lot of weight. Mayada had been working the whole time as a waitress while organizing street combat and becoming a minor national celebrity. They also had to decide how to deal with a flood of recruits who had shown up, though no one had actually asked them to join. How could they integrate everyone into such a tightly knit group? They attended another series of endless meetings, once more at their base at the Tortura Nunca Mais Center. Some members were afraid of inevitable, dreaded bureaucratization if they sought to expand or take advantage of their popularity. One proposal sought to eliminate the necessity that everyone participate in those endless 12-hour meetings. There would be a general assembly for some things, as well as smaller groups for other things. And this was seen as unacceptably leninist. 
For his part, Lucas Vegetable Mondeiro essentially wanted to abolish all of the group's existing structures. After endless discussion, a different proposal went out. The MPL would retreat from the spotlight in the middle of the city, neglect the universities and media, and go down to the people. They would concentrate on outreach in the periferia, the poor neighborhoods on the outskirts or periphery of the cities. Adjusted for the Brazilian context, this is the exact same thing that the original leaders of Students for a Democratic Society did back in the 1960s, after the media spotlight furnished them with a lot of attention, and consequently, a lot of new members. Vegetable hadn't heard this story before, but when I began to tell him, he was able to finish my sentences for me, and predict exactly what was going to happen. So people showed up trying to join a movement that didn't actually exist outside the media? Yes. Right. Que laucura. What madness. In Chile, many of the leaders of the 2011 student movement took the opposite approach. They decided to join institutional politics and stood for election in November 2013. Camila Vallejo and Carol Pariola ran for Congress with the Communist Party and pledged to join the new majority coalition with the socialists. Gabriel Boric and Giorgio Jackson ran as independents, associated with the autonomous left movement and the newly founded Democratic Revolution, respectively. All four leaders were elected. They declared they would have one foot on the street and another in Congress. But for many people who had joined them on the streets, this was a betrayal. They were joining the system. After Vallejo and Cariola entered the government, their allies back in the student unions quickly lost interest. And for the anarchist currents in the Chilean youth movement, all four of them were now the enemy. In 2013, I tracked down the man who had uploaded the Five Causes video. He wanted to be identified only as Mario, but he proved to me that he controlled the YouTube channel that hosted the clip. We talked for a while on Facebook Messenger about how he got into politics, and now he heard about Anonymous. He never joined that group, he said. It doesn't work like that. He just liked the stuff he saw, so he got a mask and made a video in the trademark style. What about the Five Causes? I asked. How did the group decide on those? Oh, no one decided, he responded. He had simply made them up. He pieced the causes together from stuff he had read on Facebook and came up with a list. Five seemed like a good number. After the dust settled, the Data Fola polling group, the best in the country, did a new survey on Dilma's popularity. In the first week of June 2013, 57% of Brazilians characterized her government as good or great. At the end of the month, the number was 30%. That is a 27-point drop in three weeks. What is astounding is that not one of the issues that caused the June explosion had anything to do with the federal executive branch. Cities controlled the bus fares, and Dilma had pressure to delay the price rise. State governments controlled the police, and in Sao Paulo, the conservative opposition was in command. The Supreme Court is the final arbiter on corruption cases. President Rousseff had lost half of her support in a three-week period in which her administration didn't actually do anything except try to respond to the contradictory messages rising up from the streets. For any analysis that assumes voters act rationally based on access to information about their representatives, this presents a serious conundrum. What could explain the drop? No information became available about Dilma or her governance. Perhaps many people realized that there were a lot of things they didn't like about the country. One common explanation is that citizens believed she had responded poorly to the eruption. But what was the right way? Or if you bring the media into your understanding of political reality, there is, of course, no national politics without mediation. Maybe everyone experienced a few weeks of intense media engagement, weeks in which the government was framed as incompetent or malevolent or both. I have never seen a satisfactory answer. Her approval ratings never recovered.